From the dawn of time we came, moving silently down through the centuries, living many secret lives, struggling to reach the time of the gathering, when the few who remain will battle to the last. No one has ever known we were among you. Welcome to the Highlander Rewatch Podcast. Uh, we're really excited about this episode. We are tackling the very first Highlander motion picture. Um, maybe you're a new listener to the podcast since we're talking about the movie and you're a huge fan of the original 1986 Highlander. We just want to tell you a little bit about what this podcast is all about. Each and every week, we take a different piece of Highlander and we talk about it in detail, uh, whether it's from the show, whether it's from the show or the movie. There's only two things. Yeah. Well, anime. Yeah, there's the anime. There's all sorts of stuff. And yeah. obviously, we're, we're just starting to scratch the surface of what the Highlander universe is. Um, I'm one of your hosts. My name's Keith. This is Kyle. I'm another one of your rewatchers. And this is Eamon. We all, like, really love Highlander. That's why we started doing this podcast. So, also, if you haven't checked out, like, our previous podcast, go back and check out uh, all our Season 1 episodes. Plus, we've got a really cool interview with uh, the creative consultant and producer, David Abramowitz. Plus a bonus episode. Absolutely. Yeah, so if this is your first time checking us out, make sure to go back and listen to the rest, because it's all pretty good stuff. Even if you don't like Season 1, I think our episodes are pretty fun. What can you expect from this podcast? We are going to be getting into, we're going to kind of go beat by beat by the movie and talk about all the scenes um we are going to get into some behind the scenes stuff about casting do some interviews with uh, the cast uh and yeah we're just going to kind of give a our analysis of the movie highlander and what we think about it so we're excited uh to revisit this movie over the next couple episodes it's gonna be a lot of fun so i i got into highlander by watching the show mostly um and then i feel like i might have seen highlander two or three first i i feel like the, I did not see the original Highlander movie. And you first. still stuck with it, huh? Yeah, I did. Because uh, I remember liking the show a lot, and then I remember being at like our local video store and being like, "Oh, there's a movie!" Like I didn't. Yeah. That wasn't even on my radar when I was a kid. And yeah. I was like, "Oh, cool!" So we rented it, and it's like the sexiest movie of the year. If it was the third of 1995. <laughs> wow. <laughs> or whatever. Uh, we got to check what other movies came out in 1995 to see if it truly is the, the sexiest. sexiest. Yes, it's true. This I is Highlander three would have been the sexiest movie yeah. in 1995, right. according to the box art yeah. very good uh, how did you guys get into highlander or, or see the first movie uh, well i started with the tv show as i said before on usa watching it with my grandma so like adrian paul is highlander in my mind that he is who it is uh and then like i i didn't see the movie until recently and you know i'm gonna make a confession here like when i first saw the movie i didn't really like it that much now i have seen it maybe 10 times I actually really like it, but at first I wasn't that impressed. I don't know why. Probably watched it maybe five years after I watched the show with my grandmother. It was that long. I didn't even know it was a movie, embarrassingly. Yeah, I yeah. just thought it was a TV show. How about you, Kyle? My introduction is pretty similar to Eamon's. Also, just in terms of how strongly the show was rooted in my mind, then going back and seeing the the movie was a bit jarring for me. And I remember my initial take on the movie was loving the music and 
being like ho hum on the movie. I think I have a much stronger appreciation for the movie now, and some of just like the just kind of embrace a lot of the craziness that goes on in it. And that has like a real place in my heart now as like one of the flavors of Highlander. Maybe not my favorite flavor of Highlander. <laughs> like the show at its height is still like the gold standard, but there's definitely a place for like the zany Kurgan and that kind of atmosphere in Highlander. And after watching the show, it's kind of hard to not compare the two. Well, the first time I saw the movie, I kept on being like, oh, they do this kind of better in the TV show. And, you know, now I'm like, oh, well, this was done better in the movie. So right. it's hard to compare sometimes. Yeah, well, I think the thing that's hard is the Highlander universe is so kind of dense. Like, you have this thing with rules. You're trying to develop, like, this whole mythos. And that's really hard to do in a two-hour movie. Like, the amount of content to try to cram in kind of the show's version of this thing into a movie, that's a daunting task. And I think this... This movie does a pretty good job of getting a lot of content into a pretty small window of time. Oh, it does. It does a great job at that. And I I know, I remember uh, David Abramowitz, the show's producer, actually, I think mentioned on our podcast that he always imagined that these two things were unrelated, like two separate universes, which I think is a good way to think about it, because when you start to kind of piece these things together into a coherent universe, it becomes confusing and like kind of weird, so I'm good with just thinking about the movies on their own. Utterly confusing, because not to give away the end of the movie, but Connor wins. Right. right. He wins the game. Therefore, what is the TV show? Like, you brought yeah. that up on the, the, our, our pilot episode, is that, like, are we following a, a hero that will one day die because we know the end of the movie? Yeah. Right. Which would be a hilarious take on the show if, like, from the very beginning they were, like, planting the seed that, like, the, the finale of the episode is Adrian Paul getting his head cut off, like... That would be amazing in a <laughs> certain would. in a certain way. Like yeah. it's like this cruel joke that's being played on you. <laughs> but no, that is not in fact what happens. And I agree that they should really be thought of as distinct entities. Right. Especially well, when you get into the other movies. Right. Oh yeah. Well there's a weird thing, I don't know, this might be getting ahead of ourselves, but I, I watched some of the season two episodes and um Joe Dawson mentions, Oh, thanks to Connor for getting rid of the Kurgan, he was a real bad guy. Which is like oh kind of nuts so in the tv show universe the kurgan did exist but they didn't face each other right. as the last two immortals wow that's interesting i'm excited to delve into season two and also yeah. I, I should mention we're all re-watching this is that's the the title of our show highlander rewatch so like right we've pretty much seen all the episodes but again in our youth <laughs> right uh, and now we're going back to kind of revisit the whole series and deliver some cynical adult hard-hitting analysis <laughs> that's right, right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> on a fantasy show yeah <laughs> But that said, that seems like the smartest way to proceed if you were trying to reconcile these two things. It's like, okay, all the events of the movie happened with just the editorial that it's still ongoing. It's not, not That's not it. Like, yeah. right. there are more immortals left. It almost looked, It's almost like our gag that uh, one of the theories we had discussed on how the gathering works, which for those who aren't quite plugged in, the gathering is when there's few immortals left, they feel like a, a pull to go to a, a certain location to fight it out. That there's like sub-tournaments. <laughs> it's like a yeah. March Madness bracket. Yeah, right. it's like, oh, you go to this city, you fight, and then the ones who are left feel a compelling urge to move on. So maybe the first movie, <laughs> Connor wins the New York bracket right. and then has to move He's on. He's moved to Seacouver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So why don't we jump in with kind of the uh, nuts and bolts of what Highlander is and get into the the info on it. So Highlander was originally released on March 7th, 1986. Just to paint a picture, Reagan was president. Uh, The Challenger disaster had just happened a few months prior. Oh, boy. Uh, Just to give you an idea of, like, the movie climate at the time, uh, like a week before Highlander came out, Pretty in Pink was in the box office. Right. That was number one at the box office. Yeah. So uh, Highlander was number seven or eight. I think so. It lost to Pretty in Pink, House, Down and Out, and Beverly Hills, The Color Purple, Hannah and Her Sisters, and a movie called Wildcats. (laughs) (laughs) So not an auspicious launch to this movie. This uh, movie was directed by Russell Mulcahy. He's an Australian director, mostly known for music videos. Things you might know him from are Duran Duran's Rio. Oh. Um, Tons of Elton John videos. I think he did like 20 Elton John videos. Damn. Some Spandau Ballet. Oh. Yeah, which uh, we've talked about on this podcast before. Mark Kemp. The Avenging Angel. Right. Uh, He did their video for True, which honestly is a pretty boring video. True. <laughs> no, not my favorite Spandau Ballet song, although mm. I do love that band. He also did uh, some Queen videos. It's a kind of magic. Oh, Princes of the Universe, uh, which of course are from this movie, which feature Christopher Lambert looking very serious. Yeah. He looks like he's having no fun in that video. Yeah. He looks sad. Yeah. Oh, one of his biggest claims of fame is he kind of directed what you could call, I guess, the first music video, Video Killed the Radio Star, which was the first video actually aired on MTV, which is pretty cool. And so this is his second feature. His first, what is it, Razorback? Razorback, which is about yeah. like a killer pig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this was uh, this movie was written by Gregory Wyden, um, and he actually wrote this as a student. Yeah. Uh, as a class assignment, Allegedly, where he was going to UCLA. So let's kick it off. Who's in this movie? So Christoph Lambert is in this movie. And so this is like really his only like second big movie. The first one was Greystroke, which is the legend of Tarzan. Yeah, I was reading a lot about this movie because every article references... Greystoke? I've never seen it. Have either of you seen it? No, I haven't. I kept meaning to watch it. It was nominated for lots of Academy Awards. Hmm. Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown wrote that movie and he wrote it he got in an argument and said all right the name on this movie is my dog's name ph vozak and he got nominated for an academy award for best screenplay (laughs) and it was his dog's name like on the ballot (laughs) i thought that was interesting that's pretty good no that's really funny but yeah he's been in some stuff he's more of a more famous as a french and like international movie actor than yeah uh he was kind of on a hot streak around this time or like after like early 90s like he was in the mortal Kombat movie nothing clinches a hot streak like being raiden yeah mortal Kombat. written by kevin droney who was uh one of the producers on highlander and wrote a bunch of episodes so at the time of lambert's casting this movie i read this lambert has been called the sexiest actor in movies today yeah, what I. The fuck? <laughs> Obviously, we are three dudes. I don't know if anyone wants to weigh in on this. I actually would love to hear about that. Like, I, yeah. I would too, just because like Adrian Paul is like a kind of a beautiful man. Like it's obvious. Like if someone says like classically Adrian, attractive, yeah, it's like if when people are like, oh, Adrian Paul, like sexiest man alive today. I'm like, all right, fine. Like I'm not going to necessarily weigh in, but sure. <laughs> like Christopher Lambert, I was like, really. Yeah, he has an interesting look to him. Yeah, well, which maybe that's to his credit. Yeah. Like he's like he's not like a traditional looking guy. He's like intense. 
Maybe that's what seals it. Yeah, he's got really interesting eyes, and that's actually the the byproduct of his like nearsightedness. His myopia, yeah, yeah. Uh, which makes him like almost blind essentially. Yeah. So I think he has kind of this odd gaze about him because he can't see anything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is fascinating. Yeah. The other weird thing is Lambert was almost going to be James Bond in the Living Daylights, which is insane to me. I can't yep. imagine where that series would have gone if down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be well. It would have been odd. Let's be nice, though. Also, he turned down the role of Martin Riggs in Lethal Weapon, yeah. which is insane to me. Again, imagine no. what that series would be like. Imagine what Mel Gibson's career would be like if he wasn't in that movie, because that yeah. was like another kind of height of his power. Kind of like that cemented him as a real action star. Mm. That could have been Lambert's Lambert smashing his uh, shoulder back into place. Yeah. Also, I, I was doing some research on what Kristoff's been up to more recently. So he's been like he had a long stint on NCIS. I think as the villain uh, yeah. of the show, which looked interesting. Uh, but then he's in a movie, and I have to see this. It's a 2013 movie called. Blue Bloodshot, and he plays the president of the United States. What? Because, of course, that makes sense. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. But it is about a vampire that goes undercover to take down some terrorists with the help of a rogue cop. What? Say that again? Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh... But it also features like more brown face than I am comfortable with, like because it uh, looks like which is any amount, any yeah, amount yeah. of brown face, <laughs> any amount of brown face, because it looks like they could not get, I guess, some like Middle Eastern people to play those parts, so they've maybe put some uh, brown makeup on some white people. Great. Does anyone get the impression like he's probably a lot of fun in real life? Yeah, he seems like a fun, kooky guy. Yeah, like it doesn't necessarily. That's not the character he's playing, but like just enough of like him bleeds through. It's like you know, this guy seems like he's fun to hang out with. Totally. And like apparently, him and Sean Connery. Like, we're best buds instantly Missed. upon meeting to film this thing. Yeah, like, and are still friends, I believe. So, yeah, Sean Connery's also in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Sean Connery's in this movie. I mean, there's too much to say about Sean Connery, and everyone knows who he is. Yep. I don't know what else to say. Well, I think He got a million bucks for seven days of shooting. I was looking for more info on this. I heard a rumor that he donated his proceedings from this movie to Scotland and that was like a like it was it had something to do with like this movie will make Scotland look good huh. and it does and this, it does yeah yeah um this movie like some of the just kind of natural beauty kind of shots they managed to get are pretty stunning i kept on thinking like oh i want to go to there <laughs> then clancy brown is the villain yeah uh, He's, I think, the standout performance in this movie. Yeah, he crushes it in this yeah. movie. And he probably has, like, kind of maybe the most illustrious career of anyone in this movie. Maybe well, aside from Sean Connery. Aside from Sean Connery. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, he did a... 241 acting credits on Ooh. IMDb. Yeah. But he's in a ton of... He does a ton of voice acting. He's also in the Coen Brothers movie that is dropping, basically, as we speak, Hail Caesar. Right, with yeah. Christophe Lambert, which yeah. is, I think, totally intentional casting by... Uh, the Coen brothers to have both of those people in this movie. Like, they, they clearly know the connection. I wonder if they share a scene. That would be kind of cool. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that movie. And then I guess maybe his most famous role at this point, isn't he Mr. Krabs in yeah. SpongeBob SquarePants? Like That might be his most that's guess, like, recognizable thing for... Who is? Like, Clancy Brown. Really? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. yeah so that... <laughs> That might be his biggest role at this point. Yeah. That blew my fucking mind. I don't know how, like, I didn't come across that. I, a- I always see him as Lex Luthor. Me too. That's yeah, like, yeah. that is maybe the quintessential Lex Luthor for me. It is. Yeah, he's, he's the good. best. This is in all, like, the Bruce Tim animated Superman stuff. I know he was, uh, like, he was apprehensive about doing this role because of the yeah. prosthetics. Uh, 
yeah. he had worked on the movie The Bride before this, which stars Sting. Uh, it's like a Frankenstein story. He was the monster, and he got like terrible allergic reactions to the makeup. So he didn't want to do this movie because it would require some prosthesis, uh, but they worked it out. And it-, and it looks great. Like, it does. He goes through a lot of the movie with this giant scar on his neck, and it is badass. So the tagline of this movie, there's three. Uh, there's one that is, he fought his first battle on the Skylish Hotlands Highlands in 1536. He will fight his greatest battle on the streets of New York City in 1986. His name is Connor McLeod. He is immortal. It's a long tagline. It is. Well, I guess that was what was on the poster. Although I think that's a lot for a poster, even. <laughs> well, I think it's that's better... a lot for a billboard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's better than the other ones, which are just wow. there can be only one. That's good. And don't lose your head. Uh. But, but of course, at this time, like there is no Highlander mythology. Like no one knows what Highlander is. So to see a poster that just says "Don't lose your head." I disagree. If you have two guys sword fighting, or it's apparent that two guys are going to fight, Don't Lose Your Head has independent meaning that then is paid off when you see the movie. That it- would be true. However, let me describe the original poster for you. <laughs> it uh, It is just a black and white photo of Christopher, Christopher Lambert's face uh, looking basically like a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> It looks. If, if anyone's ever seen the uh, now classic bad movie The Room with Tommy Wiseau and knows the cover or poster of that movie, that's what the Highlander poster looked like. Can you ever really trust anyone? <laughs> Is the tagline on The Room. Yeah, uh, it's an odd bit of marketing. Uh, so in that case, I actually like the he fought his first battle. Like that at least gives you a gateway into what this could be. Because uh, otherwise, it's like, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I don't know. Those seem like perfectly good taglines if it's obvious this is a movie with oh, sword totally. fighting in it. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening to the Highlander Rewatch podcast. If you're fans of this podcast, uh, make sure to follow us on Facebook. Just like Highlander Rewatched on Facebook. And we always are posting stuff uh, behind the scenes info, fun video compilations, um, just our general thoughts on Highlander. And of course, you get to interact with fans of the Highlander community worldwide, which is one of the coolest parts of Highlander fandom. So make sure to like Highlander Rewatched on Facebook. So, should we kick it off by talking about that opening scroll that we played in Bring In The Show? Sean Connery is kind of explaining to us, sort of, the premise of this movie. Right. And it, he allegedly recorded this in a bathroom? Yeah, he recorded this in a bathroom. It's uh, got this weird echo, like, hollow sound to it. It's very yeah. odd. And apparently, like, I guess when the producers heard this, they they heard it over the telephone, so they couldn't tell the sound quality was poor. So they were like, oh, sure, that's good. And it's like, it's got this weird kind of tinny quality to it yeah uh which is funny um but i think this opening kind of crawl i guess you could call it, it doesn't really crawl anywhere but opening uh, card uh does a pretty good job kyle i know you you always ragged on the series opening sequence like how do you think this compares to that i give this one more of a pass again i don't think it's necessarily necessarily clear like compare it to like the ultimate title card which is the opening crawl in the first Star Wars movie. That sets it up. Like, you know what's going on. Here, though, there are a bunch of, like, weird magical concepts. Like, it's not a fact-based thing. Like, they're (laughs) dropping vocabulary that you need for this movie. Like, they use the term gathering. They use the... It's not clear at all what this is about. And the exposition of that unfolds so slowly over the course of the movie. Like, you don't even know that there's a prize or a battle... In this, until about halfway through the movie. That's true. Like, this expo- exposition in this movie comes in drips and drabs. Yeah. And I feel like this title card was a way to, like, 
get the ball rolling a little bit, mm. and I think it just kind of adds to the confusion. Also, at one point, there's an ellipsis with, like, six periods. Yes, uh, <laughs> so many dots. And I don't know why they chose to do that, but I laughed that loud when I saw it. It could also be that I believe this was also supposed to be temporary. Yeah, like, these, these cards were just made as, like, placeholders, and then the producers or whoever were like, oh, yeah, these are cool. Because it's red, I guess. Yeah, I don't Russell McKay did not like them. Like, yeah. it's like they're, they weren't supposed to be red. They were supposed to maybe be a little more stylized or something. But yeah, this was not the final product. But I guess they probably ran out of time or money and just left them there. Yeah, it's a little. Or, yeah, or the producers liked them enough. To yeah, me. it's a little odd. And then there's also this kind of fourth wall breaking element to it that I don't understand. Like Sean Connery is literally talking to you, the That's audience. True. No one's ever known that we were among you until now. But right. that narrative style never comes back. Like you are never addressed as the audience again. Right. And that's odd. So I don't know. I think this could have been tighter actually revealed more information or just said like fuck it and make it completely thematic in a certain way Mm -hmm. but instead it like creates this weird hybrid where it's like you're supposed to be getting information from this but none of it pays off until like an hour later (laughs) right and that's odd that's a very strange i did want to bring one thing up uh which is that there's there's a lot of versions of this movie so i think we should just mention like how we watched it because i think that's kind of important uh so I'll, i'll start off i watched it a couple times to prepare for the podcast um, so I watched it on, let's see, the two DVD versions I have, which is one was the original, like, 10th anniversary uh, version, uh, which I think is a transfer from the Laserdisc. Then I watched the Immortal version, which I think is a different, uh, which actually I'm positive is a different print. Uh, and then also the Blu-ray version, which is, I believe, the same print as that Immortal edition. So there's, like, a number of different things floating out there. And these are all the, I guess, uh, director's cut. Um, there's no way to get, I think, the original theatrical version anymore. So how'd you guys watch it? Uh, I watched it on Hulu. If my understanding of this cor- is correct, it is just the director's cut again. Right. I know from talking to you, mostly, uh, that the original cut that you would have seen from the Laserdisc has a lot of sound issues. That's was, what I found, yeah. There was nothing like that in the version that's up on Hulu. Um, it sounds great. Also, if you want to watch this movie, go watch it on Hulu. Yeah. I mean, Eamon, how did you see this? Also on Hulu? Also Hulu, yes. Okay. Oh, here's also another interesting thing that I noticed when I was watching the different versions. Did your version say Canon Films at the beginning? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's really interesting. So uh, when you watch the original Laserdisc version, it does not say Canon Films. Uh, Hmm. And so... The first cut I watched was the Blu-ray, and I was like, Canon Films? I don't remember this being produced by them. Yeah, we should talk about Canon Films yeah, so for if, a minute. If you don't know who Canon Films are, it was this kind of notorious Hollywood studio run by these two guys from Israel uh, that would just kind of like take like a, a hot idea or a trend and just churn out a movie for as cheap as possible. And every once in a while, they'd kind of hit on gold and make some money. Uh, but it was really kind of just like a cash grab. Like these are like D level movies. Uh, is, we're talking Masters of the Universe, Superman, Superman Four. Do they do over the top? Yes, over the top. Yeah. Um, a lot of kind of classic bad eighties movies. Um, that they they like. Uh, oh, all the uh, Death Proof. Not right. Death Proof. Excuse me. Um, Death Wish. Death, Death Wish. Wish. Yeah, Charles uh, Bronson. Charles yeah. Bronson movies. Which I don't think they did. They do the first no, one. No, not the new. first one. They yes, did the yes. sequels. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they also kind of launched Chuck Norris's career with a bunch of kind of shoot 'em up. Oh, the Delta action. Force. Yeah, the Delta Force yeah. movies. Um, so. 
definitely watch their catalog. It's totally fun. And watch the documentary about them on Netflix. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Electric yeah. Boogaloo, which yeah. is another one of their movies. So when I saw this, this their their logo come up, I was like, oh my god, like they made this movie? Like, this is crazy. Um, but then I was checking out the other cut, the Laserdisc version, and their logo does not appear. So I was like, wait, what's going on? Like, uh, so it's because of the prints they used, and I guess they just didn't take off the Canon Films logo. So after Highlander was released in the, the, the movies, it was actually produced by a UK company called EMI Productions, and they funded basically the whole movie. Hmm. However, a week after the movie came out, I don't know if the movie actually kind of bankrupted them because it didn't do too well in the US, they sold all their holdings to this guy, Alan Bond, in April of 86. And then he, in turn, like a week or two later, sold all of it to Canon. So that laser disc, I believe, is re- that print is released under the Canon umbrella because it was before they went bankrupt. Ah. So then that was then in turn bought by, I guess, what Republic Pictures, and like it ends up being like kind of a subsidiary of NBC now, like Studio Canal, I think is hmm. the logo on it now. Yeah. Um, but they, uh, I guess, the Blu-ray print, I think, still has the Canon Films logo on it because I think that's the film print they use for the transfer. So I thought that was interesting. So it is not a canon film, which I was relieved to do. That was, like, shocking. When I saw it came up, come up, I was like, whoa. <laughs> Compared to that catalog, this is, like, Oscar-worthy right. <laughs> material. Tell me, He-Man, is the loneliness of evil as lonely as the loneliness of good? <laughs> Actual quote from canon films. Ah, Skeletor. So, after this opening title card, the music kicks in. Yeah. Which is awesome. So, yeah. it's Queen, Princes of the Universe, which is, I guess, the theme song, as it were, to Highlander. Yes, and becomes the opening theme to Highlander the show. Right. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's listen to a clip um, with Queen guitarist, it's uh, Brian May, and the bass player, John Deacon, talk about how they got involved in the making of Highlander. We actually said no, because um, we just didn't want to be... Uh, we wanted a rest, to be honest. And then we saw about 20 minutes cut of this Highlander film and thought, great, that's, that's us. Now, we, we had the scripts and we went to see very, you know, quite a lot of the footage that they got already. And then we all went away and all tried to write songs for various bits. So that's how they kind of got started, which is interesting. We'll, we'll talk more about the music as we get to the, the different cues. Uh, but I think Princess of the Universe is a great song, and it gets used, it basically is the theme song of the franchise. It's used in most of the iterations of it. Yeah, and it, it really kind of gets you pumped to watch this movie. It's, yeah. a, it's a good lead-in. Super pumped. When it came on, I was just like, yeah. I know, it's yeah. fucking awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, I thought the font choice of Highlander was interesting. Like, we brought this up when we talked about the, the series a little bit. Like, this font is not what was the, like, marketing font and what we now know of as, I guess, the Highlander movie font, which is that, like, it's kind of got, like, an electric N. Right. I thought it was just odd that it's like, oh, that's not in the movie. Like, again, I guess because these are placeholders that they didn't use that font. And then also I noticed on, like, the DVD boxes, those are different, too. Like, the 10th anniversary uh, Laserdisc thing has a completely different font that is not the series, not the movie, not this thing. Like, it's a it's a whole new thing. Uh, Typeface rewatched. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. The, the font <laughs> thing, like, bugs me from, like, a marketing standpoint. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's good to have, like, a logo, like, an <laughs> <Yeah>. consistent <laughs> thing for your movie. Like, 
Helvetica rewatched. Yeah, that's right. I mean, imagine if Star Wars just changed the length of the yeah. iconic logo yeah. every single movie. That is a fair point. Okay. <laughs> so we're opening at Madison Square Garden. There's an interesting wrestling match in which you're going to see a guy who looks who's wearing a sequined robe with just the battle flag of Northern Virginia on it, the Confederate flag, as yep. it's kind of colloquially called inaccurately. And he just he looks like the big bad dog. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the dog. So I think this is the the fabulous Freebirds. Yeah, the fabulous Freebirds. I couldn't find his name on it. He's the fabulous Freebird. And these are real wrestlers, right? Yeah, this is all like real. Yeah, it's all real. It's all real (laughs) wrestling. Yeah. (laughs) And this dude is like lecherous. He's like taking off his confederate flag robe and then it cuts to this creepy little girl like trying to touch her tongue to her nose and the cut between the two of them is weird <laughs> so this was supposed to be uh, it's a hockey it's supposed a to be a hockey, hockey match, a hockey match yeah. in the original script but the nhl would not allow them to film because the entire point of this scene is like about violent like right amped up violence of it so that's all they were going to be showing for the hockey match was how violent it was and the nhl was like no thanks uh, so they do a wrestling one, which I think is fun. Like, I don't mind the wrestling opening, no. I suppose. I think the hockey, their original idea, I think, is better. I think hockey, because it's, so organi- it's so much more organized. Yeah. Uh, and you've got, like, teams fighting. It's, like, a better analogy, but it still works. It's yeah. cool. Yeah. There's an amazing shot over this whole arena, and they packed this fucking place, like, they packed it. It's, it's like an aerial shot, so it goes over the crowd, over the ring, and then it zooms into this one mass of cheering people, and there's one dude there who's not participating in this fervor. And yeah, it's a it's a really cool shot. It actually was invented by the guy who invented the Steadicam. Oh, trivia. <laughs> uh, Garrett Brown. Uh, he invented it for the movie Bound for Glory, starring David Carradine, uh, which is about Woody Guthrie and the Dust Bowl. Huh. Yeah, but yeah, this is kind of one of his uh, achievements. Not as famous as the city camp. Yeah. Also, the, the shot of Connor is great. Also, he's awesome. like everyone is like in a mad fervor, and yeah. he's like got this death stare on. And they do something weird with the lighting. He's like yeah. literally shrouded in darkness. Yeah, except for like his eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's really cool the way th- I think this whole opening scene. It's is, amazing. Like, pretty, this is a, a really nice opening to a movie. It's yeah. captivating. It's like who's this guy? What what's his deal? And Lambert does do that look really. well well and then like the interstitial cuts to like the battlefield i think work really well like this is a gripping opening yeah so yeah it's cutting back and forth between wrestling and then we're seeing like cuts of like clansmen fighting fighting. yeah so not knowing what this movie is about like i was trying to put my ancient scottish clansmen not racist in the I was trying to put myself in the headspace of like not knowing anything about this, and it's like, yeah, this would be confusing. I think in a not confusing, but like interesting in a good way. It's like because you see these two like juxtaposed images that obviously have to do with violence, and it's like, oh, what's going on here? Like we've got these kind of two battles going on, and then so Lambert ends up kind of just getting up and leaving. Again, we're not sure what's going on. As we find out later, Connor, this character, is immortal, so he gets up and leaves the wrestling match. I, I had some kind of questions about this. I was curious, like, why did he leave? Like, is he having a PTSD? That was my interpretation, is that he's like, I can't deal with this anymore. Like, because he seems, like, completely on edge. Because, like, this the, the this fan behind him, like, grabs his shoulder, and he, like, right. he snaps over to him. Like, it's like he's getting taken out of a trance. And I kind of had this idea that this was, like, he was having these flashbacks watching this wrestling match and it was not good for him and so he was like i'm out of here yeah he's getting like grabbed by this guy who looks like harry potter's uncle in (laughs) the harry potter movies rest in peace (laughs) oh yeah uh (laughs) 
Oh, one of the Dursleys? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He does look like a Dursley. <laughs> He's but. just, like, shouting at him, like, hey, you see that? What a great fight. <laughs> yeah, ah. you're going to kill him. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, no, that is an interesting interpretation of why he leaves. I thought he was getting, if you had knowledge of it, it's like he's getting the immortal Spidey sense, which works a little differently in this movie. Right. But I thought that was why he gets up to go. But it makes a lot of sense that he's just, like, sick of violence and death. And, oh, those, and that also made me question, why is he there in the first place? Right. <laughs> like, why did he yeah. go? Like, well, he clearly went there to meet this guy. I like, don't know about that. I don't think so. I am 100% sure of that. Okay, so let's, 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 get, let's move on, I guess, to the, to the next scene. Oh, and also we should mention that these, these like, cuts of the Scottish Highlands are not present in the American version. Oh, really? What? No. Like these these very quick flashbacks, like oh, that's what that's part of what makes this scene so awesome. Like yeah. that, that shot we talked about is great, but yeah. that's what sells this whole thing. Totally. That's insane, isn't that, that insane? Like yeah. Uh, so uh, we'll get into actually. Let, let's just preface this right now. So we're going to be talking about like essentially two cuts of this movie. There is the director's cut, which for all intents and purposes is the European or international release, and then there's the American cut of the movie. And so if you're wondering why there's an American cut. It's because this production company, EMI, they controlled all the international releases for Highlander. However, the U.S. release was purchased by 20th Century Fox. So Fox, as the distributor, had issues with some parts of the movie, and so they cut the movie up. So that's why there's two cuts. And it also might explain why this movie got an interesting reaction from critics and moviegoers. But we'll get into that later. Uh, Hmm. So yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about, is the 20th Century Fox cut is the U.S. version. Well, alternate interpretation that we'll find about later find out about later is maybe he's just going down to the garage to get a blowjob it's <laughs> yeah. cruising for some ass <laughs> Hey, rewatchers out there, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, and while you're at it, write us a five star review. We really appreciate it. Thanks from all your rewatchers, Kyle, Eamon, and Keith. Uh, so, Connor goes downstairs to the parking garage, which was actually a, a vegetable. Like a produce market in London? It looks a lot like a garage. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. they, really, they did like, a great tricked, job. Yeah, they really yeah. tricked it out. And I guess the reason was they couldn't find a parking garage that had a high enough ceiling to be able to do, like, the stunts. And, like, you know, I mean, parking garages have notoriously low ceilings. especially right. in America. And poor lighting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they, they, like, tricked out a vegetable stand. And this whole thing took, uh, like, a week to shoot, which is crazy. Like, yeah. They spent a lot of time on this fight scene. And I guess it shows. It is pretty, like, complicated. Like, Oh, it's very... Uh, there's a lot yeah. of cuts. Actually, apparently, at the time of the DVD recording of the director's commentary, this scene had the most cuts in a reel. Like, they held, held the record for cuts per reel. So... I thought that was huh. impressive. Yeah. Huh. Which is obviously a lot more complicated back then when you had to actually like get out your scissors and snip film yeah. as opposed to like now, cuts are fast and furious. Right. But. And again, we should mention that, yeah, uh, Mulcahy was a music video director. So that leads to like, I mean, music videos are fast paced. Like, right. Uh, this, this, this movie does have all those sort of music video styles to it. So uh, Connor's walking in this parking lot and uh, suddenly Here's a man the- appears behind him. And goes, Macau! In and silver aviator glasses. Yeah, this guy looks like Donald Trump to me. Yes, he looks yeah. like, <laughs> my he's note so is that, not threatening. Yeah. My note is he looks like Michael McKeon if he were in the movie <laughs> Top Gun. <laughs> 
That's good. He's, he's wearing yeah. a suit with aviator glasses, and he kind of looks like not a young Michael McKean, but like a middle-aged Michael McKean. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but apparently he's actually the stunt director for this movie. Wow. Hmm. And he was the stand-in for Sean Connery in his uh, stunts, oh. which was interesting. But here's Kyle. You mentioned that he, you think he's going down there to meet this guy. Yes, absolutely. I don't think so, because when this guy comes out and says, McLeod, uh, Connor says, wait. That, that led me to believe, like, I'm, I don't want to fight you. I'm not here for you. I, was thinking, I don't think he's there for it. I paused on this and thought a lot about that line. I am less inclined to think it means that. I don't know what. <laughs> let me put it with. Let me put it this way: throughout this movie, we really don't ever see Connor shy away from violence ever anywhere in this movie. Essentially, insofar as he, he's certainly not protesting that hard. The word I don't think we should read too much into the word "wait." I guess he just says "wait," <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and then it's like time to sword fight. Again, he looks so utterly bored. Like, why is he going to a wrestling match? He d- he looks like he's enjoying this not at all. Right. He even complains about it later in the movie. Hmm. So I think that it was somehow arranged, or they both knew that one another would... Would be there? Would be there. Because why is he going down to this parking garage at that exact moment? Like To get this- his car. This other guy just happened to know... He also brought his sword with him. Did this other guy just happen to know, oh yeah, McLeod's such a wrestling fanatic that he's going to be there? I don't know. It seems arranged to me. Or like they both are aware of this. Also, the fact that in this version, the gathering seems to have this more magical quality where like they are drawn to places for the purposes of fighting. Mm -hmm. It could even just be that. That there's like this factor forcing them to fight. Because it also seems like in this movie, fights are, like, preordained. Like, the the battle... We can talk about this more when the other fight scenes come up. But the environment is almost reacting to the fights before they're over, if that makes sense. Like, there are storms that are going on as they fight. Like, the storms are interacting with them this is mm, true. as right. they are fighting. It's like, there's, like, this magical confluence when they're going to fight. Also, side note, what the fuck is this guy's name? Vasil. Yeah, I couldn't figure it out. I, I, I listened to it, it three times. Yeah. I came up with Vasil, Vassal, <laughs> Vassini. I am waiting for Vassini. Yeah. <laughs> the Seal. I like to think he's the Seal. Yeah. That's his code name. I don't know. <laughs> so they, they, I guess, have a fight, which opens with, of course, the most deadly move, a coat throw. The That's right. It, yeah, the patented coat throw. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it's like Carlos Zandaro in... <laughs> Uh, saving Grace. Yeah. You know, because of the way he highlights the jacket, the jacket's going to be part of this. Uh, so I think this is shot really, like, interestingly. Like, and actually, as, as a thing that we'll see, like, throughout most of the movie, like, Mulcahy shoots a lot of stuff, like, low. Yeah. He doesn't shoot waist up. Like, he's kind of always, like, just below your waist. So you always see, like, a lot of the ceiling. Like, it gives this kind of odd, grand feel to things. Like, there's a lot of. Just a lot of ceiling and sky in his shots, which is kind of interesting. Um, and this this scene has a lot of ambiance. Like, as you said, Kyle, like, the environment tends to react. So, like, the lights are flick. Like, when they get together, like, suddenly the lights start, like, freaking out and stuff. Which right. It's cool. Yeah. Um, Throughout this movie, in a way that's not apparent in the show, it's very clear there's, like, magic afoot. Oh, yeah. And they use the line, it's a kind of magic, like, three times in this movie or four. Mm-hmm. But there's a much stronger mystical element to this whole thing. Yeah, I, I was yeah. even kind of interpreting it as, like, because anytime they seem to be together, there's, like, electricity. I was like, oh, is, like, is there even, like, a tangible, like, magnetism drawing them? Like, they're actually being pulled together by, like, this electrical force or something. Yeah. Which I thought was a fun thing. Yeah, this, yeah, this is a really cool fight. It's exciting. They, they, it's, it's varied. They do a lot. 
Like there's one awesome scene where his aviators get smacked off his head and you see him retreating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which if you were wondering why he's wearing aviators indoors, it was so they could get that shot. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a cool shot. Yeah. But literally you're in a parking garage. Like you probably can't see if you're wearing aviators. (laughs) (laughs) Extremely dark parking lot. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, the the fight is really cool. Um, I want to mention the sound design here because it's the first time you really get a feel for what the swords sound like. I I keep going back and forth whether I I'm into it or not. Like I, it's really over the top, and I like that about it. Like it's it's almost like musical the the, the way the swords clash together. Mm-hmm. It's like percussive, and yeah. it like the the it like reverberates. Yeah, it's like it, whooshing. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it doesn't sound real. It sounds like they're like effects for like a video game. But I think this is where I had a, a problem with it. It's like I like that they're over the top, but I don't like that they're not the greatest. Like it feels like a video game. Like there's four sound cues mm-hmm. and we're just going to keep recycling them over and over and like the edits on them aren't always like super clean. Mm. Uh so I just kind of I felt like it it wasn't as polished as it could have been. Um or the sounds they used just weren't uh, the best sounds, uh, but I, I like the idea that they're like it's, it's got this like really grand quality to it. Yeah, well, also just to, just mirroring that is the way the sparks and electricity works with their swords. Yeah. So this is something that carries over into the show a little bit, but it's like amped up to ten in the movie. Their swords are all hooked up to car batteries, basically. So right. every time they encounter something else that's metal, they spark like right. crazy. Yeah. Like at one point, Connor's sword is just kind of resting on a car, and it's just going like. the entire time but it's like again adds this sort of like magical component to this thing like they're not just two dudes with swords fighting like there is a supernatural component even permeating like their normal fight sequence that's going on right because every time it happens like there's sparks like nuts and it's pretty cool the sparks are cool like yeah it's fun a lot better than the tv show yeah i think yeah well it's a big movie so (laughs) Uh, so and they're running on cars and stuff. Yeah, they're like, like fun. Yeah, honestly. they're running after each other on the hoods of the cars, and that's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, so Connor ends up losing his sword at one point. It gets yep. kicked under a car, and so he fights with a pipe. Yep. Which I thought that was cool. Yeah. Uh, this is the first for first of two times where three three, three, three times, times. Con- Connor fights with a pipe. <laughs> he is. This is the true pipe man begins. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> uh, so then we are introduced to one of the most absurd things to happen in this fight scene. I love it. Facile flips away. Yeah. He's just backflipping. Just a man in a three-piece backflipping. Yep. Like, but for no reason. Like, this isn't like he's dodging an attack or backflipping. I don't know why he's doing it. Like, Connor is hiding behind a car. Yeah. Appears over the hood. Only to see Fazil doing dozens of backflips. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't care. I love this show. I love it, too. It, I don't know it's why. It's, it's very silly. It's but ridiculous. <laughs> it reminded uh, me of Catwoman and Batman Returns. Yes. Like, did Burton just rip that off? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this was another thing that was cut from the U.S. version. Oh. They were, like, no huh. backflips. So this cut, this this fight was trimmed down for the uh, the Fox release. I guess if you're going to cut something, cut the backflips. Yeah. yeah. It adds to his character, though. I'm just like, this is just this weird-looking aviator dude who can also do backflips. Like, yeah. like we know nothing about this guy. Yeah. We know Which, nothing we should... about anything, right? Yeah. yeah. We, we know yeah. a guy, like, we've hear, heard the opening title that there's immortals. Yeah. We don't know that they have to fight each other, or do we? Like, we tra- fight to the last. Oh, we fight to the yeah. last. And then so... Which still, that's an unclear sentence. Yep. Right. Uh, so, I guess we presume these two people are immortal because of that sentence. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. It's like, this is all, they know each other, right? Yeah. He says they, he, they know each other's names and not at this point, 
Christopher Lambert is operating under the name Russell Nash. He's like, nah, he doesn't go Nash. He says McLeod. Like, right. he knows his real name. Yeah, exactly. It's confusing to know what's going on right here. But that's like a little bit of character building. I feel like I know more about this guy because he's the kind of guy who backflips during a fight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I actually appreciate, like, this. that's something this movie does pretty well is it just gives you little tidbits of stuff. And I feel like that's an older thing that movies yeah. do, which I like. And it's, it's not really that apparent in movies anymore. Like... There's this kind of, like, Christopher Nolan sort of, like, everything has to pay off very specific. Like, it's... Right. Like, we, we've actually, I think, delved into, like, a new version of, like, formulaic filmmaking. Like, I don't want to get into all that. <laughs> but, uh, like, movies movies have to have these very specific setups and payoffs, and it's, it's very structured. And there's, like, all these little tidbits. Like, this guy backflips, and it's like, why? It's like, I don't know, but, like, that's okay. Like, there's a lot of things in this movie We're- that are just like, huh, I wonder what that's about. Like, there's, there's a story we don't hear about. Star Wars is the same way. I I feel like like that's a, a, another older movie that just has like things thrown about that are interesting. They're building I, a I, world. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you've said something that's accurate. I don't know that this is an example of it. Oh, okay. Uh, I agree that like the the whole introduction payoff thing is way stronger now than it ever was, and there are like a lot more dangling threads in older movies. I don't know that this guy backflipping is a significant it's, enough no, part. No, no, but there's other parts of this movie that I think are are just kind of there, dangling yeah. threads that you, you have a question about. There's a there's a whole story that you don't know about. Yeah. So should we talk about how this this fight ends? Sure. It's odd. <laughs> So, Connor just, like, pops out behind a pole. I guess, like, they spar for just a second. He gets rid of Fazil's sword. And then he just lops his head off. Yep. And, again, I was trying to put myself in the mindset of... Because, again, this opening title card has not told you how they can die at all. Like, it just says we fight to the last. Right. I guess you could assume even that, like, well, you're immortal unless someone shoots you. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you never die naturally, but you could die. Uh, anyway, it was just like, oh, I guess there's beheadings in this movie. Like, right away. Yeah. Like, and, like, this shit is cold-blooded. Oh, just, yeah. Just tapping into what you said where he just goes, wait. Like, yeah. <laughs> at the beginning of this fight, he disarms him, no hesitation, cuts his head off. Yeah. yeah. Like, he's not like, hey, you've got one chance to walk away. There's no dialogue. We've heard the main character of this movie say two words. Yeah, a name say, and wait. He yeah. said, Fasil? Fasini? Fasin? Salami? <laughs> he says one word, and then he says, wait. And that's it. And then he cuts this man's head off. Yeah. Wordlessly. Yeah. So, at this point in the movie, I have no sense that he's, like, reluctant or doesn't want to fight this guy. And I suppose we also don't even know if he's the hero of the movie or not. Yeah. We, we also could be being introduced to the villain. He could be a bad movie. guy. He could be yeah. the villain of the movie that we see first. Also, to be clear, I'm going to stake this position out later. He is not a hero. <laughs> I'm, I'm finding that flag now, and we can revisit it whenever you care to. Sure. everybody this might be the first time that a rewatch podcast you've listened to uh if it is and you like what you hear just go on itunes or whatever podcasting app you're using and click on the subscribe button that's right highlander rewatch has brand new content each and every week i think it's cool when he cuts his head off how his sword gets like fucking stuck in the pillar right like i was like that's awesome it like, is awesome how fucking sharp is that sword though yeah right? yeah um again it's like so over the top like, yeah and also i mean maybe it's a maybe it's also a reflection of how we view movies today like i think we view them a little more ironically like we're like well that could never happen and like you know what i mean yeah. like, i think we, we like i think moviegoers are accustomed to 
dissecting movies a little bit more, which is, I think, maybe... Which is why we do this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's the premise of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, which also, I think, is maybe a reason why movies have gotten a little formulaic with, like, things have to be very carefully set up and paid off, because if we don't, the audience will just call it, like, we call out stuff right away. As like, oh, that's bullshit, that would never happen. Like, it has to be kind of, like, disguised pretty well if they're going to pull some shit. Uh, but I feel like, yeah, these these older movies are just like, no, it's fun. Like, it's a movie. Like, the sword gets stuck in the concrete. Like, fun. Like, that's that's so over the top and crazy. Like, also, it works within the rules of this movie. Totally. Yeah. Like, within the rules of this movie, that sword could have cut that pillar in half. Yeah. Like, yeah, within totally. the confines of this movie. Totally. So, yeah. like, I don't know. I had no problem buying into those parts of the logic of this movie. Like, if, if these fights are magic, fine. <laughs> it's a, more power to it, honestly. Another interesting point that I just thought of, Connor does not have a sheath for his sword, much like Duncan. No. He does. I mean, Ramirez does. He gets a oh, sword right. from Ramirez, yeah. and Ramirez has the sheath. I think it's just, like, practically speaking, the way they chose to show it. We know a sheath exists. It's not like <laughs> yeah. it's not like in season one of Highlander where he literally has no sheath, and he's walking around with an exposed sword all the time. Right. Like, right. Then we get to see our first, what we will call a quickening, because I had some questions of, is this the quickening Oh, yeah. Because mm. they use that terminology very differently in this uh, movie. Yeah. Odd. Uh, yeah. That's a big question mark. <laughs> yep. uh, so... Again, if you're if you followed the podcast and have heard our season one, we've the quickening in the the television series Highlander after they cut off a head. This immortal Duncan McLeod usually is struck by lightning and has like this crazy immortal orgasm. Yeah, and that's the quickening. He gets the power from the other person. In this, it's it's very different the way it looks, and I don't know. It's much more kind of ethereal. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. one component of it. Also, there's this weird like magnetic lifting that happens where like the bodies are like kind of lifted off the ground, and there is this. And electric- the electricity is actually like emitted from the body, like yeah. whereas in the TV show, like it's it's coming from the sky. Yeah, uh, yeah. So like, yeah, Fasil's body like starts to raise and like electricity is like escaping from it and then all the cars are going crazy and exploding and shit like which the quickenings in this insofar as these are the quickenings are rad they're amazing yeah i I think they're cool though i think profound confusion is probably the appropriate response to someone seeing this for the first time but like now with the context of more highlander it's awesome Mm -hmm. yeah like it's much more individual in a certain sense, like there's a lot more character to each of these, yeah, and they are way more orgasmic. Like we've we've joked about how like they're these immortal orgasms. Just to break this down, how much like orgasms this is, like straight up jizzing. <laughs> 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 Sorry, kids. <laughs> I mean, this is so sexual, yeah, right. So. Connor is bathed in light. He literally groans and, like, makes this agonized expression with his face. There's, these cars are turning on, revving forward and splooging oil everywhere. Yeah. There's a hose that yeah, is hose. filling up yeah. with water and literally becoming engorged. And, <laughs> like, the cars all surge forward and then their glass explodes. Yeah. Like, this is so Very sexual. sexual. Like... It's really apparent, even more so than the jokes in the movies. Right. Immortal orgasm. So <laughs> I want to I want to bring up two things here. So there's, I would say, a couple... There's, I mean, you can read a movie any different way. There's a couple different ways to, like, interpret the movie. Uh, one version is just that this is a fantasy, 
and it's about people that sword fight, and you know, there's the game, the prize, all this stuff. But there's two other interpretations, and this is the first instance where I'm gonna I'm gonna lay the seeds for this now, and I'm gonna bring it up every time it comes up as just interesting things to think about. Uh, I'm not saying that these are correct or this is the intent of the movie, but it's something to think about. Uh, so, Kyle, as you said, there's the sexual thing going on. I completely agree. This, the, 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 the quickenings are definitely sexual in some way. Also, we should mention what quickening is. Uh, so the quickening is a medical term that's for when the heartbeat, like a mother feels the heartbeat of a baby in her. So some people, like, it used to be described as, like, the first point of life. So it, it's got this kind of, like, very interesting kind of, like, life force sort of quality to it. Um, so anyway, this is definitely very sexual, especially with the hose, uh, which is weird because that's not a machine, like, powered by electricity. Like, that is just a hose exploding. Yeah, but, yeah. like, this is, like, it's affecting mechanical things. Yeah. Like, it's not just, like, that there's this electricity going on and it's causing these things. Like, someone, somewhere a pipe was loosened yeah. <laughs> and water was allowed to escape. Right. Like, uh, so... One way to interpret this movie is there is a lot of maybe homoerotic imagery going on. And I'm just going to note that Russell Mulcahy is gay. And so I kind of wonder if any of that kind of bleeds through to this because he is he has not shied away from that before. Uh, he, has, he directed Billy Joel's Allentown. And I was actually just reading the other day an interview with Billy Joel, who had not seen that video in a while, and he had just rewatched it, and he was like, yeah, he's like, that might be the gayest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, it is, and, and then the, the, this interviewer uh, interviewed Russell about the video, and he was like, oh yeah, he's like, I intentionally like put as much homoerotic imagery into the video as I could. Like, it is mostly half-naked men turning knobs, showering, working out, like, it's it's like really homoerotic. So, I'm just going to plant the seeds here that there is a sexual thing, like, th- that this movie could be interpreted as kind of a sexual metaphor for homosexuality. Interesting. It's interesting. The other thing I want to bring up is uh, this is being an interesting uh, religious allegory. Uh, so, when Connor has the quickening, he spreads his arms wide. There's a light from above. Uh, and so his arms are out like a cross. So there's a lot of, like, Christian symbology, I guess you would say, in this movie, uh, which is interesting. So I'm just going to throw that out there right now, and I'm going to keep bringing it up every time it comes up as just interesting ways to look at this movie. Hmm. Well, it helps that at this point in the Highlander mythos, we are never made aware of a female immortal, ever. Yeah. It's strictly Only- a thing between guys. Mm-hmm. And they numerous times penetrate each other with their swords. No, numerous times. Yeah, just saying it. Mm. But all right, let's keep that alive. So after this fight, um, the main character, who we we don't know anything about yet, Trenchcoat Man, he still no zero 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 about him. He stuffs his sword into like a uh, like a a metal grate. That's yeah. He hears sirens and he's like, uh oh. Yeah. Um, So he ditches the sword. Yeah. And he runs off. And then mm-hmm. the camera pans up, and it's this really awesome transition where it goes kind of through the ceiling of the garage. And on the other side, it is the Scottish Highlands. Yep. Um, this is awesome. I think this it's, is, this is a, I think, a fantastic opening to a movie. This is so good. Like, yeah. I'm into it. It's, it's great. profoundly confusing. Yeah. <laughs> but it's excellent. Like, it's visually arresting. It's really cool. I'm, like, very into it. I think, like, just a touch more information, and this would be perfect. Yeah. Instead, it's, like, visually awesome, but I could see a lot of people without our... And having a background in Highlander, I don't need it. Like, it's perfect kind of the way it is if you know all this shit, but none of it existed at that point. Right. So, I feel like if you're a completely blank slate, this might be a little 
too unclear. Right. Especially without, in the U.S. cut, without those little flashes, the PTSD flashes in the beginning, knowing that there's going to be any of this and that these things are related. Because those flashes are what relates the two. Mm -hmm. this, This is just like a flashback. This could be unrelated, I suppose. But when you have the juxtaposed images at the wrestling match, it's like that's what tells you that th- these two things are connected. But without those, it's like, what is happening? Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't think I remembered how well shot and kind of executed a lot of the technical aspects of this movie were. And that's something I got a, like a pretty hearty appreciation for these last two times. Yeah, sure. I but I also don't think I had ever stopped and think, tried to think about it from a position of someone with no information before. And yeah. I think that's something that's like a little confusing. So after this fight, the main character, who we, we don't know anything about yet. Zero. Zero. Zero about him. He yep. stuffs his sword into like a, uh, like a, a metal grate. That's yeah, like he bottom. hears sirens and he's like, uh-oh. Yeah. Um, so he ditches the sword yeah. and he runs off. And then mm-hmm. the camera pans up. Up, and it's this really awesome transition where it goes kind of through the ceiling of the garage. On the other side, it is the Scottish Highlands. Yep, um, this is awesome. I think this it's, is this is a, I think a fantastic opening to a movie. This is so good. Like it's visually arresting. It's really cool. I'm like very into it. I think I remembered how well shot and kind of executed a lot of the technical aspects of this movie were. And that's something I got a, like a pretty hearty appreciation for these last two times. Yeah, sure. I but I also don't think I had ever stopped and think tried to think about it from a position of someone with no information before. And yeah. I think that's something that's like a little confusing. So we're in 1536 in Scotland. So this is on location. Uh, much like the, the TV show, we talked a lot about when the TV show moves from like Vancouver or Seacouver in the show to Paris, like it gets a lot better. Like I yeah. All this Scotland, like, on-location stuff is fantastic. It's, like, the costuming is great. Like, mm-hmm. the, the extras all look awesome. Yeah. Um, if, if they weren't shooting on-location, if these were sets or something, like, I don't think this movie would have nearly the impact that it does. Like, these flashbacks really add, I think, a lot of depth to it. But. Yeah. Yeah. And to speak to what you said about the Madison Square Garden shots, like, they pack these shots. Yeah. Like, they yeah. do not skimp on extras. Like, no. a lot of movies... Especially a kind of independent movie like this would feel kind of empty a lot of times. Yeah. Not a thing that this movie yeah. suffers from. Like, like, things are packed, shots are dense. Is right. right. Especially because it's not a real wrestling match. That's the thing that's great. Like, it's not like they just brought the camera crew and were like, let's get some pickup shots here yeah. of, like, a real crowd. Like, they brought all these people are there for this movie, like, which is really cool. Yeah, which, if these were real wrestling fans, I'd be especially terrified. But. Yeah, great extras in that wrestling thing. I know we're going backwards a little bit, but, like, the one dude with, like, the hockey mask that had, like, paint on it and shit, it was really good. So this is filmed at a real castle in Scotland. Uh, and speaking of the extras, apparently a lot of them were, I think, students at the University of Edinburgh. Huh. Oh, uh, and I guess they were great extras because since they were young students, they all had long hair. Ah, that's uh, so, awesome. And like oh, that's perfect. And stuff. So yeah. they, were, they were able to be used. And I think they got yeah. paid like 10 bucks a day nice. to be there. And a lot of scotch. Uh, Ooh. So, yeah. That sounds good. So we're we are, uh, watching this, this line of uh, Scotsmen chanting, McLeod! And we know our hero's name is McLeod, so if you're paying attention, maybe you make that connection. Yeah, Why which not? also, we now get to hear the fourth and fifth words from <laughs> yeah. Christopher Lambert, which are the words mcleod yep. <laughs> uh, and we get like this like rather than doing like a title card or something like that they have this kind of priest who's leading this group of men off to battle so right they, like giant, and this yeah a giant cross in the yeah hand. so another this is our i guess second 
uh, like cross image in the in the past like thirty seconds, really. Hmm. Yeah, and he, he says like in this year of our Lord fifteen thirty six. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, there's a bagpipe player who looks like Matt Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, it's a dead ringer. Like I had to pause and be like, holy shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like victory to the clan McLeod, and someone, his cousin, asks him if he's scared. His cousin Dougal. Dougal. <laughs> Dougal. I Dougal and, and his best friend Angus. Yeah. yeah. Dougal and Angus, yeah, Connor's right-hand man. I was going to say, uh, Dougal asks if Connor's scared, and he says no, and then Angus says, Dougal pees his kilt all the time? Is that no, Angus says, I, I peed my kilt my first time in right. battle, <laughs> and Dougal responds, he pees his kilt all the time. Yeah, I thought that was really <laughs> that funny. That was funny. Yeah. So then, uh, this woman comes up, who we later find out her name is Kate, I think? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember when they actually mention her name. I think it's mentioned at some point. They do. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, so Kate comes up and I guess gives him some flowers, right? Mm-hmm. And they and they smooch. I don't know if they're like married or. I'm assuming it's like a girlfriend or yeah. something. Yeah. Uh, this is also cut from the U.S. version. Huh. This this like so there's the interaction with Dougal and Angus, and then it just leaps forward after that. Uh, this is again an important thing because I think later we'll find out she kind of disavows and Connor. Yeah, yeah and uh, it's a it's like hard to it's, watch. It's really harsh, yeah. and it's like yeah. it's not that bad unless like this part you find here. out that yeah. like they used to be in love. Like, yeah. and it's mm-hmm. like oh, like this is just some like asshole like yeah. telling yeah. you you're a devil person. Like uh, this 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 makes it a lot better. So so uh, also another uh, Christian image in the background: uh, the cross on top of the uh, church is on fire. Uh, which I thought was interesting. And actually, apparently burning crosses in Scotland were a way to rally the troops. So people would bring a burning cross to, like, a village or a clan and say, like, that was the call to arms, was a burning cross. Oh, like, like, go get your sword? Like, go get your sword is the burning cross. I didn't notice that. Yeah, which I thought was cool. Like, again, it's another Christian image, but also it is a, like, kind of historically accurate little tidbit that's thrown in there, which is pretty cool. They don't exactly say it right now. They say, they kind of allude to what this is later. They're about to go fight a battle against a rival clan, the Phrases, which we're about to see. Yeah. Yeah. So the next scene is, I guess, like, right before the battle starts, uh, there's a mysterious dark figure on a mountain. Yeah. Who... Looks so goddamn badass. It's this awesome. skull helm he's wearing, he's wearing, yeah. like, a, I don't even know what, like, a tiger skull for a helmet. It looks like a cat skull, because it's yeah. got, like, fangs. Yeah. Um, I will say it's a dragon. I don't think I, it's a real skull. I think it is kind of, like, a fabricated thing. But I'll get yeah. into more of the dragon yeah. stuff later. Uh. Yeah, I agree that it, if it was a real thing, it's probably a cat. But I buy into your, <laughs> I buy into your notion that it might be of a some fantasy creature. Yeah, it's a really cool, like scary suit of armor. Yeah, he's yeah. got like skulls on the shoulder pads. It's got like this body framed, like it's his breastplate has abs. Yeah, and and uh, so uh, I, I'll mention. So the villain. This is the this as we soon will find out is the villain of the story, the Kurrigan, who we only see kind of in the background with more lightning, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you mentioned, his his armor is all skulls, but I think there's another bit of kind of imagery here, which is if you look closely, his armor is actually snakeskin, which mm. I thought is interesting because again, like in the Bible, the snake is typically the devil, or there's this this other like element which is this dragon element, which I think is maybe a little more prevalent for the Kurgan more than the snake devil thing. Uh, but I think that's kind of what's going on here. So I thought there was this interesting dynamic, if we view it as this kind of Christian allegory, is like if Connor's the good, Kurgan is the, the devil in this scenario, which is exemplified by being a reptile or whatever. Which, again, I will advance the position that <laughs> Connor is not the good. He, he's the 
okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so standing with the Kurgan is uh, Murdoch, who I guess is the leader of this rival clan, and they have a deal. There is one called Connor among them. Aye. Remember our agreement, Murdoch. The boy is mine. It's bigger. Death to the McLeod! So yeah, it's interesting that this this person is after Connor. Like he knows who he is, even though the audience doesn't at this point. We, we should pause on this for a second, right? Because at this point, Connor does not know that he's immortal. He doesn't know anything but apparently the villain of the story does not only that like he's known like he's somehow arranged this situation so he can fight him like he has a lot of information right like he is not part of this clan the the frasers or whatever like he he is a third party that is like antagonizing this battle presumably only for the goal of i just need a reason to face him right to draw him out or whatever so this is very odd. It's like, mm-hmm. how does he know? And then later, Sean Connery's character, Ramirez, also knows. Right. And, like, specifically seeks out Connor again for the purpose of helping him. What is going on here? Like, how do people know about this? And obviously, you know, this is, what, 1536, so the Kurgan isn't stalking Connor on Facebook or anything like that. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> Connor, Connor didn't write, lol, chopped my hand off, and it grew back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> LOL, like that didn't happen. <laughs> right. So it, it it confused me, knowing now what I know about Highlander, just season one even. Right. I'm like, wait, what? Like how how does he know about yeah, again, Connor? Like you said, Kyle, like there's a lot more magical like it's like I guess you just take it for granted. Like it's like okay, like that's fine. He knows. Yes. So yeah. which I'm happy to do. But it is just like a little jarring in terms of the because also we don't have a window into the people who are having these insights. Like we never hear Connor say like, "Oh, I just know something." Right. Like we never get him to explaining even a magical non-explanation never comes. Yeah, it's, it's just, just no explanation. Yeah, ever. it's just third parties have this information and you just you just go with it. And we should revisit this issue when it comes up on the show because there are points in the show where they deal with people who are kind of on the cusp of becoming immortal. And we should refer back to this when we get there. um, So we can contrast the two approaches, but it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the battle commences and uh, Connor's trying to, you know, get his fight on and (laughs) basically nobody, everybody's avoiding him. Nobody is facing him. He's kind of disappointed by this. And this whole fight scene, again, just talking about like the information deficit that we have right now. Did anyone look at the banners? No, no, I noticed they were there, and I didn't, yeah. I didn't pay too much mind. So, unless I'm understanding this wrong, the phrases banner is like a green border with three like white roses on it. That appears to be their banner. I'm pretty sure the McLeod banner is like a flaming mountain with cow skulls on it. Wow. I'm pretty sure the way they shoot it, I don't know if it's just confusing and that's supposed to be the rival clan. That would make more sense. Again, we don't know, just trying to take myself out of this and realize I don't know who Mac is at this point. If I see two armies meeting and someone just says, who's the good guy? Flaming cow skulls or, (laughs) excuse me, flaming mountain with cow skull or white roses? I'm saying white roses. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if it's just confusing the way that's shot and it's supposed to be the phrases. I'm going to have to look at that. Yeah, I mean, it would make sense that it would be the other way around. Yeah. But again, like, this is another weird image that's like, 
are we dealing with the good guy? Are we supposed to be actually thinking Connor is a hero? I was also going to say, I mean, just you, you mentioned these like extreme images that you see. That's, I think, a big like music video takeaway from this movie. It's like music videos have just like images thrown at you, uh, and that was actually one of Russell McKay's like contributions to the genre. Was like music videos earlier on were just like footage basically of a band playing. But he was one of like the forerunners to like introduce some abstraction to the whole idea, and it's like, oh, can we put a, na- a new narrative on top of this just through imagery? And I feel like there's a lot of just very strong images in this movie, just for the sake of imagery. So the Kurgan, who we later find out his name, we don't know his name yet. The we- mysterious Dark Knight. Yeah, uh, or the whatever. Dark Knight. The Knight, which is actually the original name, I believe, of the the yeah, script. The Knight. Uh, yeah, named after him, I guess, right? And. Sort of bad. Sort of bad. Yeah. And also, uh, the sh- Which was sword of bad. Three, three separate words. So when you said it fast, it was sort, sort of, of bad. bad. Right. Mm. <laughs> uh, the prequel to Super Bad. Uh, and also, I think this movie was at some point known as Shadow Clan. Yeah, I, I read that somewhere. Which is kind of a fun... I think that's a fun... Yeah, it's like the shadow organization of yeah. people fighting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Fight Club. I love this battle scene yeah because of how unglamorous it is yeah it's really is like just speaking to the the notion of this ptsd almost kind of theme that you raised this is savage yeah like there like there's one scene where two guys drown a third guy like in a puddle yeah like they literally kill this guy with mud at one point the priest yeah that's my favorite cuts a dude's throat yep and (laughs) And he's like forgive me my son (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's a it's a really good battle. Yeah, yeah. It's good. And again, the costuming is great. Like, this feels bigger than the movie's budget does. Yes. They're carving out something here, because this is fantasy, but it's not... It's got this very... Even this scene has this very 80s feel. Like, this isn't glamorous fantasy. Like, just speaking to, you know, the writer, he wasn't just like, oh, what a magical time. He's like, yeah, this guy, when he rode into battle, had to pee in that. Like, because yeah. <laughs> he couldn't take it off. Like, right. Although, actually, he probably wouldn't have because the kilt wasn't invented yet. <laughs> so, actually, I was looking this up. The uh, If this fight was, like, real at this point, and what was... What's your 15? 1537. All of these people would just be naked. Probably not even fighting with swords, but just big sticks... And uh, that would kind of be what's going on here. What? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the kilt wasn't invented until 1720. So a lot of, the, like, the, I guess it was tradition to go into battle nude. Wow. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's I guess, what the historically accurate Highlander would look like. Well, I can see why they didn't show that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just change the year? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so the fight is really awesome. But then, eventually, the villain and the hero meet on the battlefield. This guy is huge. The Kurgan Clancy Brown is a, a monster of a man. Uh, and he instantly takes down Connor. He's. I wish there was at least a little bit of a fight here. Yeah. Not much, but like... He's yeah, like, you don't oh. get much info here. Like, no. there's no interaction. It's just like, he's like, I'll fight you, stab through the heart. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't even get, like, one one parry in. Like, no. He just gets stabbed. Well, he's scared shitless of the Kurgan, which, of course, you would be. Right. He's just like, holy mother of God, or something right. like that, when he sees him roll up on his black stallion. <laughs> So I wanted to talk about this a little bit, again, from maybe this Christian reading. We're just confronted with these two images, which is previously we've seen Connor pose in a Christ position and some Christ imagery on his side. And then we've seen this Kurgan character with skulls, death, snakeskin, dragon imagery. So it's like, all right, there are these two kind of classic 
mythological views of good and evil here. After he incapacitates McCloud and he's going to take his head, which is the only way to kill an immortal, uh, he says there can be only one. And so I, I was actually kind of wondering if this is, again, this religious idea of, like, are there two deities ba- battling each other out? And there there can't be one kind of god. Like, there, there are these two ideas here. And so that the, the phrase there can be only one could be interpreted that way. Um, I have another way to interpret it, but I won't get to that till about an hour and 51 minutes into this movie, hmm. which is when it ends. But <laughs> <laughs> So it's literally like this God versus the devil battle. Exactly. Hmm. My biggest problem with this interpretation, sure. just to lay it out now, Fine. is Connor is not good enough. <laughs> I, I, I have this, like, with that this doesn't well. feel like a good versus evil battle because I'm just not convinced that he's that good of a guy. Yeah, we haven't seen much from him yet other than them maybe telling us he's good. Or just... We, they haven't even told us he's good. They've, they just don't, show, they've just shown us an extreme evil, presumably. Yeah. By, yes. like, skulls and death and stuff. So by, by de facto, he's, like, good. Yeah, so just to pause again on this whole plan for a second that the Kurgan has to fight Connor, I'm going to go ahead and say that the worst place for an immortal fight is a 16th century battlefield, <laughs> right? Because you've got, presumably, a bunch of drunk clansmen because also, back in the day, it was very much so a tradition to get hammered before you fought. Because, you know, how else would you be willing to walk into a fight and get stabbed? Which these extras were definitely doing. Uh, yeah, on yeah. the commentary, they talked about how, again, they weren't paid much. They were all young kids. Uh, they would just drink a bottle of scotch, get drunk, and then wake up the next morning at 5 to work. <laughs> so, they were all kind of plastered here. So, literally, you're surrounded by people with swords. And not just any kind of swords, like giant, like two-handed <laughs> swords. There is a very non-zero chance someone's going to attempt to cut your head off at some point. Like, you might lose your head just naturally to a mortal on this fight scene. Especially if you stop for a second and have to have this intense immortal orgasm in the middle of this field. <laughs> like, yeah. if he successfully takes yeah. Connor's head, he's just going to be sitting there like, uh, well, <laughs> all of his best friends are around you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> might just be like, oh, let's cut his head off. Because yeah. yep. that's a thing that we might want to do. Right. Also, weird side note, this is the only fight that really goes on where there are no artificial structures around. Like, literally zero. Would the hillside have exploded? What would have happened? <laughs> yeah. Like, but then, again, just feeding into this thing, it's almost as though the environment knows whether or not a fight is going to resolve. Yeah. Like, there's this preordained quality to it. Like, in some sense, viewing it in the context of this movie, the environment is not reactive enough for there to be a quickening now. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, some weird thoughts on that, but I like I like the thoughts a, on that. Yeah, those I, are all great. I, I really points. actually yeah. like the electri- like the electricity element of this stuff is I think really kind of interesting. Like I think they could have even played it up more. Like I'm a big David Lynch fan. David Lynch and electricity go together like American cheese and apple pie. He, so that it's kind of weird, but some people really like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, he 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 uses like electrical stuff in his movies. Interestingly, like there's hums and like there's there's always these like tones in the background and like I feel like if they had incorporated like a little Lynchian like element to this, like it could have been really cool. Like if Connor interacted with just the environment and things kind of hummed a little bit like there was just kind of an odd kind of magical quality to their presence so the kurgan does not take connor's head because his friends all tackle <laughs> tackle him they literally yeah. drop their swords yeah. to tackle him yeah. you see angus he like houses a guy drops his sword and tackles the kurgan it's like you know you might want that when you fight when you go try to attack the hugest dude on the yeah. battlefield <laughs> it's a little odd but again 
Right. It's neat. Like, they all freak out. Yeah. This is another moment that makes the subsequent betrayal when people reject Connor more poignant. Right. Yeah. Because this freak out moment that they have when they think their friend has just been killed, like, really seals that you that they have a real relationship. Definitely. Like, yeah. they're on a battlefield and they drop everything to go to help. help him. Yeah, totally. And I, I like the line that uh, the Kurgan says as he's being, like, drug away, which is like, we'll meet another time. Another uh, time, McLeod. Which I, th- I think is nice because yeah. it has, like, a kind of extra meaning, which is, like, not just, like, a little bit, like, literally another time period, which yeah. I think is a fun little just uh, nuance of that line. Mm-hmm. Cool. So Connor is lying, essentially dying on the battlefield, and then the camera pulls away from him. Uh, did anyone notice the film quality here changes drastically? <laughs> yeah. It gets, like, extremely grainy, and yeah. so the camera pulls back and then it uh, the transition back to the present is through his eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because, and I, I was like, when I watched it, I was like, what's wrong with the video quality here? Like, I like put in the DVDs of the other version. Like, I was like, is, are, is this the same in every version? It is. And it's because, I guess, they were having trouble with the editing process, like getting this transition to work, like to pull out of his eye. Uh, so Russell McKay, took it to like his music video crew to like handle some editing. And so they were able to do it. So they used like a rough cut of the film. And this was edited on video, not film. So it actually goes to, like, video stock. Wow. And then it goes back to film. So that's why it looks a little different. And if you're not familiar, of course, we're in 2016 where... I don't know how many of our listeners even remember what a VCR is. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, vi- what video is? It, it's a it's a magnetic version of film. It's a little different, has a different grain, sound quality is different. Like, um, and also most important for these distinctions, it's very clean and successful to go from film to kind of HD quality production. Absolutely, but it's very difficult when you have things that are shot on video. To make them HD quality, it's it just impo- it, it imposes a hard ceiling on it. No, like if you have something like uh, what, like seventy millimeter film has like a, I don't know, I think it's like a six K resolution, which is like insane quality. Like uh, where video is like nothing, nothing compared to that. Like so, there's almost no way to clean this up and make it look good. Yeah. So the thing that makes it really rough when you see a lot of like eighties, nineties TV. A lot of that stuff was shot straight to video. So if you're trying to watch that on like a Blu-ray or something like that now, it's really not going to look that much better. Because they can't... It was shot on video. They can't salvage it. Mm -hmm. Whereas things that were shot on film... See, there's almost this weird paradox where things like the original Star Trek that were shot in the 60s, now when they put them on Blu-ray, look so much better than things shot way later. Right. Because... Yeah, it's film. Because it's film. Yeah. (laughs) It's more expensive and harder to do, but... I think worth it. And it, it looks different, too. Like, there's a depth of field thing that's... De- like, video can't capture that. Like, whatever. We're getting into technical shit here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Rewatchers. If you're into what you're listening to, take a second. Go on iTunes and rate us. That's right. Give us uh, five stars on iTunes. That way, other Rewatchers can join the conversation, hear what you have to say, and while you're at it, subscribe. <laughs> We're now back in 1985, as it were, when this movie was filmed. Which I, and I, also where it takes place. Right, I actually... When like, it takes place. Yeah, uh, the movie was released in 86. I was kind of wondering, did this movie sit on a shelf longer than intended because of the 1985 references? Like, they are constantly referring to it being 1985. Hmm. But the movie was released in 86. And, like, typically when, when you make a movie, you kind of know when it's going to come out. So you... You know what I mean? When like, it's only a year difference, I wouldn't read that much into it because mm. i mean 
It's not uncommon, especially in this era, to take more than a year to make a movie. No, but they didn't take long to make this movie. It was quick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we're back in 1985, mm-hmm. and Connor is fleeing this Madison Square lot. Garden yeah. in his like Aston Martin for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand. He's like really booking it out of there. Like, he, I think the best move would have been just to go back to his seat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like hang in the parking garage. Like you're literally surrounded. By like tens of thousands of people, and instead he like flees in the most conspicuous way possible. Like <laughs> right. he's not even casually leaving. No, he is flooring it <laughs> yeah. out of there. Well, the other thing is the cops are on their way to this place already. Yeah. Why? Because of know. the because of the quickening or what we're calling the quickening. The sprinklers do go off, which we didn't yeah. mention. Uh, so is it, it? Did a fire alarm get set off? Probably. Well, he hits most- that he hits that pipe in the sword fight, right. which I think is what causes the sprinklers to go off. <laughs> Not to rewind too much. Yeah. So, especially because of that moment, at one point, Mac just makes an unforced error. Like, he is swinging his swords down and just hits a pipe. And yeah. just like, <laughs> And, like, ends up getting housed. Like, he gets, like, kicked or, like, yep. Vicini gets away or whatever, <laughs> whatever the situation is. So, what was your opinion at this point in the movie in terms of, like, we're watching our action hero, Connor McCloud? It's pretty ineffective like he's not like a badass you know what i mean like just comparing him to adrian paul there's no question at any point when you're seeing highlander like adrian paul is like a fit fighting machine yeah. like he's very super physical like there's, there's yeah. a martial arts element that's in the highlander series that is not uh, apparent in this at all I mean, uh, even a little bit. no yeah like and the way he fights is like so kind of like rough and tumble like he doesn't like seem we have a training montage later, but he doesn't seem, like, hyper-trained. Yeah. He gets, like, beaten up a lot. Yeah. He, the, we've seen him be stabbed already. <laughs> like, we've seen him been brutally stabbed. We've seen him lose his sword. We've seen him have these, like, unforced errors in the fight. I was sitting there at this point thinking, like, this guy is not a badass at all. Like, yeah. This guy is, like, kind of an ordinary Joe. And, like, something about his appearance, too... Feeds into that. Oh like, yeah, his he works the shower. Yeah, yeah, his his white tennis sneakers, yeah. his white jeans, his yeah. jeans that are too long, his ill-fitting trench coat. His yeah. trench coat is so rumpled. Yeah. <laughs> and he has five o'clock shadow. Like he Through needs to shave. Movie. Yeah, I was left. My impression of him is that he's like struggling to survive. <laughs> yeah, really. At this point in the movie. Maybe. I don't know. I was just curious what your well. I were thought like when he was faced with Facil, he did seem like pretty calm. Mm-hmm. Like he was like, "All right, this is going to go down." He, he seemed ready. Yeah, he never seems panicked, even when yeah. he's like hiding behind the car. Like he doesn't seem like he's like, yeah. Lost he's got a school. plan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But he is. Uh, he is I would a never little... say Connor McCloud is a badass. The most yeah. badass thing about no. him is his no. stare. Yeah, that's a badass stare. Yeah. yeah but it other is. than it that, is. like I don't know that we see him do anything that physical or like that impressive that you're like, this man no. is like super threatening. Yeah, I don't know if I I never read that much into it. Like, I just kind of figured, like, well, it's a low budget kind of movie. Choreography is kind of done kind of quick. You know what I mean? Like uh, those sort of things. Uh, But no, but I saw like when you see the Kurgan and Fasil, even Fasil, I'm like, these are dangerous people, right? Like these are highly trained, dangerous people, and maybe even the backflips feed into that. Oh yeah, yeah. Like they are warriors. When I see Connor, I'm like, like a warrior. I'm like, this guy is. It's like a little shrimp, man. He's he's super skinny. He looks like he weighs like 150 pounds. It's like, this guy's hanging on by the seat of his pants. And like, I'm I'm not sure how I think, how I feel about that overall, but it is a shocking difference between Connor and Duncan. Because no question Duncan's in that 
I am like a perfect warrior. Yeah, I, I think it would have been better if maybe they delved into like that dichotomy a little more. Like we actually don't find that much out about Connor ever. ever. Right? Exactly. So I mean, like if they had set up like that, this one, this one guy is this like. Well, they do set up that he's like the perfect warrior, as Ramirez eventually says, versus this guy that yeah is just trying to kind of make his way for himself and like you know is meek and like they, they don't they don't set up a differently opposite character from a cloud. He's just not that. Like, right. They don't. They don't. They don't. They don't give it yeah. extra meaning. And which also, they could. Also, just in terms of like not knowing this guy, this movie has much more of like this noir feel. Yeah. That yeah. like you know you're just dropped in. You're seeing this guy who's like morally. Through, I think throughout the entire movie remains morally ambiguous. Oh sure. And yeah, I like that. About you him. just kind of deal with him. Yeah. Like you don't get this big expository look at him. You're just seeing the story unfold. Mm-hmm. He is he is in a way kind of like a Philip Marlowe-esque character where Marlowe is kind of always plopped into a situation that he kind of deals with. And he, he does kind of walk a line of, you know, I'm doing this because I have to. Yeah, kind of that's, that's one of the biggest trademarks of, like, noir. Is like, yeah. You don't necessarily, like, feel for the character, but right. you're, like, on a journey with them, and, like... You just deal with it. Yeah, just yeah. deal with it, yeah. So it creates this sharp contrast with, like, the mumble mouth, like, noir overviews that, like... Duncan does yeah. in some of the episodes <laughs> right. of Highlander. While whereas he's this, meditating or... <laughs> yeah, which feels, like, weird and out of place, whereas here, like, we are kind of in this, like... It's like this genre mashup. It's like this fantasy noir, mm-hmm. which... Yeah, no, and it... And it like, which and I think I'm on board with. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. Like, I think that should be more of a thing, maybe. But it's... I don't know that I've ever seen anything else that melds those two genres quite that way. No. There's... I, I would say, like, Blade Runner is... Like, yeah. And th- this, this movie actually is a, not a lot of, like, shots that like there's some like neon sign stuff that's like reflections and i'm like oh this is very like blade runner noir like the uh, the wet streets like with mm-hmm. the rain i'm like this this feels like that i think i think blade runner is the closest to like but again i think two s- weird genres together like that. sci-fi noir maybe because of blade runner now are linked maybe blade runner was what blazed that trail but that's a thing that exists mm-hmm. sure and like the the trope of like the sci-fi detective is a thing yeah yeah whereas i don't know that there's a trope of like the fantasy magic noir character <laughs> like <laughs> there's no harry potter noir right yeah. so connor gets immediately stopped by the cops he like rolls out in his sweet convertible he's like pumping the brakes he's soaking wet yeah and there's a horde of police there and mm-hmm. they immediately stop him yeah and so they pull him out of his car, and he's not really cooperating. But here's something weird for people that, for new viewers who don't know anything about Highlander, they take his wallet out, and they're like, oh, okay, Mr. Nash, where are you going in such a hurry? And we've already, well, I guess it could be Nash McCloud, or McCloud Nash, I don't know. But it's like, is this no, confusing? they called him Connor. Oh, right, They have the called him Connor. Yeah. We know right. that. Yeah. At least the person in the flashback is Connor McCloud. Yeah. So is this confusing to people? I, I had that same note written down. I was like, oh, like, w- what does this mean? Like, it's like, I guess he has two names or like, yeah. again, it's one of those sort of mysteries that's not spelled out like cl- as clearly as I think it nor- would be today. Like, mm-hmm. This would be. This is. You figure it out. Done. Yeah, you do figure it out. But Eventually. Yeah. It's but a mystery it's- than the movie gives to you. I don't know. This is what I was trying very hard to, again, give myself zero information. I feel like I'm on board with this. Though. Yeah. No, like I feel like at the in the moment I would probably get it. Maybe sure. I'm giving my cutting myself slack there, but I feel like I would get that he uses a fake name because he's immortal. Right? Yeah. 
So uh, these guys are super intense. Uh, this one cop who I just call like asshole cop. He's Garfield. Yeah. Garfield. Garfield That's is right. the name of the Garfield, cop. Garfield. Yes. Yeah. He's so intense. So yeah. He questions him like he's a he's a little more violent than I think he would need to be. Right. <laughs> uh, like he would be if 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 a cop today was doing that, there would be a lot of people with cell phones out recording him yeah. and putting that on yeah. YouTube. It's not that bad. I mean, the things that get recorded and put on YouTube involve like people getting punched in the I head so. and stuff. But like he puts them up he, against the car. He roughs them up a little. He roughs them up a little. Also, yeah. we should pause for a second and talk about the setting of this movie. Just because yeah. 21st century New York, New York in 2016, where the rents are outrageously high, it's the palace of the super rich. In 1986 New York, like this is like the Gomorrah. This is like falling apart. Mm-hmm. Massive flight from the city. All the news reports are about how New York is tearing itself apart. The mindset and the relation to crime and things like that are different mm-hmm. like let's not forget that we're thinking about like movies like escape from new york was oh, totally. made not too far before this movie which is literally predicting in the 90s it will be a penal colony right like there is this narrative around the city of new york and a lot of american cities about the way crime is going to literally tear it apart. Yeah. So these kinds of themes that are developed in this movie, like the Kurgan is an example of this, like chaos reigns is like a theme that you see in movies from like the late seventies and the Mm eighties of just like chaos for its own sake. And this relationship with criminals is like kind of very different than we think about it today. So just kind of put that skin yeah, on totally. the whole thing. No, I, I yeah. like your uh, your comparison to, like, Gamora from the Bible. Oh, more Bible references. No, yeah, we're no but I mean, like, uh, like Times Square, before Disney bought all of it, was, like, the... the, the just notorious. Notorious. Like, yeah. is like, uh, it's like Mos Eisley, like the, uh, the wretched... I've scum, scum and villainy. villainy. Yeah. Like, it was all sex shops. Like, well, there's still a lot of sex shops. Well, yeah, but in, they're, they're pushed it. out further. They're pushed out a little further. Yeah. The city was, was falling apart. Like, the infrastructure of the city was collapsing. The police structure, like, nothing was going well. Uh, gang warfare, all this sort of stuff. Um, in the Bronx was a mess. So, yeah, th- this, this is a good uh, reflection of really what the times were like. And I mean, an exaggerated version of it, but... Uh, New York was not a good place to be in the 80s at all. Yeah, and it's just a thing to pause on, because here in 2016, it's a fantastic place where it's like, oh, do you make $120,000? You're middle class in New York. (laughs) They're like, at this period, it's a kind of period of darkness in the city. Uh, So, yeah, do we want to play this clip? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's play this clip of the uh, the cop uh, Garfield arresting Lambert. In this, these people have the cops have their guns on immediately. Yeah. Like for a car leaving a parking lot. Well, assuming they know that a man's been decapitated, which I don't know how they'd know that uh, that fast. Yeah. Well, I was wondering, did they think a bomb went off? That would be interesting. And yes, they should think that. <laughs> Especially if this movie was made today. See pal. Well, Mr. Nash, where were you going in such a hurry? Give me it! Give me it! Give me it! Like, he just punched him. Yeah. Like, there's no question in my mind he's going... Pal, don't even breathe. So this cop has just put a gun to this man's temple and cocked... Yep. <laughs> and cock the uh, the trigger back. That's insane. That is that this is guy, in this fact guy insane. is off yep. the rails. This yeah. this this cop is like 
a maniac. One quick note about his car. So uh, Connor's driving an Aston Martin, James Bond's like quintessential yeah. vehicle. I wonder if there's a connection there. I wonder because Christopher Lambert was almost James Bond. Yeah, yeah. I like right. the shot of him driving out of the uh, the car. Like they they yeah. mount the camera like to the back of the car, which it's a fun shot. I don't yeah, know. it is. Uh, there are a lot of fun shots in this movie. Yeah, like yeah. they're I. I I don't know. I feel like in a lot of movies today, I don't pause often and go, oh, that's a cool shot. Yeah. Like, I feel like things are a little safer and, like, I don't know, maybe it's because of the CG aspect of things. Like, you don't stop as often and think, like, oh, they'd amount a camera to something and, like, do yeah. this whole project. Like, they just animated some shit. And in some, in some ways, I don't, I don't mean to use this, like, too disparagingly, but, like, style over substance in a lot of parts of this movie. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, there's a, there's a lot of uh, pizzazz and, like, finesse with the camera work and, like, what's going on. Like, I think it, I think it's used to good effect, but sometimes it's like, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but okay. Like, you just kind of are along for the ride. Yeah. But again, this is another moment where, like, for a, a fairly low-budget movie, this is a pretty well-made Production. They get a lot oh, yeah. out of the stuff, and I think yeah. a lot of that is a testament to Russell Mulcahy. Like mm-hmm. he was from from working on music videos, like where you have again a low budget, and especially the early days of music videos, you you didn't have a lot of time to put this like three minute video together. So like they would churn out a video in like two days, and they would be working like sixteen hour days. And apparently, when he came on to this shoot, he was like in that mindset, and it's like people they were working like uh, over a dozen hours a day, and like he had to be like have a talking to, like hey, like. Let's cool it. Like, everyone can't handle your pace. Uh, but I think also it's used to, like, good effect. They don't have a huge budget on this. And so he's able to get, like, a lot of stuff done for not much money and time. It's like, let's just churn it out. Like, we can do it. So yeah, yeah. it's cool. And actually, in that shot we just uh, played the clip from, that was actually in New York, which is cool. Like, they, But they only spent two weeks in New York. The rest was all filmed in on London sound stages and in Scotland. So actually, based on the on the back of this, the clip we just did, the camera pans to the left through the siren. And it's another one of these great transitions back to Scotland. Like, this is an mm-hmm. element of the movie the show really visually picks up on, the way they transition from past to present mm-hmm. and the movie just really nails it yeah like all these transitions are solid yeah they're great and uh, there's a quote from russell mckay about the transition she said he wanted it to feel like time travel like that you were actually being transported through something like through the film itself to another place and i think he does a good job because it's not just a cut like it's like you you are like transported by these like pans and like because uh, the scene doesn't change it just pans over to a new time, essentially, which is cool. Yeah. Though it is worth noting, we have been in the present for about 90 seconds, and now we're back in the past again. Yes. The the cuts at this point in the movie are so fast between past and present. There's like a huge portion of the early part of this movie that's all in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we just like visit the present for like half a second. Right. If you're a Highlander fan like we are, you probably have some pretty cool Highlander swag from back in the good old Highlander heydays. But did you know there are brand new Highlander sword replicas available through the official Highlander Facebook page? Head over to the official Highlander Facebook page for beautiful high quality replicas of Duncan McLeod's Musashi Samurai Sword or check out Connor McLeod's beautiful Genai Samurai. Handles are made with a nearly unbreakable Kevlar carbon compound and are complete with all the detail you remember from the Highlander film and television series. The handmade katana blades were created using high carbon steel. The blades are heat tempered, then water quenched for a consistent hardness and then adorned with a Hammond tempered line to create a truly awesome display sword and tribute to the Highlander franchise. Stop on by the official Highlander Facebook page to order your Highlander swords today. This is a- 
It's sundown at the castle, and there's some uh, sad bagpipe music playing. So this is a post-battle. They they managed to get out in one shape or form. Right. Connor, not so much. He's yeah. lying on a bed, just dying. Yeah. Uh, and so they're over him, and I, I guess they, they've kind of come to the realization they can't do anymore. Yeah, which... At this point, that priest from earlier now has his hood off. He's got like a mohawk. Yeah, what is yeah, going on yeah. here? It's an insane look for this man. <laughs> yep. So, and and his uh, girlfriend that we saw earlier give him give him the flowers in the European cut or director's cut. Uh, she's back and she's crying over him for losing him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also should be noted that there's like lightning. Like apparently, this this scene was actually supposed to take place outside, uh, but it was pouring, and so they decided to do it inside. Uh, but again, there's like they actually set it with a storm, and there's lightning flashes, and so there's this electricity element again. And at this point, I was actually thinking, I wonder what the stigma is between like electricity and like life and all this sort of stuff. It, it kind of reminded me of Frankenstein. I was like, oh, there's another kind of like hmm. myth that is like the the dead are risen by electricity, and like that gives them new life. And I was like, oh, there's kind of this. That's that's certainly something that's in the the zeitgeist of returning from the dead. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I love now the transition back to the present. This is one of my favorites. Like you're seeing his body, and then all of a sudden you get a bunch of flashes, and then you come which to is the lightning. Yeah. I guess it's, it's the, the lightning, lightning in there, and then it transitions to the present, and those same flashes are going on on Facile's body, but now it's the police taking. Right. Their camera, pictures, yeah. the camera flashes on his body. This is like, that's really a gem. That's really a good. really good shot. But again, we were now in the past for, how long do you think we were there? A minute? Yeah. And now we're yeah. back to the present again. Like, the kind of fluidity between the periods is, is cool. And it's, and also, I was trying to take note, like, there definitely seems to be, like, a connection between the two. Like, they're, they're almost kind of going in tandem with each other. Like, we get the battle in the beginning, which is, like, the wrestling match slash sword fight. Then we are transitioned to the battlefields, and like so, so like they're they're always kind of connected. And then, like you said, Kyle, there's this flashback to the death of Connor, and then there's the flash forward, and it's the death of Fazil. Like so, they're always kind of related, I think, in some manner. Then this scene happens, and there's some very odd dialogue and choices around this future scene. So we're about to meet the love interest, Brenda. Brenda. Brenda J. Wyatt. <laughs> so we also meet the uh, this bald cop, who John Polito is the actor's name. Yeah, I think he's maybe he's got a lot of IMDb credits yeah. oh, too. Yeah, but I think the role that I was most familiar with, he is the other private detective in the Big Lebowski. Yeah, right. <laughs> you I know, was going to say the the thing I remember him from a lot is the Rocketeer. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what's he Maloney or what? He's like the gangster. Uh, I forget yeah. his name now. In that. Uh, yeah, he's the one gangster in that. But he's in the ton. He's in t- he's in Miller's Crossing. He plays a major role in that movie. The Coen Brothers use him a lot. Tons. Yeah, I, I looked actually uh, for research for this movie. I was like, oh, is he also in uh, the new movie Hail Caesar, which is also with Christoph Lambert and hmm. uh, Clancy Brown? Because I was like, that would be amazing. Yeah. They use him all the time. Sadly, he's not. Because uh, that'd be three bummer. people from this yeah. movie that are reunited. Uh, but we're introduced to this character. He goes, you look pretty, Brenda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this scene definitely sets up like they, the cops have like no respect for her. Yeah. I would say both as a, a, a scientist and a woman, like, mm-hmm. because they make some sexist remarks. Like they're, they're not into her at all. Mm. No, they're into her too much. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's yeah, I guess weird. That's yeah. It. yeah. She's chewing not as a out. human being, but as an object. Yeah. Right. She's chewing them out because she's in forensics. They didn't call her first, so right. they, they might be mucking things up here. And then Garfield, who's an asshole, is like, oh, what do you think the uh, cause of death is? Which I actually thought was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, 
This one came disassembled. (laughs) And they introduced something interesting that apparently in North Jersey earlier, like, Mm -hmm. someone else was decapitated. Right. Right. So that's interesting. So, like, the game is ongoing, and, like, other people are participating in it, and assumably... Like, the Kurgan killed somebody in North Jersey, in, like, right. Hoboken the other day. So then Brenda also inquires if they've arrested somebody, which they have, mm-hmm. Nash or Connor, and that he's an antiques dealer. And Brenda finds a sword. How does nobody notice this? I know! Yeah. It's just, like, there's just a gorgeous, like, gem-encrusted <laughs> yeah. sword. As we find out later, is a Toledo Salamanca, or yeah. as I wrote down in my notes, a Toledo Salami. <laughs> like, she just sees it. Uh, she finds what she reveals to be a million-dollar broadsword. Yep, and she knows what this sword is by sight. So right. that's another interesting tidbit on her character. Yeah, I'll just mention a tidbit on the Toledo Salamanca. Is this a real sword? Oh, it's not at all. Like, so yeah. this is like, uh, it's, it's, it's an inside joke. So Toledo refers to the source of the hilt of the sword. Uh, it was made in Spain by one of the large manufacturers there of, like, swords. And then the blade was made by Dr. Jim Risulis, who owns Salamander Armory. So Salamanca is Salamander in Spanish. So they just named it after where they got the pieces from the sword. Uh, and I believe, actually, they got a lot of swords for, for the TV show, I think, from that Spanish producer as well. Hmm. I think he, they were the people that made some of them. Neat. There's your little Toledo Salamanco trivia, everybody. Yeah. Also, <laughs> it's worth noting that the other lead detective from this, who the only other notable IMDb credit I had from this guy was that he was in Police Squad. Oh, Alan North. Yeah. Yeah, so every time he's in this this movie, I can't help but think of Police Squad because he is the, like, sergeant or whatever in, yeah. in that show. Uh, if you haven't seen Police Squad... Totally watch it. It's the best. It's what Wesley all, Nielsen. It's what yeah, the Naked Gun movies are based on. It's only six episodes, uh, but each one of them is gold. Uh, mm. On his way to go discover, see the sword that Brenda notices and no one else does. Yeah, he like he trips on the body. Yeah, <laughs> does he spill his coffee on it? Yeah, yeah. that's what he's upset about. <laughs> yeah. He's not upset that he just kicked a corpse. He's upset that he spilled a little coffee. Yeah, like is he is he included in our our, our running uh, tab of police officers? We got Bennett. We got Stars. Stars. Stars for life. That's actually what Keith has tattooed on his knuckles. Yep. <laughs> what do you think you're in, Beirut? The the cops are forming this theory now that uh you know since Nash McLeod is an antiques dealer, this is an antique deal gone extremely right. bad. This is high stakes antiquing right here, folks. Well, it's a million dollar sword. Like yeah. that's it's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. And I was actually very curious if I was like, oh, are swords worth a million dollars? Some swords worth a million dollars. I don't know that from that period, it's like ancient Chinese weapons worth a million dollars. But, you know, it can get up there in price. So we're now in the police station and we get this kind of amazing interrogation. Yeah. Uh, This is on a a whole other level. Yep. So first they ask, they they, they show him a picture of, we don't see who this is, but it's presumably the person that was decapitated in New Jersey. Yeah. And so, of course, they bash Jersey because. Every movie has yep. to bash Jersey. You ever point. get to Jersey, Nash? Not if I can help it. <laughs> uh, so then they're like... We are presently recording this in New Jersey. Yes. Cheers to Cheers. New Jersey. So they're like, you talk funny. Well, it's also This is interesting. This is the very first scene that Connor recorded with that, like... 
that he recorded. So this he, is also the first time Connor says a full sentence. Yes. So yeah. His his accent is insane. So yep. let's talk a little bit. We didn't talk about this when we introduced, I guess, Christophe Lambert in our introductions of the character, but he was born in New York. Yeah. But like he was not an American citizen because he was. I think his father was a diplomat or something. Yes, his father is a diplomat, a French diplomat. So that, but he grew up in like France and Switzerland. Uh, so anyway, he he has an extremely strange accent yep. to begin with, and when they hired him for this movie, they just assumed he spoke English, and he, and he doesn't it, speak right? any of it. Like the fact that this is the very first scene they recorded, like his accent in this scene in particular is like even more weird, I think, uh, than in other parts of this movie because he is like grasping it's like this is all phonetically spoken but they kind of write it they're like oh you talk funny and he's like they're like where are you from and he's like lots of different places i think that's a really clever thing i mean it's like kind of bullshit but it's like oh like okay fine yeah i'm okay with that i think like that makes sense within the rules of this world he said in his dialogue coaching that they tried to develop an accent that was non-specific i guess this counts as that. I, I don't call, know. I call bullshit on that. I yeah. think that's something they told to everyone that asked that question. Mm. I don't buy that that was their attempt. Like that, this is just what came out. This is. I think this is what yeah. came out of that. And they were like, "Well, it sounds non-specific, so we'll go with that." Yeah. It's like I'm okay with all of that, but I don't think this was like intentionally. Like, let's try to get a, like a weird accent because I think that's a cool idea. Yeah. I don't. I don't buy that. That's what they were trying to do. So Nash is not the guy from New Jersey, or he has no idea uh, what the deal is. With that um so then i love this so the detective alan north uh whose name is frank which his last name is moran i was like is his name moron like is <laughs> like yeah. he's a moron frank moran he shows him a sword and he's like do you have any idea what this is and lambert's like a sword <laughs> question mark <laughs> it's pretty great uh although We'll talk about this more as we get to know the character throughout the movie. But, like, I I find they have a hard time kind of characterizing him. Like, I'm not sure. Like, in this scene, he is, like, a complete smartass. Yeah. Slash, like, he's kind of a dick. Like, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I'm not sure what he is. And perhaps part of that's part of the performance. Like, that the smartassery kind of comes off as a little, like, just weird and dickish and, like, strange. It feels like the, the the way the dialogue is written, he should be more Han Solo than, like, creepy man. Like, well, no. So, I think he is, like, the, the character is that he's, like, a rascal. I think that's supposed to be, like, part of this thing. Like, he's more Han Solo than anything else. And, like, that's who he's supposed to be. The movie doesn't really give this character a lot of chances to sing. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's fascinating is that seeing this movie, like, three times in preparation for this gave me more of an appreciation for the pilot of the series, The Gathering. Because I honestly think you have a stronger sense of who this character is from the pilot than you do from this entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you really do. And in the pilot, it's clear that Connor's a hero. Mm -hmm. In this, not really. No. Not so much. But in that, like, it's clear that his... He has, like, a goal. His goal yeah. is to hunt down evil immortals to mm-hmm. make sure that someone evil doesn't win the prize, and that's his right. thing. Like, it's clear that he's, like, kind of a joker and a rascal and a romantic, and, mm-hmm. like, that's his personality. That's really not necessarily clear in this. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. this scene is probably the most character building we get from this character. Yeah. And it's, like, kind of odd, but I kind of buy it. Like, right. But I think this is honestly what they wanted, and it doesn't yeah. necessarily sing elsewhere. It's hard It's hard to, like, I, I didn't know, watching this, like, how to know 
like how to react because again like our only like views of this character are him like beheading someone yeah him resisting arrest like mm-hmm. and, like at, at this point in the series and now he's funny and it's like oh is he funny like is he the funny character yeah like i am i supposed to be like you're throwing a bunch of different images of this guy we just don't get enough character development for him to truly be anything in this movie yeah, yeah. but I think it's very true that at this point in this movie, we've seen him behead a guy, mm-hmm. we've seen him be stabbed, and we've seen him punch a cop. Yeah. That's all we've seen him do. We've seen him do those three things. So I don't know how we're supposed to feel about him at any given point in yeah. time. Right. But I think he's funny in this scene. Yeah. 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 So they're, they're, they they have the, the police have this theory that this is a antique steel gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I like Connor's theory, which is like, let me tell you my theory. Is yeah. that this guy saw a bunch of shitty wrestling and decided to kill himself. Yeah. <laughs> Chop really off funny. his own like, head. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think they kind of nail this they nailed what they the voice of this character was supposed to be in this scene. Yeah. And I don't know that they nail it again for the rest of the movie. But I'm on board for seeing this guy in this moment. Yeah, it's a great scene. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty good. But then... A third <laughs> theory. Yeah. So, uh, we can play... Should we play this little clip? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, I just don't want to say the words that are used in this scene, so... You faggot, Nash? Why are you cruising for a piece of ass? I'll tell you what happened, Russell. You went down to the garage for a blowjob. You just didn't want to pay for it. Huh. You are sick. So, other hallmark of older movies is saying the F word. Yeah. What is now the F word? I call that is no longer the F word. Two things. I, I, I love this scene. Uh, like we, we've talked about some noir elements and it's like, this feels very noir to me. Like questioning, like this is a, this is classic noir stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also just in terms of like, we're obviously dancing around, like the fact that the scene's like a little bit offensive today. A lot, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, this this would this would not be in a movie today, no. not because of any sort of rating thing, but it would just be like, no, we're yeah. just like, no, nobody would be writing this scene, uh, or if they did, it would be because they're trying to illustrate how like that the cop is bigoted. The cop is the pe- biggest piece of shit, yeah. and like the cop is now the biggest villain in this movie. Right. As, as opposed to being kind of like a neutral character, yeah, which the cops are in this. So. But it's worth hanging a lantern on like interesting point in time how okay this was Absolutely. and like the level of fear around this is also not too long after kind of the emergence in the public perception of AIDS and things like that. And the stigmas that that created. So I don't know, just in terms of a moment in cinema, it's Definitely. worth pausing to like, see, this is almost the, the cultural zeitgeist mm-hmm. around this. Cause I don't think this is out of lockstep with anything going on in the mid eighties. No, Mm-hmm. Not even a little bit. Like, have you seen Eddie Murphy's stand-up routine from this period? Oh, like, boy. Yeah. yeah Ugh, you know, like, boy. This was <laughs> within the median yeah. Of, yeah. of what's going on. So, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But why does the punching start? Like, this because guy, he calls him gay. You, why, Garfield, you cruising for a piece of ass? Yeah, but then, the follow-up, the moment that precedes the punching is he just goes, you're sick. And then, and then it right goes right down. for punching. It's like... I almost felt like there was a missing bit of dialogue. Uh, you know what I mean? Like this is also a cop that put a gun to his head and yeah. cocked it. Well, <laughs> the whole the whole scene too. Garfield and uh, Mac are exchanging 
weird stares and glances, and Garfield can't keep his gaze with McCloud. Which so, I don't think I could do that with Christopher Lambert either. Yeah, no, yeah. Like, McCloud is, like, staring daggers into Garfield, and Garfield can't stand up to him. Yeah, yeah so. which is cool. I yeah, mean, that's it a cool is. moment. But then Mac goes, like, right for a kidney punch. Yeah, yeah. And then he punches Polito. Yeah. Yep. Like, he punches two cops yeah. in the scene. And Polito flies across the room. <laughs> yeah. like. so, so when he's like, am I under arrest? The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you're under arrest. No, they let him go. Like, yeah. what reality is this? So, well, I guess they don't want him to sue the cops. When for- it- because this guy obviously had no business trying to take a, Garfield had no business trying to take a swing at him. Yeah. One interesting thing I wanted to note about this scene is in the script, he goes into the garage for a hand job. <laughs> and in the movie, they change it to a blue job. Also, the way he says blue job. Blammer jammer. Yeah, a blammer jammer. He went to the garage for a blammer jammer. <laughs> uh, I also have another thing to add to this scene. I'm going to be sprinkling in these other interpretations of this movie, and I'll I'll recap all this at the end. But another thing I thought was interesting here, uh, again, we've seen a little bit of what could be construed as, like, gay subtext. Uh, In this scene, the shitty cop is like, what are you, uh, F-word? And Connor does not say no to that at all. And I was like, huh, interesting. There's no denial of that in this scene. And I was like, interesting. If we're going to read it in this homoerotic subtext, that might mean something. I just don't buy it that much, because we see him with three separate female love interests. Oh, I know. But, again, there's different views of what this movie could mean under the surface. and So I'm just going to point it out along the way. That's all. all. So now we meet the present version of the Kurgan. When he's listening to a radio like broadcast about the decapitation right. at Madison Square Garden. Right. And the, the broadcast says, and this actually makes it into the Queen recording of Give Me the Prize. Which they yeah. actually got Clancy Brown to come back in and record. Like, they didn't take a sample from the movie. They got him in the studio to be like, oh, we want that dialogue That's in awesome. this. Like, that yeah. was very intentional to have to yeah. as part of that song. Yeah, but the, the recording goes, I had which at this time has no name. And it's like, we've said the name like ten times at this point. Yeah. The cop just said it in the scene before this, that it's a Mon Facile. Yep. Anyway. Well, maybe the press doesn't know yet. Yeah. I, we, do, we do know later that the cops have not released all the info to the yes. press. Mm. And then the Kurgan goes, I know his name. Right. But again, like, all these people seem to just know no. each yeah. other. Right. And... That's kind of cool. There's like an Encyclopedia Britannica of immortals. Yep. Right. So like they all know each other. Well, I'm going to I'm going to say two theories I have here. So one, I believe the Kurgan is the one that killed the guy in New Jersey. Well, yeah, he's driving from because New Jersey. Because he's driving on that side of the bridge. Like he's yeah. coming to New York. So it's like, yeah. oh, so like the, who killed this guy? Yeah, that it's is him. that is yes. I think that's yep. correct, right? It's in the script too. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah. cool. And then the other thing I will posit is at, at the beginning of this movie, there are only four people left. We're, we're not missing any other immortals in this story. Like, because, like, the cops have not brought up any other serial killings. Like, in a different version of the script, they could be like, there's been eight murders, or there's been a dozen murders. You know what I mean? Like, mm. and they're all stories we don't get to hear about, but we just kind of know these battles are going on in New York because that's where the gathering is. It's only ever these four. I think there, <laughs> there's only four people left, and that's where the gathering is. So that's pretty crazy, I think. Yeah. Yeah, especially because the show establishes that the gathering is going on when the show starts. Right. Yeah. And we've already seen him kill 12. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We've already seen Duncan McCloud as of season one, kill 12 people. And we've, we're aware that more have happened. So yeah, yeah. 
Interesting. He's driving over. He puts on tape into the deck, and it's "Give Me the Prize" by Queen, which rocks. Which is it's fucking an awesome. amazing song. It's I really love that good. song. Yeah. Um, so, as a former musicologist, I was getting into like the musical stuff in this movie because I think it's I think it's really good. Actually, and we didn't even mention in our intro like Michael Kamen, Michael Kamen, who did the yeah. score, and we'll, we'll talk about him a little more when the, the score and, becomes a little more prevalent. What? Company is the theme from this. Their new lo- line. Cinema, that's new which, line. Which, which no did Ninja Turtles to loop it all back around? <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, yeah, the beginning. I remember playing that VHS all the time when I was a kid, and the, the Highlander theme was the opening to Ninja Turtles, essentially, because it's the New Line Cinema logo coming on the screen. The Highlander theme has gotten good good mileage out of it. Which, to be clear, we kind of described uh, Princes of the Universe as the Highlander theme earlier. Now we're talking about the scored the, the music. Orchestral, right. The uh, orchestral yeah. theme that accompanies McCloud. Right. So, interesting musical stuff happening here. I did notice that a lot of the Queen music incorporates one very specific element from Princes of the Universe, which is, as far as, like, if you, you hear Freddie Mercury talk about it, like, they all consider Princes of the Universe to be the Highlander theme. Right. Uh, there's this chromatic guitar riff that you hear in Princes of the Universe. Which chromatic is half steps. Half steps, right. Uh, that exists in this song, and it also exists in some other ones, too. Like, there's this element that, so that, that ends up being kind of this, like, little musical thread mm-hmm. that Queen has, like, connected their songs with. It's like, oh, there's a this, this is all part of the same sort of kind of musical universe, as it were, uh, which I thought was really cool. But also... The princess of the musical universe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting just about this song, Give Me the Prize, the lyrics of it, it's like, I'm the master of your destiny, which is like an interesting, like this this kind of fatalism that exists within this thing, like predetermined. Um, but also one of the big lines of it is, is I am, especially it's interesting because the Kurgan is playing it at this point, which is, is uh, I am the god of kingdom come, is a lyric. Like, there's, there's multiple religious references in uh, like in the Queen music, which I think is kind of interesting. Adding again to uh, like a, a Christian interpretation of this movie. Hmm. Just want to bring that up. Food for thought. Food for thought. So then he goes to just check into a, a hotel, and basically a guy who looks sort of like Ed Norton with herpes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this, this guy yeah. has visible cold sores. Yeah, that's a big old herp on his face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> With his, like, old black sidekick? Yeah. I don't know what that's all about. (laughs) I told you not to talk to the guests. (laughs) (laughs) So, he, like, gets admitted. Obviously, like, the Kurgan's loaded for some reason. So, let's talk about the Kurgan for a minute. So, he's, like, what? He looks seven feet tall. I'm sure he's not. But this is one big dude. Yeah. And he's, like, a punk rocker. Yeah. And it's awesome. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, I think that's that's another testament to the times that, like, how did they paint him as a villain? And it's, like, they give him this, like, punk rock and roll persona. Which also, I think, accompanies, like, the music. Like, there's this queen element. Right. And also, like, the Give Me the Prize song is very, like... It's a little more heavy metal. Like, if you were to kind of dissect all the Queen songs, it's like some are a little more like easy listening, like One Year of Love, which is played at one point, is a little mm-hmm. more like Motowny sort of song. Uh, but then this song is like real heavy. This guy's like a rock and roll dude. But then all the uh, flashback stuff is all orchestral. Yeah. So, like, there's this dichotomy of, like, rock and rolling instrumental classical music, uh, hmm. which is neat. One thing I wanted to say about this Kurgan, 1986 Kurgan, is Clancy Brown's thoughts on the character. Yeah. Um, so he says, this is a quote I read from an interview. The, Kur- the Kurgan is in a heavy metal sort of getup. Wouldn't it be interesting if you wore a business suit and bowler hat? That's scary. You expect a heavy metal punker with skulls on his jacket to be a badass, but the really tough, mean, and nasty people don't necessarily wear clothes like that and look like that. 
So there was a chance to make a real statement, but I think the whole idea was to stay away from statements and just tell a good guy, bad guy story. Mm. Well, that also would have been especially interesting in the context of the 80s, because like, you're still in this super intense Cold War mentality. This is like the era of greed is good, like Gordon Gecko, Wall Street, give me the money, give me the coke, give me the women. Like, mm? This is the era of that. So that might have actually been an interesting take on it in this time period specifically. Well, speaking to that, uh, I mean, we haven't talked about like the Kurgan's backstory, which is not really like laid out in this. It's laid out in the novel. Uh, and it's laid out, I guess Ramirez kind of gives an overview of who he is right. later, you know, like at 20 minutes from now. But I think yeah. it's, it's very interesting. So the Kurgan is Russian. Which I thought was meaningful in this period. Exactly. Like, like, just this, still, is 19, this is the Cold War. Like, of course the villain is Russian. Like, what else would he be? You're still living under the threat of global thermonuclear war. Right. Like... The same way, like, early 2000s movies, all the villains were terrorists. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, because that's something that America was dealing with at the time, so the villains in the films kind of reflected what our real-life adversary was. Yeah, it is interesting, and part of the, like, reason for this materialism in the 80s is because, like, you're living in this world in which the Earth could end, like, which is also an interesting thing, I think, about the prize. Like, I feel like part of what defines the 80s is, like, this materialism that develops... When you're in a world in which, like, the entire eastern seaboard of the United States could cease to be at some Mm -hmm. point. And, like, that was, like, a fear and a stress that people lived with in this period. And, like, meanwhile, during this, you have, like, this supernatural struggle between two superpowers, Connor and the Kurgan, going on at the same time. You know, he kind of, the Kurgan in some ways, if he was, again, especially if he was in, like, a suit and a bowler hat, like, he kind of represents this one way of coping with it, Mm -hmm. which is to embrace this kind of fatalistic materialism and and run with it so then the kurgan puts together his clip together sword yep (laughs) which is so awesome and like utterly unrealistic but i don't care because it's that awesome the first time i watched this this sword made me angry (laughs) and now i think it's awesome like (laughs) the first time i saw it that was like all right so if you're in an intense sword fight there's no way this thing's holding together not a chance yeah (laughs) it's gonna fall apart like there's a reason why a sword is one piece yep right but it's like so cool when he's putting it together and this is a cool like training montage i also like the the idea of like the the sword is mechanical in a way and i think Mm. there's i think there's an element to that we'll get into later like as we learn about connor a little more there's like this kind of nature versus this this thing that's like artificial or built you know what i mean like uh that's that's a theme that's in a lot of literature and movies uh that you can see like i mean like lord of the rings is a lord of the rings star wars yeah, they all have this they all have that, that, that sort yeah. of concept of like th- like he has to put together this thing like it, it's got moving parts to it uh so i, th- I think that's a, a compelling antithesis of what connor I am candy. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> also, the- <laughs> um, also this scene when he like puts it together, like it's a little like mini montage of him yeah. flipping it together and then like training or exercising with it, which, yeah. which he like spins it around. Yep. Uh, it's kind of cool. I don't know. I have no idea what he's it's doing. Odd, yeah, but it's, it's cool. I like yeah. it. It uh, looks cool. It looks menacing. Yeah. Like he he's very effective in this role, even though it sounds like he wishes it was more Clancy Brown. I yeah. mean, uh, he's great. Um, I mean, 
I'm not prepared to say this is a deep character, but no. I'm very prepared to say he acts the shit out of yeah. it. So yeah. like, so this this little scene where yeah. he like spins the sword around that was choreographed by the guy that choreographed Starlight Express, which is if uh, you don't know the Andrew Lloyd Webber, the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical where people go around on roller skates uh, for the whole thing. It's ridiculous. Wow. Uh, anyway, he uh, did some music videos as well with Russell, and so he came in and choreographed this like sword montage, which huh. I thought was crazy. Yeah. Also, uh, something we didn't mention earlier, I don't know, I, I, I was trying to find like some info on this, is how they arrived at his alias of Russell Nash, because the director's name is Russell McKay, and I was like, oh, did they name the main character after the director, or did mm. that come pr- previously? Mm. No idea. Who knows? Yeah, I oh, can't but remember. Just the Shadow Knows, po- mm. directed by Russell McKay. I love that movie. You uh, did The Shadow? Yeah. It's I like great, that movie, too. It's a really good movie. And yeah. Honestly, alright, so let's so like Alec Baldwin yeah. as People's- the old-timey super superhero the shadow yeah people so, shit on that movie I, I think it's really good it's, it is really good i yeah. watched it like maybe a month ago it has a, like if you like highlander i think you'll like that like it has a lot of like that same directing flair also glass exploding all over the mm-hmm. place like crazy like crazy yeah. um also no. an amazing score in the shadow like, yeah it's good yeah um but yeah it's a good movie and i think it's like maybe a better made movie like a little bit better than like highlander is like well it's got a higher budget higher budget yeah. like uh but it has alec baldwin who's great ian mm-hmm. mckellen uh, mm-hmm. It has Jonathan Winters, who I love. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Tim Curry. I Tim don't know. Curry. Watch, yeah. watch The Shadow. It's great. But I'll bring, I'll bring that shadow up a little bit more later. Who knows? The Shadow knows. Peter Boyle is also. Oh, Peter movie. Boyle's? Yeah. yeah, the taxi driver? Mm hmm. Mm, it's very, very good. good. So, anyway, moving on from the, uh, the scene in the hotel where if you need broads, blow. Just dial out to the clerk. <laughs> Says herpes Ed Norton. Right. That's right. Uh, so now we're back in the police lab, and Brenda gets, like, shards of metal delivered by some doofus. Like, <laughs> some this guy, goon. Some lab goon shows up with <laughs> these shards of metal from, like, the body, I guess. You want these shards of metal? <laughs> Uh, so she does, like, a test on it through, like... This is, like, the first instance of, like, computer magic in this movie. And there's, like, a computer printout, and it's, like, a bunch of numbers, and it's, like, absorbent. Like, none of this makes any sense at all. <laughs> but I guess it dates the sword back to, like, She 600. carbon dates it, I guess. Yeah, I think that's what this is. Omicron. Oh, that's a Greek letter. <laughs> <laughs> How many members of this fraternity are in the Seacouver area? Right. So I guess this is the, kind of essentially the beginning or, or the first steps in this, like, police yeah. story. So, like, there, there's a couple stories going on. Like, we've got mm-hmm. this, like, Connor story, and then there, there's this thread, which is, like, a police invest. Like, this is the mm-hmm. mystery story. Right. We are back now at the Madison Square Garden garage. Presumably, it's maybe, like, the next day or whatever. And Connor is there with a lighter, and he's trying... I guess he's there to retrieve his sword. So he gets it, uh, but then Brenda, I guess, shows up, and she's looking for extra evidence. Um, so mm-hmm. she ends up recovering a piece of metal from a column. It's, it's the same from column. that pillar. Yes, yeah. so yeah. the pillar that Connor got his yep. sword stuck in. And she has, like, a metal detector right. that she's, like, looking for this metal with. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. If you're a Highlander fan like we are, you probably have some pretty cool Highlander swag from back in the good old Highlander heydays. But did you know there are brand new Highlander sword replicas available through the official Highlander Facebook page? Head over to the official Highlander Facebook page for beautiful high-quality replicas of Duncan McLeod's Musashi Samurai Sword or check out Connor McLeod's beautiful Genai Samurai. Handles are made with a nearly unbreakable Kevlar carbon compound and are complete with all the detail you remember from the Highlander film and television series. The handmade katana blades were created using high-carbon steel. 
The blades are heat-tempered, then water-quenched for a consistent hardness, and then adorned with a Hammond-tempered line to create a truly awesome display sword and tribute to the Highlander franchise. Stop on by the official Highlander Facebook page to order your Highlander swords today. So now we go to the bar. Right. Yeah. So they end up at P- Peter McManus's bar, which is a real bar in Chelsea. Oh, so we should say she knows somebody's in the garage with her. Yeah, she and hears she, like a can. And she, like, wrestle. hightails it out of there. Right. Yeah. And it's it's Mac. So she hightails it out of there to this bar. Right. And then I guess he follows her there because he's a creeper. Yeah. And to Kyle's point, like, this sequence makes me really question Connor's character because uh, this is... yeah. This made me really uncomfortable. And I'm like, what am I supposed to think of this guy? Like, so I know she goes, she like orders a glass of rosé or something. I'm not really sure what she's drinking. In the script, yeah. it's, in the script it's vodka. It's not. It's, it's not in this. It's yeah. not served in either of those glasses. Rosé would not be served in that glass. Or yeah. I, or maybe she's supposed to be drinking brandy because Connor brings her brandy later. Maybe. But she just orders the usual. Brandy, yeah. 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 So she starts drinking this tall glass of brandy when Mac walks in. Yep. Right. It also should be noted that uh, there's another Queen song playing, which is One Year of Love, uh. um, which I, I like this song a lot. It's it's We mentioned this a little earlier. It's kind of got that doo sort of Motown 50s vibe to it. Um, I think it was written by the drummer. Although it, this song kind of got shafted in this movie, uh, it's not supposed to be in this place. Like, first off, it's just background music. Like, it's not the soundtrack. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's just playing kind of on the jukebox or whatever. But, like, the entire point of the song is about, like, one year of love is better than a lifetime alone. And the song is written for the scene where Connor decides it's okay to fall in love with Brenda. Mm. And they felt like they had too much music and it wouldn't fit. And so they kind of like just stuck this cue in the bar scene. like Which sucks because there's this song has like its dark mirror, which is who wants to live forever. Right. Which is like this whole song with the opposite thesis that, mm-hmm. you know, living forever is pain and the, the cost of living alone effectively in the context of the scene. The song is about, you know, don't form these attachments because the pain that you'll feel later isn't worth it. Right. Whereas this song is the mirror to that. You know, it's better. It's worth paying the price to have like love for a moment even if you suffer for it later. So that's like a great mirroring. Mm-hmm. So it really does get shafted. Yeah it, yeah, it does get shafted in this place. So they have this odd conversation together. Calling it a conversation is nice. <laughs> yeah. They have a series of things they say to yeah. each other in the, in each other's direction. So t- talk about this guy. So she orders her drink and she seems to have a rapport with the bartender because she is a usual here. Mm-hmm. And then in walks Mac and he goes, Double Glen Morangy on the rocks. I wouldn't drink this necessarily on the rocks. So but. it should be noted that the three of us, Kyle Amon and I, are all cheers, everybody. We cheers. are all we are all drinking that that for the sound effects album. Uh, we are uh, all drinking Glenmorangie, uh, or if you're from Philadelphia, you would pronounce it Glenmorangie. Morangie, <laughs> Glenmorangie. That is how I pronounced it. Because <laughs> that's I, I pronounced it that way for a long time. Yeah. I think that's our accent here. Uh, I don't know. I'm prepared to say that Christopher Lambert is saying it right. I'm not. I'm not invested enough to look up like the perfect Scottish pronunciation. (laughs) Do we want to talk about Scotch drinking? Because I know people people do talk about this. Like I've seen this on message boards online. Like this Scotch order he delivers is nuts. I don't. 
don't know if I completely agree with that. I mean, we're all drinking scotch right now. We're all drinking it neat, which in the alcoholic world, which we all are, neat just means without anything. No ice. Just no put water, it in a glass. No mixers. It's just what it is. Uh, I think this is perfectly fine to drink that way. Do you guys have opinions on whiskey or scotch? I say you drink it neat. Maybe if you're going to... He orders it on the rocks. I would yep. say one rock tops. And then get your fingers wet and put a dr- few drips of water in it. That sounds good. I'm, I'm okay. Like, it depends on my mood. Like, if I want rocks in there. And usually it's like not cr- like not little ice cubes. Like, a big piece of ice that will melt very slowly. Eamon, what are your thoughts? I'm from the school of drinking that I'll drink whatever you hand me. Mm. So I, I, I'm not much of a connoisseur, so I don't have much input into this. Explains the amount of ball sweat you've drank. <laughs> Sorry. Nope, that was a... I lobbed that one, too. But you're driving towards a point. Well, I know a lot of people say, like, as a Scotsman, this is, like, sacrilege, that he has drank this on the rocks. I don't know if I really am completely... I mean, maybe I'm the outlier here, but it's like, whatever, man. Like, if he wants to drink it on the rocks... I'm fine with that. You know, I, I, I actually, I mean, not being from Scotland, I actually, if there's any Scottish people out there that would say, like, if, if this is definitely, like, a big, like, social faux pas to order it this way, let us know. Also, maybe Connor, you know, he's been alive for a while. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he likes it on the rocks now. <laughs> maybe he's just trying to get hammered to forget the horror of the th- hundreds of years he's lived. I don't know. Yeah. And then he just shouts over at her, go to Madison Square Garden much, isn't that it? Yeah. Yep. Which so, is where she just was. So yeah, that's so, And then she goes, What? What'd you just say to me? And walks over to him and, like, stands next to me and he goes, Madison Square Garden. <laughs> Do you go there often? And she's like, Do you, have you been following me? Answer is yes. Yes, I guess we are follow. I followed you here moments ago. And he just follows up by saying, I'd like to walk you home, Brenda. But he's like, <laughs> I'd like to walk you home, Brenda. It's like, <laughs> it's some creepy ass shit. It's and he also alludes to seeing wrestling matches there. So like basketball wrestling. <laughs> yeah. What is his goal here? What is the point of this confrontation? Cause he's intimidating her. Oh, absolutely. Like, like, is that the point that he's trying to scare her off his trail? Like she, he knows that she was there to yeah. investigate this thing. Presumably. Yeah. I mean, he would have to assume that she's with the police because who else is there at with a metal detector like with a metal yeah. detector at nine o'clock at night? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, maybe it is to scare her off, but at the same time, by scaring her off, he is like positively ID'd himself, like yep. as yeah. a person of interest in this, like who already was a person of interest. And he's like further confirming. Yeah. Also, this is just really creepy and not heroic or good. <laughs> He's intimidating this alone woman at a bar. And this is the sexiest man in movies at this time. Yeah. <laughs> it's also worth noting Sean Connery is literally in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Oh boy. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, I've been I've been trying I've been doing some sleuthing. Actually, last night I watched about twenty to thirty Russell McCahey music videos. In the background, off the show, you guys have to check this out if you haven't noticed it. In the background of this bar scene, there is a TV hanging from the ceiling. Uh-huh. And it is playing something. Uh, it appears to be a music video. My guess is it's a music video. Uh, only because of the director, and it seems like it involves someone playing a piano, and it looks like someone playing drums. Uh, It is going about ten times the correct speed. It is flying by. 
Like, so they have, like, inserted a video into the TV, like, on the film, and it is lightning speed. It's... Wow. And once you see it, you will not be able to unsee it. It is so distracting. Like, every time I tried to look at Connor and Brenda, my eyes just kept going to the side where all this stuff is flashing and flickering and piano fingers are going. It's crazy. Piano fingers. So anyone out there who has not noticed this odd background element, check out the bar scene in Highlander for the most baffling, like weird thing in the background i didn't notice it did you notice it that's crazy yeah i gotta watch it (laughs) and i was really hoping to like find the music video sadly i couldn't turn it up i was going through a lot of elton john stuff because i was hoping that it was going to be one of his but because of the piano stuff whatever's oh so then she follows him out of the bar like, she leaves, but, like, lies in wait for him to go. The tables are turned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, he gets basically ambushed by the Kurgan. Right. But she sticks her nose in this. And for some reason, he does not have his sword. Despite just going to get it. Yeah. I, wanted, I don't know where his sword yeah, is. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this. He tucks it in his coat when he hides from Brenda. Like, that happens on the film. So, he should have it. But, yeah, the Kurgan launches his assault on him and he fights him off with the second pipe of the movie right yeah. um, also i have no idea where the kurgan comes from because he literally emerges from yeah. below where the camera is <laughs> like he was ducking. swimming in the concrete yeah, and the just like, it was like ta-da yeah. maybe he was in the mom, Hi, yeah. mom. <laughs> in the script though an interesting thing about the script it says that the kurgan attacks mcleod so fiercely and quickly that mcleod doesn't have time to draw his sword ah. so that's the script's excuse for why they aren't sword fighting in this scene in the context of the shot though it doesn't work he definitely has enough time if yeah and he should to take that and sword he should out. have his sword because uh after this scene when he goes back to the antique shop his sword is on him right. so what happened to it yeah, yeah. i, I think it's funny that like, man begins yeah <laughs> brenda is following him and he like sneaks into an alley and like ambushes her like, yeah and he drags her like into the alley mm-hmm. like he puts her in more danger by doing that like no She's no, I just well, he doesn't really take her anywhere. She rounds the corner, he pulls her towards him, correct, and is like, "What are you doing?" Well, I was just going to say that if if he had not done that, there's a good chance because he like ducked into that alley. She might have just kept going, and she would have missed this whole Kurgan extravaganza. So he like maybe he has drawn her closer to the uh, the danger. And this thing, he doesn't necessarily have a directional spidey sense, correct. so maybe she would have just walked straight into the Kurgan. That's sense. very possible. So. Yeah, so and he is, doesn't necessarily know it's the Kurgan. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this fight is, I think, I, I think it's a pretty good fight. This is uh, awesome. It's yeah. cool. Uh, also, according to the director's commentary, they co- they filmed all of this in two hours. Wow. Which what? is crazy because also we just talked about the fight with Fazil in Madison yeah. Square Garden or the fruit stand, mm-hmm. uh, which took eight days to film. Damn. And this is like roughly maybe a little shorter. I yeah. guess. But. It's it's still like a, a fully fledged yeah it's good there's battle. some good weird locations like pipes and like weird spooky blue I hallways love, when, when Connor yeah. gets the pipe I love the sound design like he yeah. goes to town on the Kurgan like mm-hmm. back and forth it's like thud 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 and it's like this is awesome at first I think Connor does pretty well in this fight and then does really shitty like <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like back again that he's not that much of a badass yeah. Yeah. And also, this is like the only, I think this is only like the second moment of him being kind of a smartass where it's like, good to see you again. And he like is getting beaten. He's like, good yeah. to see you too. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk about that. That's different in the script too. Like, he says, good to see you again, McLeod. And McLeod like insults him or something. But I thought that was funny that they changed that to where he's like, good to see you. And then he like gets punched or something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that is kind of like Connor is, yeah, like rascally, like yeah. you said. Yeah. Like, so just to pause on that line, though 
Good to see you again, McLeod. Again as in, I saw you 400 years ago, that time I stabbed you and we didn't speak. Is that the last time they've seen each other? I, is there supposed to be? I feel like they've clashed a few times. I don't know why. That's I feel no. that way. It's, I, they don't encounter each other again. I think you're right because of their dialogue in the church later. Yeah, I almost would have liked if there had been another like a flashback to them having another confrontation. Yeah, like I don't feel like they're rivals necessarily. Yeah. Like they're painted as these opposite ends of a coin, but it looks like they had a coincidental meeting 400 years ago, and it just so happens they're the only ones left right they don't seem bound together in any way mm-hmm. they're right another uh, at least just just one that would be all you need and maybe a little bit more character building about like why they're fighting each other and like you know knowing that they're opposite sides of a coin would be helpful yeah because we also get this flashback coming up where we are now but we have this flashback to him during world war ii kind of randomly mm-hmm would have been nice. I, I kind of would have enjoyed it if the Kurgan was involved in that in some way. Kurgan's Just something. Yeah. yeah. Well, first off, I have zero problems believing Kurgan's a Nazi. <laughs> Second off, something to make it seem like this is a battle they're having through time. Yeah. Because right. yeah, yeah, this seems, this is two unrelated meetings. Totally. But if it's yeah. like, you know, there's this narrative of them fighting. and Also, you know, that they remember each other so well after so long. I mean, the Kurgan... Yeah, like, this I mean, is an important thing for him. Like, Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I felt like the Kurgan was invested in killing McLeod specifically. Yeah. I guess McLeod has reasons to hate the Kurgan, but I don't know if the shoe's necessarily on the other foot. I don't know. I would have enjoyed something to make me buy into the animosity between them a little more. Totally. Yeah. So uh, a police chopper shows up. And- With the biggest weenie ever. Yeah. Oh, well, the guy's just like, put down your weapons and remain where you are. Hey, where are you going? <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> hey, hey. It's like, aren't you armed? Aren't you supposed to, like, try yeah. to stop them? Shoot and they them. just walk away. And yep. who is the biggest weenie ever? But Bill Panzer, producer of Highlander, Whoa. <laughs> delivers that line. <laughs> uh, that is not him acting in the uh, chopper, but they did a voiceover. And so that is uh, the executive producer, Bill Panzer, and one of the uh, creative driving forces behind the series, delivering the line, What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, BP. But, like, Rest in peace, also. Yeah. It's just like, why isn't there... There's like no action on this. Like, yeah. They, but they show too much of the cop. Like They show too much of this guy for him to not have a genuine response. Right. Because they just walk away and it's like, no backup is called. It's not a yeah. thing. Yeah. Also, he's in a chopper. Like, you can follow them virtually like anywhere. anywhere. Yeah. Like yeah. Like, it's hard to get away. Yeah. You have a giant spot. You can follow one of them right. very effectively. Yep. So, yeah, they, they just needed clearly some way. They were like, well, we need to have them be reacquainted with each other before the big battle. Yep. Why don't we play a clip of, I think this is a, a nice bit of character building for Connor and gives a, a theme for the movie a little bit. God was that. I called you Highlander. What did I mean? There can only be one. Only one what? Listen, lady, you almost... I want to know. Shut up! Don't you ever follow me again. You only have one life. You value it. Go home. So this is kind of setting up some of the things introduced in this movie, I guess, so us viewers can feel like we are headed in a direction, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this could be a big theme in the movie, this this idea of like having one, one, one life. And also, like this is the first time I think we see Connor doing a good thing, like valuing someone's life. Mm. <laughs> he just says, go home. Yeah. Like... I don't know he that her, saying leave is not necessarily an act of heroism. <laughs> it's not like a villain in this ha- case is like, 
stick around, see what happens. Like, right. So out of this scene, we get a, another flashback, uh, which is the transition is a uh, like a, a truck driving by, uh, which creates like a blackout. Um, right. And then we're in kind of like a bar tavern sort mm-hmm. of scene. And again, I was trying to figure out, it's like, oh, is this supposed to mirror the other bar scene? Like, Connor oh, right. was in the bar with Brenda. Yeah. Now we're definitely in, maybe it's not a bar official sort of thing, but like... It's like, it's supposed to drinking. be a pub. Yeah, it's, it's supposed like a to be a pub. Sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. people are drinking here. We see all of, like, Connor's kin talking about him. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got Kate's there, Angus, Dougal, Cousin Dougal. And they're all talking about what they've seen with Connor, which is that he died and is somehow back to life. And she thinks he has the devil in him. Right. And she's like getting some weird pleasure out of the whole thing. Yeah. yeah she she turns really turns it on. So yeah, he yeah. shows, he comes to the bar and he's like, hey friends, I'm back. Yeah. Like, and no one is really glad to see him because they think something is afoot here. Yeah. Like, and, like he should not be back. She and Dougal are really against him. Yeah. And Angus is kind of... He's a little more neutral. He, yeah. yeah. So she breaks, like, a bottle on his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they cut to, like, this this kind of, like, banishment scene outside where yeah. people are stoning him. Also, this entire scene is cut as well from the American... Or not entire scene... Portions of this scene, the scene where he gets headbutted like six times yes. by a crazy yeah. person, yeah. is cut. Uh, so they make it like less violent. Um, I don't know if I disagree with that or not. Uh, I think the, the extremities of this makes it like more powerful. You know, like the pain he had to suffer again. He is now has a piece of wood strapped behind him. Like it's, there's more crucifix yeah. imagery. Like he is a bloodied man on what appears to be like a cross. Like he's in a crucifix stance. Uh, so we get this kind of imagery of, his, of him as a martyr. Can you walk? I can bloody well walk out of here. <laughs> Ter- <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Nice. Don't ever do that again, Keith. Ever. <laughs> ever try to do a Scottish impression on this show. Sorry. So Angus saves him by saying, like, instead of the crowd wants to burn him, especially yeah. Kate is way into burning him. She <laughs> is, like, wet over trying to burn him. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> she wants to do that like more than she's more excited about burning him than like kissing him when he was leaving for battle. Like, <laughs> so Angus kind of steps and says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Or, or we'll banish him. We won't burn him." Right. And he like saves his life, and he's able to leave. Uh, so he he leaves the the little village, and uh, then we get a I think a really another really great dissolve into the present. Connor kind of rests himself on a rock, uh, and then it dissolves into a painting of the, a, a mural of the Mona Lisa, who looks high. She has she, red eyes. Yeah, she's got very red eyes. Yes. She's blazed out of her so, mind. Uh, apparently. This was like filmed backwards, uh, so they sh- they found that mural in New York City. It's in Chelsea as well, and they thought it was really cool. So they shot that first when they were in New York, and then when they were back in Scotland, they filmed just a little scene where Connor like leaned against the rock, so they could transition back to that. So this wasn't planned; it was like backwards engineered, essentially. Uh, it's an interesting mural uh, by Stefano Castronova. Uh, hmm. I don't believe it's there anymore. Oh. Uh, sadly, it was on the side of a restaurant called the. Uh, Mona Lisa. But yeah, he actually was kind of like a famous Italian artist at the time, like for doing these sort of like controversial murals. Like he had two Mona Lisa ones, I believe, in New York. So why did they come back to the future? They come back to the future. They show the high Mona Lisa. He goes home to his like sweet loft that has a treasure room in it. And he kind of sits back on, I actually think he sits back on Ramirez's tunic thing like is on his chair and he like sits on so we haven't talked about this room so he goes into his apartment which is like this totally sweet awesome place like, Locked, it's, like yes. it's, it's yes. the, the, the best place you could ever live in new york 
Uh, and Black he's got, leather couches. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got like this crazy special secret room thing. It's like hexagonal. Uh, I know that in the commentary, like the people involved call it the silver room. I don't know what that means, but it's the silver room. Um, but it's this kind of very special, like kind of little place uh, at the heart of his apartment. And then it cuts and so, back see, to the past, and that's it. Yeah. Nothing else happens in this really feature. Really weird. It yeah. shows him go home, and then it goes back and to the past. It. I don't know why this was here. Like. What was the point? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I liked a lot of the shots. I thought there were some cool shots, but like... Yeah, I'm curious if there was any more... Was something supposed to happen? It, like, the ball stays exactly where it was. Yeah. And then it's it goes back. I, I, think the, I think they were just, like, gun-shy about being in the past too much, and they needed a way to get from him being banished to now we're in the past, and he's, like, reestablished himself. On like that could be just that like uh, like the way you would have an establishing shot for something. It's like oh, let's just put the establishing shot in the present instead of the past. past. Yeah, like it was, like it's like we just need to skip some time, so we put a, a, a blank shot in somewhere. Always at home, and then he's at home in the past flashback. That's I don't true. know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I just don't quite understand what the. It's weird. It, yeah, it felt like filler to me. Yeah, right. despite liking elements of it. Yeah, the room is cool. Yeah, and I like but, that idea, and the TV show picks up on that, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, uh, But yeah, they're, they're definitely surrounded by kind of their history, which is cool. Yeah, yeah but it's like 80 seconds. Yeah. And nothing plot-wise happens. Okay, so every Tuesday morning, I wake up, I'm ready to go to work, I get ready to listen to Highlander Rewatch Podcast, I go to Facebook, I click on the SoundCloud link, then I listen to the SoundCloud Podcast. I don't have time for this. It's time to go to work. How can we save time? Yeah, you can just go to whatever podcast app you're using and click subscribe. So what happens then? It saves you 30 seconds every time you want to listen to the podcast, but you get updates each and every week, letting you know when there's new Highlander Rewatch content to listen to. So you mean in a whole year, I can save 26 minutes? Absolutely. That's enough time to watch an entire half-hour primetime TV show. Or some of a Highlander episode that you've already seen before. (laughs) We're dicks. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So we find ourselves in Scotland again, and McLeod's doing some, what, blacksmithing? Yeah, uh, it's like he's at like a forge. I guess that's what this place is. He's making a horseshoe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he has a new setup here. It looks pretty nice. He has like a weird castle thing. Yeah, did he build that castle? I was kind of curious. I have no idea. Maybe it's... No, he did not build that castle. (laughs) Because also he doesn't rebuild it. They live there for like 80 more years and he doesn't rebuild this castle when it's destroyed. He stumbled upon a castle. Abandoned castle. (laughs) Yep. Which is awesome. I want to live in an abandoned castle, but fine. Right. Yeah. It's kind of a real place. Uh, so <laughs> they built, like, those exterior huts and stuff. This is actually really interesting. So, uh, like, I guess is it's it? like... <laughs> uh, so outside there there are like some like sheds or what like where his like little blacksmithing thing is that's apart mm-hmm. from the castle. That they built there. Uh, the castle is kind of there, although it's only a third of the size. Like, it's already was kind of in ruins. The first half, or first third of the castle is real. The rest is a matte painting, which is really cool. Since we're in the digital age, if you don't know what a matte painting is, that was kind of the way they did film effects, like special effects uh, back in the day, which involves, like, essentially painting a... uh, like painting on glass uh, and then overlaying that on the film so you could add a background and a a million movies use this technique. It's ye olde green screen, basically. Basically, right. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually, I think it's great. I, I love, like, you can't beat a good matte painting. Yeah, I don't you think, can't. like, 
digital stuff doesn't come close to like the warmth and like I think even like realism of a matte painting. Like uh, it, it, I shouldn't even say realism, but like hyper. Like it it it, it gives this like beautiful quality to a movie. I think yeah, it's more tactile than green screen stuff. Like a lot of times when you see, especially in that trans transition period where green where CG technology is starting to become really prevalent, but people haven't quite nailed it yet. Like when you see like the old Matrix movie or like the Ang Lee Hulk is a big offender of this where like things feel really artificial. Yeah, there's like, like a spatial problem. Yeah. These feel really like warm and tactile. Yeah. And that's something that's hard to replace. Yeah. So anyway, this this the the rest of the castle is essentially painted on top of the real set. And looks Fantastic. And it looks great. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing that's really interesting is this is filmed in a place, I believe, called the Queen's Cairn. And it was a place that Queen Victoria visited in 1783 uh, and had, like, a picnic there. And this is considered a sacred place. Like, there are these very big rocks there, uh, which I guess you see them kind of picnicking around at one point. Anyway, uh, they were told, of course, by the government, like, hey, you cannot, like mess with any of the stuff here like this is a historical site don't fuck around with this and they were like okay we'll do that and so then they just like brought in like cranes and moved the rocks and built the set on top of where they shouldn't have built it and they were like yeah we film real quick and then we'll move it all back so this is like real down and dirty filmmaking uh on top of what would be holy ground (laughs) (laughs) something no immortal would ever uh, defile (laughs) Uh, yikes yep I thought that was pretty good. So now we get to meet... So he's making horseshoes and stuff. Yeah, he's making horseshoes and stuff. We get to meet his new wife, Heather. Heather! She's got pie and ale for him. Mm-hmm. And, and she's she's a lovely, happy-seeming sort. Yeah. She seems much better than his old boo. Yeah. yeah. She's, she's played by uh, Beatty Edney. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a British actress. Uh, she's absolutely beautiful in this, I think. Yeah. Well, I think she, she is. She's a pretty lady. Mm-hmm. Um, she's gone on to do a lot of, like, kind of TV stuff, uh, a lot of producing work. But, uh, actually, I wanted to comment on the music here. Uh, this is, I think, the first time we, we get a... a a sense of like the Highlander score aside from, I guess maybe the, the battle scene has a little kind of like battle music. Uh, but I, I find it, it's, it's kind of just background stuff. Uh, it's not really recognizable, but I find this music just to have like that Highlander flavor to it. Um, but something that's interesting. So it, it opens, it's all just a violin playing. Um, but they're, they're, they're playing basically just like the open strings of a violin. Um, and so this is kind of like the harmonics, you would say, of, I don't want to get too much into music, uh, theory here. You've already used the phrase open strings and followed it with the word harmonics. So, (laughs) uh, in for a penny, in for a pound, I guess. I guess so. So anyway, uh, the harmonic series is essentially what Western music's, uh, harmonies are based upon. And that would be our scales, our chords, which are notes stacked on top of one another. The, the point is is that this system is derived based on what are the natural occurring vibrations in essentially any given object, but you would say in this case a string. Uh, so, you know, you have one tone in a string, you cut it in half, that's an octave, you cut it in half again, you get like a fifth, uh, a fourth, third, minor third, major second, minor second, it goes on. Uh, but these these are the way, like, strings, vi- these are the way things vibrate naturally. And I think it's really interesting that the music that we're reintroduced to Connor as when he's finally his immortal self are these kind of open strings, these harmonics, and they're, it's, it's, it's a thing that is completely natural. Like, this, this is how music exists, essentially, in nature. Like, you, you could hit uh, a, a tree branch, and 
it wouldn't sound very nice because it's very irregular or whatever, but like natural ob- objects have this resonance in them. And I think it's, it's an interesting way that this is scored that Connor is scored with like natural sounds. Um, that is interesting. <laughs> no, I was being sincere. That <laughs> is interesting. Yeah. You're giving me a look when was, I was describing it. Well, that was a, that was a long wind up for that. Pitch. <laughs> I'm sorry for the for the the the, the, the road trip we just went on. <laughs> but it, yeah, that, that's something that would never have occurred to me. I thought it was yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah. And also, you could just say it's uh, you know it's an open string on the open strings on the violin. It's like the absolute simplest thing you could ever play. Like you know what I mean? Like it it, it also kind of conveys like a uh, like homeliness, like uh, rustic quality. Yeah, very rustic quality like th- these aren't necessarily like form things like if you mm-hmm. just had a violin like you could play the opening notes to this theme just by doing nothing so it's, it's got this very simplistic feel to it um which lends itself to a lot of kind of like folk music like those sort of things are kind of built on these very simplistic harmonies and stuff so that's my little musical analysis for that but also i think you can interpret it as like i said earlier that the the kurgan is maybe a little mechanical maybe Connor is a little more on the natural side, which is evidenced in his music, especially because the Kurgan's music is all heavy metal guitar. It's electric guitar. It's not even like, right. you know what I mean? And this is a violin. So Heather says to Connor, you're all muck and muscle. And then they get to mucking and muscling. Absolutely. Yep. And the bones is, yeah, is Connor a two hump chump? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to leave that question there for a second. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> Excuse me. A two-stroke joke. Uh, <laughs> so they have like a little picnic. Well, she's like, you can do that to me forever if you want to. But maybe she's really saying like, you know, you can go more. Like you can go longer, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it doesn't have to last that short. But uh, but uh, but but bump. But anyway, the afterglow of this whole event is interrupted by... A horse. A horse, yeah. Named <laughs> Sean Connery. Yep. Right over. So, yeah, Sean Connery voices a horse in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he was cast in Dragonheart, because he had experience. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Very good. Lovely. So, yeah, Sean Connery jumps over them on his horse. And, and what is Sean Connery's name in this movie? Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. That's right. <laughs> Chief metallurgist to who? The King of Spain? King Charles V of Spain. Mm. Although, I, I've been, I was trying to find this. I believe this line is actually changed in the international version or director's cut. Hmm. That is, he is not the metallurgist to the king of Spain. I believe in the original theatrical version, he's the metallurgist to the king of England at the time, huh. or whoever. He's, it's someone different, and for some reason they changed it. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a very small change, but it was apparently made. Uh, but I thought this was interesting because he is the metallurgist to the king of Spain, and we have Brenda, who is a expert in metallurgy and wrote a book with the term metallurgy like in the title so i was like oh are these two characters kind of like paralleled together hmm. um a little bit and we'll get into this later i kind of wish they were a little more i think the answer is no but <laughs> right. that is such a striking i agree i when agree I asked, it, what the answer two... is no yeah. yeah but when asked like hey two people have metallurgy in common that's not like saying like we both like basketball right. like <laughs> that's uh, when you're allergic to metal Yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, they uh, they meet. Connor is clearly feeling ill. Yeah, and he says, "Do as I say, woman." As he yeah. pushes Heather away. It's like mm, go inside. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she leaves, and weirdness ensues. 
I guess is the fair to say. Should we play this introduction of Sean Connery? Yeah. Right, yeah. Let's, let's let's play the clip and then we'll talk about it. Smooching. Red flash of light when the horse jumps over. Greetings. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, <laughs> chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain, and I'm at your service. Who? What do you want? You. You're Connor McLeod. Weather is instantly changed. You're Connor McLeod, wounded in battle and driven from your village of Glenfinnan five years ago. Connor! Hi Go in the house. How did I hear? Do as I say, woman! So I just want to point out one difference in the script. Um... Greetings, I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, chief metallurgist to King Philip II of Spain. Mm. And he did not say that there. I no. forget the name he said. Say, uh, uh, King Charles V of Spain mm. was what... I'm ignorant of my Spanish history, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that's just a timeline thing. Like, they wanted to... Did they get something wrong, or...? I'm not sure, but I, I'm pretty sure Philip II was, like, the grand like the grandest king of no like spain at the height of its power like hmm. i thought hmm. philip ii was the one that like paid for christopher columbus's voyage and almost conquered england well um, that would be earlier than this so maybe they wanted to correct it for the timeline's sake maybe i'm not sure and again i did not pause to research that this is kind of off the cuff hmm. so yeah. someone can correct me on that but Interesting. So, yeah, let's talk about what is going on here. So, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ramirez shows up. Uh, when he does leap over Connor and Heather, there is a flash of light, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. The storm starts brewing immediately. Soon, like, they're having a very nice picnic. It's beautiful outside. Yeah. And then it is dark and cloudy right. with lightning and thunder. Also, I'd like to point out in the script Ramirez walks to their location. He's not on a horse. Mm. That's <laughs> interesting. I don't know. Is it? He's, <laughs> well, he's like com- it sounds a lot better on the horse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's like less dramatic. And he's like complaining about how hard the walk is. So uh, it's kind of funny, but that is it's funny. a little less dramatic. Right. Well, that, that implies that, like, yeah, he's made a, a long journey here, that he's been doing this for. Yeah. Maybe in the in the sense of this movie, like years, he could have traveled to meet Connor. Yeah. Which could be well, because getting anywhere would have taken years. Right. Yeah. Like, I have thoughts on this that will emerge later, but. This man's done a lot of fucking traveling. <laughs> um, uh, he does mention some interesting, like, timeline sort of stuff. He's like, uh, he, he, he gives, like, a synopsis of McLeod. So clearly he knows something about McLeod. Just he, knows the way lot. Kur- <laughs> he knows a lot, just the way the Kurgan did. Uh, but he's like, oh, you were driven from Glenfinnan five years ago. And it's like, oh, so how old is McLeod right now? Like, when McLeod got banished, he co- told his cousin Dougal uh, that he's like, we've been kinsmen for 20 years. So if that was, you know... 20 years, this is five years later. So Connor's approximately 25 years old at this point. Although approximately 20 years old when he gets his immortality. Maybe, unless he's like his cousin by marriage or something like that. Correct. Mm. That's so possible. Who knows? Because also, Nash in the future does not look 20. Yeah. Uh, he is how emphatically. Old you, how how uh, old do you think Christopher Lambert is? Oh, that's a great question. 39, 42. <laughs> Amy, you got a thought? Uh, I, 40, I'd say, like. Right, yeah. he's got a look to him. Twenty nine. What? Yep. 
Wow. That's how old he's supposed to be or how old Christopher Lambert that is? That is how old Christopher Lambert is. And I believe, according to like the, the, the script and the things laid out in the movie, I think he's supposed to be like mid-20s. If not he, even younger. He's the, an old-looking man. Well, I think everyone in the 80s looks older. Like, today, everyone looks younger. Shit in the 80s, everyone looks older. Because people are, like, tanned. They're, like, they're wearing ill-fitting clothing. They're, Smoking. Yeah. His like, voice, I think, adds to it. Like, he's got a gravelly voice. Yeah. So he doesn't, like, he doesn't sound young. Like, if you only heard him do voice work, you would I, think he was older. I buy him as that age in these flashbacks. If, Yo, but yeah. That's not how it's... But when I think of him, I think of him as Russell Nash in the future, and yeah. that man looks much older. I would agree. Yeah. I would think like late thirties. You yeah. would think. Yeah. But no, he is. Like Whereas if the whole time he was clean shaven with that hair, and you said he was twenty nine, I yeah. have no trouble buying it. Yeah. Sure. Then probably one of the most puzzling things in this movie happens, which is first off, he teleports away from Ramirez. <laughs> right. <It's Yeah>. like, <laughs> like he he vanishes and reappears <laughs> on the frontier, at, or horizon is the word I was looking for, and then just. Gets struck by lightning, and Ramirez says, What you're feeling is the quickening! And he points at him. (laughs) And then they teleport close together again. Yeah. So, is this a good time to talk about what is the quickening? (laughs) There's as good a time as any. Yeah. On on TV, Highlander, quickening is you chop off a mortal head, you get the quickening. You take their quickening, as uh, what's-his-face would say. Caleb Cole? Uh, yeah. Get your quickening. Oh, man, my voice worked today. Dougal. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everyone. But in this, the quickening is is just the state of being immortal? No, I think it's... It's like the buzz a little bit. Like, what we call, like, the immortal spidey sense all the time. It's like, that seems to be the quicket, like... No, no, I think so. (laughs) I think this is a quickening, and what happens when they cut off the head is the quickening. But what's when he gets the buzz? Is that the buzz? Like, is that something different than this? That's not named. At some point, Ramirez says that the sickening feeling you got, that's that. So the buzz is in a different form, but that's not the quickening. Hmm. So, why does this happen here? Like, what triggers this? He doesn't kill anyone. He's just, like, informed? Someone telling you you're immortal causes this to happen? I don't understand what this is. I think this is one of those, like, music video sort of things where it's, like, imagery trumps any sort of reason, like, or logic to this. It's, like, this, this does, I think, give you, like, a feeling. Like, with the music and, like, the images are compelling with him, like, reaching to the sky and getting, like, struck by lightning is, like visually cool and arresting yeah. uh but it's like none of this makes any sense like it's like huh <laughs> i just don't understand what is happening and then well, it like reskins potentially what these other things are and then there's also this weird joke that sean connery says later where they're about to hold hands and jump into uh, the river uh, and they're like this is the quickening <laughs> Let, let's quickening. let's talk about it more when we when we get some like more info from it like on it from the movie yeah. yeah but it's fair to say that the natural the state of nature here is confusion <laughs> right definitely and and again this is the first mention of this term i believe right we've not heard quickening mentioned earlier than this no no so but sean connery is a righteous point when he says it yeah 
<laughs> and it's worth noting that he's also wearing this like insane outfit. Yeah, he yeah, has like pe- a this. peacock feathered cloak that's like flowing in huge. It's like it's enormous. Yeah, I, I had some notes on this. Uh, actually, less notes and more questions. Why is he dressed like this? So it builds a lot of character. So yeah, we yeah. find out. I like it. I guess <laughs> I like it too. I was wondering. I don't think Spanish. Is this a Spanish outfit? Maybe the hat is. I don't know. I have no uh, idea. It's got peacock feathers all over it. Like it's it's super flamboyant and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. At one point, Connor calls him "you like stupid Spanish peacock." Mm-hmm. I was kind of wondering which came first. Did the, the script call him a peacock? Is just being like, oh, like using the the term peacock is like, oh, you're an arrogant jerk you know like you, mm-hmm. you strut around or whatever like you're fully yourself so we called him a spanish peacock then the costume designer read that and was like oh peacock like let's actually make him look like a little full of himself and like they dress him in a grandiose way or did it come the other way and like they dressed him like that and they were like oh like let's insult him and they called him a peacock. i'm very curious which like the chicken or the egg in this scenario i think the the first scenario weighed out is the most likely that it was written in the script and the costume designer read it and then interpreted that to yeah. be a more real world thing yeah. Yeah. And but I like buy into it. Like nothing he carries it well. Yeah, oh, sure. he's he pulls it off. Like yeah. I'm on board. It's weird, but like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a, it's a good character. Yeah. And it it fits him well. Connery acquits himself very well in this role. And so then Connery uh like kind of connects himself with McCloud. Like the, mm-hmm. they they share a bond. And what does he say? Well, brothers. <laughs> Yes, he it's does. awesome. <laughs> it's it's it it gives a warm feeling in my heart to hear him say that. And it's like you can't help but like him. He's like so jovial, and he's like he's not like the Kurgan where the first time he met McLeod, he stabbed him in the gut and tried to chop his head off. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right. In that sense, they are different. This is something. <laughs> well, now we're back in the 20th century. Back at the police station. There are a couple crazy lines. Brendan walks into Frank Moron's office, Mm -hmm. uh, Alan North, and we get treated to this bit of dialogue. A hell of a lot I can do about it, pal. You see what I'm up against? His Vietnamese neighbor ate his dog. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez Louise. (laughs) You see what I'm up against? Do you see what we're up against with this movie? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, so she's got this scheme. She's taking him out to lunch so that she can look at the file on the Madison Square Garden beheading. Right, which is on, which I, I was watching the scene a couple times. Like, it's on his desk already. Like, she comes in and peers at it. And yeah. I think that's when she kind of gets the idea, like, oh, let me get him out of here. Here's the file. Uh, so she comes up with this, like, lunch scheme. She then discovers by looking at this. And, like, he stops her for some reason. Like, she's working on this case. Like, she's a CSI yeah. assigned to this case. But for some reason, he won't let her... Yeah, he closes the, the file and he's like, this is confidential. It's like, what? Like, it's hmm. like, the, why? Why from her? She's actively engaged in this case. Hmm? Yeah. But in any case, she opens it and discovers that the person that she's seen in this bar is Russell Nash, the suspect in this beheading. Right. So, after this, we cut to Connor's, like, apartment slash antique store and he's sharpening his katana right and he has next to him a book called a metallurgical history of ancient sword making which is an insane title of a book let's Uh, i mean you write that so it flies off the shelf right yeah (laughs) um and he flips the book over and it's written by brenda hey Uh, brenda who grew up in scranton (laughs) and 
Scranton, Pennsylvania, where the office was supposedly supposed to take place. Yeah. Yeah. And her father was in the Air Force, apparently. Yeah. According to the book jacket. The book jacket. Why would you include that? (laughs) It's okay. This is the offer of this book. Let me tell you about her dad. (laughs) I mean, the picture doesn't look like her. It looks like another person. It clearly... Yeah, I don't know if it's her or not, or it's clearly a picture that was taken, like, many... Many moons ago. Like, I don't know. Like it's different like, haircut, different, like, it, all sorts of stuff. Like, it didn't jump, she didn't jump off, the picture didn't, like, oh yeah, that's the same person. Right. Like, it could be, but. Yeah. How uh, many authors are also working for the New York City Police Department? I have a lot of problems with her. Yeah, I don't know why she works for the police department. She has a, such a specific knowledge base. Yeah. That it is insane that she is, a, like, in the forensics lab, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so then there's another flashback. So we go over Connor's shoulder, and there's like a dirty fish tank. And yep. uh, yeah, <laughs> he needs to change the water. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, like it's very. No filter? No filter. Poor fish. <laughs> Hashtag no filter. Uh, uh, so he. Um, he's in a boat. He, yeah, we, we flash back, and it's a cool dissolve, I think, like, yeah. through the water. This is one of the best ones. This is another, this is one of the best like, ones. This is another one yeah. that's, like, really great. So we get treated to a, 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 another musical tidbit here yeah from sean connery yeah b-a-l-a-n-z balance <laughs> that's the balance song <laughs> yeah, the balance song. favorite balance, balance song i i that this was very funny i thought that I was really funny yeah. love this little tidbit yeah but yeah. it's so weird yeah i like it up to a certain point yeah there's a lot <laughs> So, uh, Connor is, like, balancing, what, two jugs of water or something? Yeah. Or, like, weights? I don't know what they are. He's doing some, like, balance exercise on yeah. this boat. This feels very, like, Karate Kid-esque, mm-hmm. like... Yeah. Being on yeah. the tip of a boat or, like, canoe or whatever. Uh, yep. I actually like this scene a lot. Uh, and they, they... The series, I think, does this better, but this this scene kind of shows Connor as being a little more immature. Yeah. Like, he's brash. He's, like, he doesn't understand what he's doing. Like, yeah. He's like, I don't know what the point of this is. Like, yeah. He's which, kind of petulant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, like, Duncan in the series, I think, they, expo- they they just have more room to explore that more. Like, oh, what was Duncan, what Duncan used to be like? And in this case, he's a little different, so. So, I had some questions on this. Oh, I enjoy the explanation of what a haggis is. Yeah. And that whole thing is pretty funny. That's revolting. Revolting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but this, and this what, is where he calls him a Spanish peacock. And he says, yeah. you Spanish peacock. And he says, I am not Spanish. I told you I'm Egyptian. So let's just address that just real quick. Uh, cause this is <laughs> Sean now, Connery. Now there are layers to this. A Scotsman playing a Spaniard. And or an Egyptian. An Egyptian. Either way, yeah. there's like some... He should just not be playing. This is whatever. so crazy. Yeah. The levels of like his ethnicity yeah. or whatever. I mean, it, or it, nationality, I should say. Juxtaposed against fucking Christoph Lambert <laughs> playing a Scotsman. Yeah. It's funny that the Scotsman is not the Scotsman. Right. Yeah. Okay, you're correcting this guy kind of angrily. Like, hey, I told you I'm Egyptian. But he's got the most Spanish-sounding name ever. Yep. Yep. <laughs> like, why does he use that name? Nothing about his name sounds Spanish. And he's in service of the King of Spain. What is going on here? Like, again, is this, like, the peacock sort of thing? Like, he's got this, like, grandiose name. Which but is it would fine. also have been interesting if it was, like, a hyphenated name. It's yeah. like, And if it was, like, a mixture of, like, an oddly Egyptian name and a Spanish name and a, like, Iranian. Like, you know, they could have gone through and it's like he just kind of named, like, he just kept naming himself. Yeah. 
But then it's like he goes. He clearly goes by Ramirez. Mm-hmm. Right. Kurgan knows him as Ramirez. This is not his Russell Nash right. equivalent. Like he goes by Ramirez, which sounds not Egyptian <laughs> at all. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah, I don't know why he couldn't have just been Spanish. Like he could have just been Spanish, and that would have been fine. Right. Or yeah. if they wanted to make him Egyptian, like why isn't? his name or character or anything about him remotely Egyptian. <laughs> also, like, the idea that he's supposed to be very ancient, him being Egyptian is cool and makes a lot of sense. Right. Like, yeah. when we think I think of, that's like, why they... One of our oldest civilizations. Yeah. I don't think that he was originally supposed to be Egyptian. He wasn't. Yeah. No. And so they yeah. changed it. And I think it was really just to make him older. Like, yeah. It's like, let's make him as old as we can to be, like, the, the wise old mentor, like the Obi-Wan or Yoda, I guess. Of this movie. Yeah. Yep. So he starts, like, Connor is worried because he can't swim. <laughs> yeah. So I guess Sean Connery, Ramirez, gets, like, irritated. He's like, well, fucking take a bath. But, yeah. like, and he just tips him over. Tips him over. And he's like, I can't swim. He's like, don't worry. You can't die. You're immortal. And he really means that. Like, th- let's unpack what happens now. Yeah. <laughs> so... Max sinks to the bottom of this lake. This is really goofy. Yeah, it is. I felt like I was watching Sonic the Hedgehog yeah. when this happened. The bubbles coming up. Yeah. Yeah, this is exactly what it was. And the way Connor is kind of like goofing with it, he's like, whoa. I can breathe. Yeah, I can Ooh. breathe. No, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> so this is completely different from the series in the sense that, like, you would perhaps actually die. Like, you would die and then, like, be reborn. Like, there's this element of constant rebirth in the yeah. series of Immortals. Like, if you get shot, you die, and then you come back. And we've, we've debated on this podcast right. about, like, well, I don't know what defines how long it takes to you to come back, like, or yeah. how far long it takes to heal or whatever. But, like, this is so, like this is just, like, you cannot die at all. And they, they yeah. I think, actually, they're kind of consistent, at least, within the movie, because this comes up later. Well, people get the crap kicked out of them yeah. in this, and, and they yeah. bounce back, like, instantly. Yeah. Yep. Which I think yep. adds an interesting element of, like, they're, they're like th- these immortals in this movie are more powerful than the TV show. Like, th- th- yeah, you get vulnerable. shot, you get right, you back get right up. back up. Like, yeah. you're kind of more superhuman, and so he has like gills. Like he is Kevin Costner in Waterworld, the Mariner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he can just breathe under and speak underwater, which is crazy, and walk around. <laughs> uh, so this and he like plays around. Yeah, with the sword. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, ah, what the hell, man? Uh, and then when he re-emerges from the water, it's like a cartoon drum. Drawing. Like he has seaweed like <laughs> on his body, and it's just like, oh god. Uh, so this scene was apparently filmed in London in like a on a sound studio, like in a tank. Uh, so they had weights strapped to Kristoff so he could be underwater and not float away as one does <laughs> as a living person <laughs> underwater will do yeah a little float so apparently when he first went under he had a mental like brain freeze and like didn't know what to do and like almost drowned Jesus. like when they that seems like a sane human response yeah like, that seems really stressful <clears throat> yep uh, but apparently the way this like this whole scene kind of played out was russell mckay he was above the tank and there was a diver down there, like, with scuba equipment that was, like, giving Kristoff air through, like, a tube. So, like, they would give him air, he'd pull back so they could do some lines and give him some more air. And so they were constantly, constantly swimming back and forth. And apparently, like, I guess Russell was writing on 
paper or cards or whatever, giving notes to the scuba diver. And then the scuba diver was swimming to Kristoff to be like, oh, these are some performance notes. And then, like, they would do the scene. So I, I just love, like... The, that sounds horrifying this, to shoot. Like, this, yeah, insane, this is bonkers. Like, this insane production of, like, you go underwater, I'll write you, like, secret notes that I'll pass to the scuba diver. Do you like me? You. Check yes or no. Yeah. It's like, and then <laughs> Don't also, add a third box that says maybe. Everything will be tenuous. Like, it's like... Well, there are also other ways to film this fucking sequence <laughs> than literally drowning your lead actor. <laughs> like, I guess hats off to Christopher William Bear for making it through this. And I, sure. also, I think this was like not necessarily planned the way it was, because on the commentary, Russell McKay mentions like they did this like on a weekend. They were like, yeah, I picked Christopher up, and like we went to this thing, and it's like, is this like organized at all? Yeah. Like, you guys just show up at a thing, it's like, oh, we'll do the tank thing. Like, this didn't sound as organized as maybe the rest of the shoe was. It's like, hmm. let's do some pickup shots with this. Being, some, being underwater. Yeah, pickup shots. <laughs> yeah. Let's do some, some, some aquatic shit. Pickup shots. Uh, so Connor comes out of the water like Swamp Thing uh, and attempts to murder Ramirez. Yep. I don't think it's serious, but like I was wondering that. I was like, oh, is he really? Well, now he's to- buying into. He's just. It's just been proven to him that he's truly immortal. Yeah. Like I don't think he bought it until this moment. Mm-hmm. I think that's the. Yeah. And then there's a, a maybe slight bit of magic slash trickery, and like Ramirez almost disappears. Like I think you're yeah, he goes to swipe, and then he's gone. He's gone. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you're just supposed to assume that like, oh, Ramirez is just that quick, and mm-hmm. Connor's that clumsy, or is there like re- like. You know. I think it's the first. Yeah. And then this next conversation sounds like it happens between two people on separate planets trying to talk to each other with like a 10 minute time delay. It's so weird. Can I play the clip? Go for it. You cannot die, McLeod. Accept it. <laughs> that laugh. Hate you. Meanwhile, I hate you. Right after this, fish fall out of his kilt, and then they look down at the fish. Then they look up at each other, and he goes, "Well, that is a great place to start." (laughs) It's like, what? Why? Definitely. Yeah. Like, what is happening here? Uh, I also wanted to mention something. So after Ramirez knocks Connor in the water, we were treated to a wide shot of Ramirez, I guess, rowing back to shore and singing another song. But I just wanted to call attention to the song he's singing, which is, We ask you, Heavenly Father. And I was like, oh, he is singing, like, a prayer. It seems very intentional to introduce like, religious stuff. Like, why is he singing that song? He just sang, he could have, he could have done the ballad. Yeah, he could have given us the reprise of the balance song. Or do 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 do. There's any number of things he could have kind of sung, but it's like, oh, like let's have him sing uh, a prayer. I, I kind of was wondering. It's like, oh, like we we ask you heavenly thought. Like, what is he asking? Like again, is Connor the Christ figure of this movie? Ramirez being like his guide is having trouble training. Christ to be the Messiah in this instance. Like, aren't you Christ? Like, can't you balance? Don't you know the task ahead of you? And so he leaves the scene with a prayer to God. Interesting. Thank you. Also, just to pause... I am breaking this shit down. (laughs) (laughs) Just to pause on the... uh, Because we're ragging on this a little bit because, like, other cartoonishes, these shots are gorgeous. Especially that pullback shot where this prayer is going on. Oh, yeah. They're, like, in this beautiful beautiful lock. Like, this made me want to go to Scotland. Absolutely. 
I've said like four times, like, oh, we should go there. Like, yeah. We should go to Scotland. I want to go to castles and drink beer and see all these places. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. And also, I, I think we, we should talk about like their their kind of camaraderie and sure. like, the, the chemistry between Lambert and Ramirez, I feel, is like true. Like, yeah, it is. It comes across in yeah. the film like I think Connor's best performances are, or Lambert's best performances are with mm-hmm. Sean Connery. Like, I think he brings something out of him. Yeah. Uh, they, and then they but also when he act- talks the most. <laughs> it is yeah. also true. Yeah. When he, when he does talk yeah. the most, uh, and is also not being like sullen and like yeah. grumpy. Uh, so it's nice to see like the lighter side of Connor, Mister Grumpy Gills. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It does, Gills. It's, uh, it does seem genuine. It reminds me of like Adrian Paul and Werner Stocker, where they kind of just seem to elicit more honest performances from these actors. Totally. Yeah, I guess um, Christoph and Sean Connery became like fast friends on this set. Yeah. Um, so much so that Christopher Lambert demanded that Ramirez, who <laughs> Spoiler alert, dies in this movie. <laughs> Had to be in the Highlander 2, not in a flashback. Just so they could oh, be together. Howl around some more. Right. <laughs> uh. Um. <laughs> Uh, but also, like, it's, it is kind of interesting, like, I guess uh, Sean Connery does take on a little bit of, like, real-world teacher to Christopher Lambert. This is one of Christoph Lambert's first productions, like, big ones. Like. Right. And it's like Sean Connery actually acted as, like, a mentor to him as an actor, as a, like, in addition to being, like, his real mentor in the film itself. Mm. So that was interesting. Yeah, it is. Hey, rewatchers! This is Eamon. Uh, hey, if you hey, like, we're the rewatchers. Wait, we're all the rewatchers. We're all here, and we all want you to subscribe to our podcast. Uh, that way, you don't have to download it every day. You can just get an update there, and it's uh, it's really easy. How easy is it? It's as easy as subscribing to our podcast, <laughs> <laughs> and no harder or easier than that specific <laughs> reference. Nope. And then why don't you give us a review, too? How about five stars? That sounds good. That sounds easy, too. Just a suggestion. Just push the five instead of the one. That's right. (laughs) In fact, don't push the one. Don't do it. We would really prefer you not (laughs) push the one. (laughs) (laughs) So, right now, we are uh, back at Connor's residence. Um, We're in kind of like a little shed or something it's like a little it's his sh- side shed next to his castle right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah i guess this is for like the the horses and his equipment and stuff and his, well, his smithy his castle seems like he has like his dining room in there or something yeah there, there's yeah. like it's really only one floor except it's, it's like eight stories tall like, right. there's only yeah. one room yeah the um, castle's weird it's a dining room table and a staircase <laughs> right that leads to nothing like there's no room upstairs it looks like no. It just goes up to like look out the window. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's very puzzling what this house is. That's okay. Is this like somehow a metaphor for something? <laughs> he literally lives in like a stairway to nowhere mm. in like a crumbling castle ruin that is destroyed as part of his battle, the battle with the Kurgan. I don't know. Mm. It's a such a puzzling structure that. Maybe there's something afoot. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. So, in this scene, uh, Ramirez is explaining what Connor's immortality is and what the gathering is. And we have a clip of this. So, you want to listen to this and then we'll talk about it? Let's do it. All right. We're brothers. You must learn to conceal your special gift and harness your power. Harness. Until the time of the gathering. What gathering? When only a few of us are left, 
we will feel an irresistible pull towards a faraway land. To fight for the prize. A faraway land. I really like the, the gatherings in New York. This takes place in like the ancient past, as it were, and that the, the faraway special place is just New York City. Is the new, well, it's like the it's new, the new world. world, right, yeah. exactly. How long has Connor been in New York, do you think? Is this part of the gathering that he just happens to find himself there? He's well-established. Is he just Seemingly. lucky? He's lucky that he picked New York. He didn't have to travel. I guess so. <laughs> I got the impression I... that he could have been there since the American Revolution, even. Well, they, the, the house keeps on changing hands. Right. So he must have been there mm. since the first changing of hands if he's been using the same signature. Right. We're getting a little ahead of yeah. the computer magic that susses <laughs> that all out. So there's one thing in the scene I thought that was really interesting. Uh, I brought up before uh, that this movie might have some homosexual undertones. And there's a couple things Ramirez says here that I think you could interpret that way. He says, we were born different and men will fear us because we're different. You have to hide yourself, like be closeted in some way. Hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, that's, that, could be, that could be read a little differently. Uh, so I thought that was neat. So in the next scene, we are treated to a training montage. Yeah. Which I'm a big proponent of. Uh, a little behind the scenes stuff. This training montage was originally, I want to say like 12 minutes long. What? <laughs> wow. And they cut it down to three, which is that's amazing. still, like, not short. Uh, no. It, but it's 12 minutes. Is it still a montage? Right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a it's lot. It's just they're actually showing all the training. <laughs> it's not intercut at all. Is that Does that exist somewhere? I've never seen it, no. Mm. We need a montage. Yeah. <laughs> the crazy rock precipice that they fight on is insane. Yeah. How do they get up there? Uh, I don't know how they got up they there. They probably had to be like a helicopter? helicopter. With a helicopter? <laughs> like, it's awesome that they're on top of that rock. I feel like they both kind of look nervous up there. <laughs> like, whoever the stunt people are that are doing that. Yeah. But this is an awesome, I think, sequence. And the music that is played during this sequence is amazing. Totally, right? yeah. On YouTube, I like found the song and just have been listening to it all week. <laughs> yeah, the score to this this movie is really like it's a lot of sweeping, yeah, sweeping music. It's beautiful. There's a couple of interesting things that are said here by Ramirez to Connor that are just like puzzling and don't really come back. I guess like they're not paid off later. Um, so he says to Connor that you should never lose your temper, and I was like, oh, like that's an interesting like double meaning because when you lose your temper you could refer to that as losing your head. Like, don't lose your cool, don't lose your head about something. Right. Uh, and it's like, oh, well, that's a neat thing, because that, that line is brought up a lot. Yeah, but... You- but it doesn't come back. Like, it, it would be something if, like, Connor had an anger problem, or if, more importantly, maybe the Kurgan does, and it's like, the Kurgan maybe fights too aggressively or something. Hmm. Uh, because Ramirez also brings up, he's like, don't overextend your thrust, your right. balance, and it's like, again, really, like, wh- where's the... Le-? Like, it's like, I wish that was a lesson learned, and that came back later, like, Again, if the Kurgan fights too emotionally and isn't cool, because they also set up this thing like Connor seems to meditate a little, like there's this connection with nature, and I, I do think this pays off to an extent, right? Because we've discussed like the thing that is the most badass about Connor, because he's not doesn't seem that physically threatening or like he's the master swordsman necessarily, is that he always seems completely cool, which is in contrast to the Kurgan. And the Kurgan makes a bunch of kind of crazy, unforced errors in various fights that seem to be his undoing at the end. So I think that, you know, there's at least a contrast. It's not like a clear payoff. It's not clear. I I just wish I think it was clear. Like, if we we saw him, like, make an error at the end that was specifically, like, getting too angry or getting too frustrated, especially if it was in, like, the dichotomy of, like, maybe Connor just, like, breathing and doing, like, a kata move at the end or something and then defeating... Mm -hmm. 
the Kurgan. I think then you'd really see the difference in the two. Like one of those karate kid sort of moments. Sure. Yeah, like where he like relaxes the, and he gives him the crane kick. Yeah. This sequence, I couldn't help but think that uh, Christopher Nolan watched this montage and stole it for Batman Begins. <laughs> I agree. Because they're so similar. Like even how the score intertwines with the footage they're playing and like the sword fighting on the like amazing locations. Like yeah, and Le- Ramirez cuts the uh, the tree in half and it like falls on him. falls on yeah. him. And I, that felt very like when they're fighting on the like the on ice, the ice. On the yeah. ice. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, this is the the short footing like thing or whatever. And basically lifted. I don't know. Yeah. But I thought that was interested. Yeah. Or maybe it's an homage. I shouldn't say it's a swipe. But but this speaking to the our conversation about uh, the way the sword digs into the pillar. Like this sets up the rules even more clearly about what's possible in this because right. Sean Connery literally cuts like a foot diameter tree stump <laughs> yeah. in half with one swipe of a sword like yep. it's nothing. And yep. the sword also falls off that cliff yeah. like a hundred feet like uh, and it's fine. Well, and like now Ramirez has to climb his ass down and like find the sword that like no was, metal detector, yeah, which was thrown off a mountain. It's like, oh well, I guess we have to find it now. And they're like climbing down. Yeah, stop bragging, Connor. This yeah. is going to be a pain in the butt. Uh, so we also get uh, some more info here about Holy Ground. So right. Ramirez mentions that no one will fight on Holy Ground. It's tradition, right? So we've always had this question in the series, but. They reinforce that here, that it is not a rule, it's a tradition. Yeah, none of us will violate that law. Yeah. The Kurgan adheres to it. Yeah, he does. Despite being an absolute monster who violates every other norm, <laughs> for some reason he takes this seriously. I think the Kurgan does it, like, for fun. He's like, hey, I can, you know, poke fun at Connor in this church and he won't do anything. He's like doing it as a joke or something mm. i don't know see especially because they've set up that this is so much more magical than the show seems to indicate yeah i just don't know why they just can't well connor we're getting ahead of ourselves but connor wants to fight him in the church yeah and the curtain's like oh no bro not in the church <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's like hey yeah and then connor's like we'll meet outside and i don't know what happens about that yeah. but, but they don't <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later <laughs> Yeah, so I don't quite understand why that is the the tact on the whole thing. There's also this amazing like running on the beach scene. Here. Oh, it's like Rocky Three. It's like Rocky yeah. Three, and uh, just playing into kind of the homoerotic right yeah <laughs> feel of this whole thing. Like yeah. the running on the beach, not on like Rocky Three is a <laughs> is a very homoerotic sequence. Yeah, like, it doesn't quite culminate in them like frolicking in the water like Rocky Three does, <laughs> right? But it's well, no, actually, it does. Yeah, they yeah, jump, right. they jump yeah. into the water. <laughs> they, ju- they jump off the cliff, and Sean Connery utters the puzzling line, "This is the quickening." <laughs> Wee! It's like j- diving off a cliff is the quickening. What is the quickening? Well, so th- he's like communing with nature. Like there's a stag off to the side, and at first Sean Connery's like, "Oh, concentrate and feel the you know stag heartbeat or whatever." Right. And then he feels it, I guess, and they start running. Yeah, like, does it give him... I couldn't tell. Does it, like, make him run faster or something? I, I don't know. thought so. Like, he, that he has this now connection. Like, he's got, like, a spirit animal, essentially. He's like yeah. Animal Man from the DC Comics. <laughs> <laughs> animal Man! Well, apparently this scene was really hard to great, film yeah. because uh, I guess this was shot during... I don't know if it was the spring or the winter, but I guess all the uh, the stags had lost their horns. Oh. Uh, so they had to glue horns onto his stag. <laughs> Which, of course, the SAG did not want at all, so it was right. constantly trying to get them off. And so Ugh. this is a combination of them filming this, like, put-together animal. 
uh, and some National Geographic footage. Wow. Uh, and then the stag just ran off, and they found it like the next day, like, I don't know, like 20 or 30 miles away without the horns anymore. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty stag. funny. Um, yeah, I guess this is as good a time as any to bring up this other kind of interesting thread that's in this movie, and I don't know if it doesn't pay off, but it's like, it's. It, I wish it was more prominent. So there's this this theme that there can be only one. And I was wondering what that means. Like, before I mentioned, like, oh, I don't know if this is kind of a biblical thing about deities, like there can only be one God. That's maybe one way to look at it. But, and again, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with what we find out the prize to be. But perhaps it's kind of like a little switcheroo. Like, we don't know really what the prize is, but there's this idea of oneness. And it's like being one with nature is something that Connor's all about. And so maybe that line is kind of recontextualized in that, that sense. And no, it's I, like there can be only one. Like that, that's like a, the, some sort of universal like force or like the force or whatever. Because Connor feels the, the beat of the thing. Like he seems to have like a sixth sense about stuff. Right. Yeah. I think that what you're saying is accurate. I think that is what the idea is. This theme doesn't quite come... This power doesn't quite come back. Well, I'm no. super curious about like how, uh, how this script was initially written. Like, I'd love to talk to Gregory Wine, and hopefully we will, because I want to ask him about some of these things. Like, were these themes present at some point? Like, was it conscious? And then right. just through like the drafts and stuff, like things just kind of get like obfuscated uh, as you keep rewriting. But it seems like it, there, there could be something there to that. Like, uh, if you rewrote this, you could make that like a bigger theme. Again, like, Ramirez talking to Connor about not getting angry, and like there, there seems to be this like odd Zen quality to this thing, this oneness. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. It is interesting. One other thing about this montage, obviously the point here, because he beats him in this race on the beach, then he knocks his sword away on the mountain. They show him like getting a one up on Ramirez like three times in a row for some reason. Right. So, like he beats him in like the foot race with his stag powers. Then he disarms him on the cliff, which was wildly inconvenient. Then they show yet another sword fight where Mac beats him again, as though it's like news. It's a little odd. It's yeah, I don't know like, why yeah. they come back to that third like because it seems like after the cliff, like that's the end of the montage. Like the it's music like, hey, kind of finishes, I won. and it's yeah. like, yay, and then it comes like kind of. I don't know, it has this other weird scene tacked on. Yeah. Um, which has, like, an oddly threatening element to it, because Connor gets Ramirez, and it's right. like, there's a small moment you think, like, he could kill him. Well, I don't know if we think as the audience, but Ramirez seems to think, like, uh-oh. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, Sean Connery's definitely in that mode, and the whole thing has been about, you know, there could be only one, we fight, we fight to the last. Right. Do you kill this guy? How seriously are you going to take winning this thing? Right. Now we're in some kind of market, where Heather is buying a chicken? Yep. <laughs> yeah. This is. I think this is a pretty nice looking scene. Like the yeah. stuff in Connor's village initially. Like good sets, great costumes. Like also a lot of extras. Uh, yeah. All kind of killing it. So there's like, there's a, like a wrestling match. Yeah. There's a boxing, boxing match yeah. or something. Like bare knuckle boxing or something. Two old guys just yeah. beating the crap out <laughs> of each other. Those guys did not look young. No. Uh, so we get more kind of info about immortality from Ramirez. So Ramirez tells Connor that he can't have children. Of course, Connor's like, well, Heather won't be happy about that. I can right. tell you that for nothing. Uh. And then Heather's like interacting with some local, uh, I don't know, orphans or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Street urchins. <laughs> well, I think, so uh, there's another interesting, I think you could read some meaning into this not having children thing. I think it's interesting the fact that by virtue of being immortal, they can't have children. But in, so, in some ways, I think having children is a way to become immortal. Like, like you live on through your children. Like, your bloodline right. continues. So, so anyway, I think it's really interesting that they can't have children because, in a, in a way, that's the way us normal people can live on with kids. Then the other thing I was thinking... 
uh, if we want to read it, this as some gay subtext, is, again, 1985, when this was filmed, is a very different kind of culture, especially gay culture in America. And if you think of a man and a woman, they can have a child, but two men in a, in a relationship actually can't have a child. Uh, now it's different, obviously, you can adopt, and there's surrogate parents and all this other, the, you know, the, the, the world of that is very different now. Right. But in this context, it's like, maybe he's kind of saying, he's like, well, because of your, like, your orientation, you can't have children. Well, that's another, mm. that's an interesting thing, because in, uh, I think, Wyden's original version... Connor has sired many children over the course of his long life, and for whatever reason, right. that was changed. And I'm not sure whose decision that was. Yeah, but that, I do think it's cool because it also cements the isolation that they feel as immortals. Because it does create a definitive separation between them and mortals. It means that they can never truly put down the roots they want to put down, or really have a kind of normal quote, family life. And Sean Connery, um, he's basically telling, or Ramirez is telling Connor to, you know, leave Heather. This is another thing I thought you could read into. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, like, you shouldn't be with your beard. You should come with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's and interesting. But, <laughs> but Connor's not down for that, and he gives a giant hug gesture to Heather with the chicken. <laughs> and she's like, he's so full of life. Talking about the chicken. It's like, let's eat him for dinner. <laughs> He grabs her butt hard too in this scene too. Mm-hmm. Gets all up in it. Oh, Connor's a butt man. That butt man. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Ramirez tells Connor about his sword a little bit. Yeah. And about one of his wives, Shikiku. Which this whole thing is very historically problematic, and I don't understand much of it or why any of it's going on. Yeah. I mean, how did Ramirez get this sword? Is that one of the inaccuracies? Yeah, in 593 BC, like BCE, he gets this sword in Japan. So he's born in <laughs> Egypt, but then he somehow in 593 makes his way to Japan. Like, how does he pull this off? Like, he basically goes halfway around the world in an era where... There's not that kind of intercommunication or travel routes or safety. <laughs> it's like, how does he get there? How does he, like, get himself established? Well, I guess he's he's immortal, so he's got all the time in the world. I, I guess so. He must be very old at this point, then, also. He's, right. He's got to be over 2,000 years old when we meet him. He says in this scene, I think he says, I was born 2,437 years ago. Okay, so he's pretty young when he does this, then. Right. As, like, someone who theoretically could still be in his mortal life, he manages to make it to a place that would be literally mythical by comparison. (laughs) (laughs) And then discovers an anachronistic sword, somehow. So he gets the sword, which is, I I don't know, the the sword, I guess because it's anachronistic, like, it's got this special quality to it, like a lightsaber or... Literally, uh, it's a two thousand year old sword well yeah i mean yeah. But, or like lord of the rings like this is like the hero's special weapon oh you know like what I mean? sting the the glowy orc sword from the hobbit oh right uh, right but yeah a lot of kind of mythological stories have these kind of special like the sword in the stone sort of weapon mm-hmm. uh, that allows the hero to complete his journey i just don't understand why yeah this was a necessary ingredient of this whole thing eh, i don't mind it i think it's kind of fun yeah if you don't think about it it's fine yeah yeah but it's actually a big part of the story yeah the sword is what blows up Connor's spot because the metallurgist character. Right. <laughs> it's like their hint that something is a foot. Something's wrong, yeah. But it has nothing to do 
really with immortals. No, it's just an odd sword. It's just an odd sword. Yeah. Like, it's not actually... We never established that Shikiku's, which was uh, Ramirez's last wife, that, like, her father is, like, immortal or right. magical in some way. He's just this dude who invents steel, right. <laughs> basically. Well, and they, they chose the name for his father. I think her father. We talked about this on another episode, Masamune, who's, like, in Japan. I think he actually existed, but he's kind of reached mythical status. Right. And he's, like, a swordsmith or sword maker who made, like, the most famous swords. Right. But not in, like, 600 BC. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. I, that I'm sure is probably <laughs> sure not like the case. Middle Ages <laughs> Japan. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure these weapons were being used, like, then. When this movie, when this scene is being shot in, like, 1500s, that's when people were using these things. <laughs> not <laughs> yeah. right. 2,000 years before that. So Ramirez warns Connor about falling in love because he's trying to protect him because the pain of loss is too much to bear. Right. So you gotta, you gotta book it, Connor. Stitch the ladies. Connor is not about that. Right. So then they start talking about the Kurgan a little bit. Yeah, they're back at the castle, hanging up on the the fourth, hanging out on the fourth story of the castle. Yeah. Can we just pause for a second and point out? I mean, we're about to get into get into this pretty interesting action beat, but we're like forty five minutes into the movie. Yeah. We have only just learned about the gathering. We have only just learned about that. Losing your head is what causes you to die. Right. Like, all these rules that we take for granted, if you are familiar with the Highlander universe, come very late in the context of this movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they they dole it out pretty slow. Yeah. Well, I guess now we, the viewers, can be safe in knowing that Connor isn't just a crazy, like, axe murderer decapitator guy. Right. (laughs) Which up up till now is a viable theory. Right. (laughs) So she's just based on that movie poster. Yeah, it's crazy. Ramirez gives Connor some info on the Kurgan. He says he's from the steppes of Russia. Right. Uh, from the Kurgan clan, I guess. And they would throw children, children? into dog pits yeah. for meat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I guess the, their whole clan of people were pretty awful. So the, It's also interesting that he's the Kurgan, just like he's the Highlander. Right. Right. So, again, these titles, we've talked about this a bit in the context of the show, that people, as they're traveling through time, maybe develop reputations or titles that just kind of follow them. I think that's set up here, and it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. It also makes a little bit more sense about, like, the immortal Rolodex that all these people <laughs> seem to have. But. Yeah. Right. Well, and also Ramirez describes the Kurgan as the strongest of all the immortals. Right? Yeah. And the perfect warrior. Yeah. So that's that's interesting. Because hmm. he already knows this somehow. Right. Yeah. So they've, they've at least faced each other before now. And Connor asks, how, how can you defeat such a guy? And Ramirez says, <laughs> with heart, faith, and steel. Which reminded me a lot of, uh, what is it, Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, Can't, Can't Lose, lose. Whatever, from, <laughs> from Friday Night Lights. Uh, but he, Ramirez does mention faith, uh, which I thought was another interesting yeah. thing. Again, these religious elements are sprinkled throughout this mm-hmm. uh, pretty liberally. Also, this is another one of those things that doesn't come back. Because, I, I, again, like this don't lose your head sort of element, mm. like stay calm. It's like, well, how do you beat the Kurgan with heart, faith? And steel. And it's like, okay, so then flash forward to the end of the movie. How does Connor beat him? Like, do we see that analogy? Like, with heart, faith, and steel? Like, you know what I mean? Like, again, I don't feel like that little mantra is present at the end like in some way like we don't again i don't know we don't see any sort of manifestation of those those things yeah not, like connor doesn't talk about yeah you know 
Not really. Yeah. No. Because I never feel like Connor has heart. Like, again, he seems like a guy that's just scraping by. Like, yeah. he's barely survived through the years. Right. Like, a reluctant warrior sort of guy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how this fits in. It's another one of those things that probably could have been written a little differently. Sure. So then um, Ramirez and Heather are having, like, some one-on-one time. I don't know what Connor's doing. I forget. If they say anything, do they ever say what? He's they just don't. off. He's just not there. Yeah. Uh, it's they, a cool shot. And, and yeah. like... Uh, to intro this scene, like the camera comes in like through the window and then comes all the way down the castle. Yeah. Like uh, this is like a cool old like I don't know. It's in like Orson Welles Citizen Kane sort of technique, like where they'll put a camera through the set, but the set comes apart. That way, the whole camera can fit through. So it like it sneaks its way through the window, but then the the set blows apart behind it, and then it can move around freely in the room, which is pretty cool. That's ah, a nice little technique. Yeah, and it, it like there's a really cool matte painting. We were talking about this before of the their castle and like a storms of Bruin. Uh, so there's some weird like thunder effects on the matte painting. I don't know how they did it, but there's like lightning like mm. shown on it. It's really interesting. That's um, cool. Cool special effect here. But mm. yeah, I really liked that. But they're just hanging out, having dinner, drinking some wine. Getting shmammered. Yep. Yeah. Ramirez is recounting his like past adventures. Yeah. That was good. He's, he's being charming as usual. And enter the car again. Yep. So I guess he kind of gets the buzz. And somebody on like Facebook or SoundCloud or Twitter mentioned this to us that the original cut of the movie did not have a buzz sound at all mm-hmm. that the camera would just zoom in and the director's cut they added that sound effect to make it congruous with the the tv show so that, that was interesting so yeah. i'm not sure if that's true or not uh that's hmm. that makes sense though yeah uh, interesting so he gets the buzz and then the kurgan busts through the door yeah yeah it's kind of awesome also he looks this is the first time we really get a good look at him not in his skull helm yeah and he kind of still looks like a punk rock guy in the past yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. he has like weird like fur fringes or something and it's like a sleeveless armor right yeah Yeah, because you don't have to protect your arms for some reason nope well but he bursts through and like leaps into the room and chops a table in half right bust up in the house (laughs) (laughs) so this was clancy brown's first day of filming apparently oh i think i read this Uh, yeah he was super nervous about doing this scene so he busts in and instead of chopping the table in half like he swung the sword the other way and like hit the chandelier he almost hit connery in the face Uh, apparently connery like stormed off the set he was so pissed because he almost got hurt uh clancy brown apparently felt very bad and like apologized profusely he was like i was super nervous and they got on with the the shoot but interesting tidbit kurgan hates that table yeah (laughs) he's probably just angry he wasn't invited to dinner honestly this scene's awesome like it's good they start fighting connery gets an awesome slash on the kurgan's neck like beat right one of this fight (laughs) like he cuts the table in half and then yeah. Just gets nailed. Yeah. Right. And, and Heather's in the corner, like, screaming. Yeah. Uh, and the camera's, like, kind of flying all over the place. This mm. reminded me very much of, like, Sam Raimi, uh, like, the shooting style. Like, yeah. The camera was, like, I don't know, a lot of, like, low camera stuff, like, riding along the floor, zooming up to people. Yeah, it felt like the Evil Dead or something. And then Connery's like, oh, my cut has improved your voice, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, Two things about this segment. So, one, we often kind of wonder what the rule, like, the Im- immortality power rules are in terms of healing. So this introduces two items that we see very clearly in this fight. One, they're way more like superheroes in this than they are in the show. 
Like, the healing in the show seems to be relatively slow. It's not instantaneous, certainly. And you can die in the show. Like, people die and are reborn, essentially. They can be out of commission for a little bit. Right. Whereas in this, it seems like anything that doesn't remove your head, you almost instantly recover from. Mm -hmm. Because despite having his his throat brutally cut and, like, later being stabbed through the stomach, the Kurgan is A-OK. Like, he is fine. At one point he takes like a multi-story fall and just gets back up <laughs> right. instantly. Yeah. So that's one side of this thing. The other side though is he is left with this massive scar across his throat that evidently permanently affects his voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what other wounds does he carry? Like what how other, how else do persistent injuries go on? Like when Ramirez stabs him through the stomach, does he just permanently have like a <laughs> giant scar there or like it, are his intestines permanently ruptured? Like, what's the like? What are the results right. of of this kind of injury in the script? Connor's nude body, because later he takes his shirt off, is uh, supposed to be riddled with scars, mm. and it's not in the movie. Interesting. So, who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's it's all a question mark. It's really yeah. cool the way it's they cool. do it. Yeah, um, and again, I think this is one of those like style over substance things, like because the visual imagery you get later of the Kurgan with the scar on his neck, and he puts safety pins. In it, it's yeah. like, and he has this crazy voice. It's like that to me. I think is worth a leap in any sort of logic in this. It's like whatever. Like you yeah. get that image. That's pretty awesome. Like so, I'm cool with forgiving it for whatever other problems sure. this brings up. <laughs> Here's a question: Is his voice different in the beginning of the movie and later? Because I didn't notice a difference. I couldn't really tell that much either. Uh, I also don't think you get to hear him talk enough to really notice a like difference. Because he says one line. Yeah, because Connor's like, no, "Oh, it's improved your voice," and it's like, "Wait, yeah. what? What did he say before?" Like, because he comes out screaming anyway. He's like, "I'm yeah. here for you." Well, before he said, you know, we had a deal, and there can be only one, and another time. So he does have some dialogue. I didn't notice a difference, but I, th- I do think his voice is less gravelly before this sequence. Probably, it's, like, it's hard to tell. Yeah, it's such like a powerful deep voice in the first place. So. Yeah. Just in saying more about how kind of uh, bizarre this structure is, they do fight their way up the stairs, revealing yeah. no other rooms. And this house is either these are like, this is like the Battle of the Tough Guys, or <laughs> uh, or this castle is made of foil. <laughs> because they literally destroy this rock castle by hitting it with right. swords. Well, I think it's supposed to be the whole magic like thing we were talking about earlier, because there's also a storm happening when they're fighting. And right. they're like fighting up the steps and lightning striking the castle, and the, their swords, like you said, are like making rocks explode off right. the side. And like, like <laughs> fall down the steps like you can tell they're styrofoam but right. it's still pretty cool and like they they cut like big holes open in the castle and you can see the storm outside it's it's really dramatic and, yeah. and awesome i like the way this is staged also because this is all on a set right uh unlike m- most of the other scenes in this this movie um but like the set is kind of chintzy uh but i think that's really great in this scene like this yeah. feels like this ger- germanic like opera like this is like we're watching like wagner or something yeah. uh like and i think it's added to the fact because it's like it looks like a backdrop and it looks right. like a set and then there's two people like swashbuckling up the stairs and it's like and the music is really like over the top like mm-hmm. it, it sounds like something you'd see in like an old movie or something yeah um, or an opera uh mm-hmm. so yeah I, I think that's a, a, a really fun setting for this this fight so they they go up and up and up to a stairway to heaven a stairway <laughs> that like doesn't lead anywhere yeah and uh, the kurgan well ramirez gets a stab in through the kurgan's gut but after that 
that Kurgan kind of gets the upper hand. He says some really creepy stuff. He's going to kill Ramirez. And he's like, oh, you're a woman. Like, she'll be mine. It's like, gross, man. Like, yeah, it's real very gross. rapey. Yeah. Well, literally. Yeah, literally rapey. rapey. And Sean Connery spits in the Kurgan's face. Yep. And then that's the end of Connery. He gets his head lopped off. Yep. Uh, but this quickening is different than the first quickening we've seen. Like, I noticed that, like, Connor and the Kurgan have different quickening styles, it would seem. Hmm. Connor got, like, lifted off the ground, and he's yelling a lot, and there's all this lightning. Like, the, the Kurgan's is different. He, like, just closes his eyes and, like, shakes a bunch. Well, well does he get struck by lightning a bunch of times? Oh, maybe he does get struck yeah. by lightning here. But yeah, I, felt, I still feel like they're different. This looks more akin to what happens in the show, where you just kind of, like, stand there and are getting bombarded with electricity. <laughs> uh, and then, for some reason, I guess, played for laughs, then the stairwell falls out from under him and he just falls? Yeah. I don't, I don't know what that's about. And I guess it's all for the, the shock at the end where his hand grabs Heather's neck and he's like, hello, pretty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess, but we already know, we've already seen him take essentially an identical fall in this scene. Yeah. We know he's fine. Yeah. After this, we cut back to the present. We're at Nash's antique shop. Right. And Brenda is uh, doing some snooping. Right. So presumably she got this address from, I guess, the file that was on Moran's desk when right. he was talking about eating dogs and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's there to inquire about this sword. Right. Mac is like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't mm-hmm. deal with weapons or anything. Uh, but then they decide they're going to have dinner together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's just like, would you like to have dinner? Would you like to cook for me? <laughs> <laughs> It's like, huh? Yeah. I don't know why she says yes. I guess she's still interested in the sword thing. Well, but I also am curious why he wants to have dinner with her. Like, yeah. what, does he really like her? Is this a scheme of, why? like, what does she know? Like, I don't understand what he, like... In the script, like, she's really hot. <laughs> this is, like, the script, whatever it describes Brenda, it's like, Brenda looks really sexy and like, uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever she's wearing. But, like, in the script, like, Connor's really attracted to her and wants to get to know her more. It's so absurd. So like, so, that makes it so hollow. A, she's yeah. literally a cop. Like, yeah. she's... And he actually, knows it. She's actually dangerous to him. Yeah. And they've interacted... Not at all. Like, well, maybe he he's no also reason. trying to like find out how much she knows or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I, I can't really figure out. I don't know. It's it's really hollow. The, the reason these two characters are together at all. Yeah. I wish there was some, something more built in. I mean, I get that he's lonely. I guess sure. that's what they ultimately present is the reason. Like, he's lonely and he's looking for a connection with somebody. But why like, her? Well, why like, her? Yeah. Well, they can start talking about swords together. They, they, they have, like, a mutual interest. You know what I mean? Hey, uh, you like swords? I like swords. <laughs> yeah. I, have you ever cut a head off? I mean, I I haven't, but... <laughs> We're that involves a sword. Am yeah. I right? <laughs> We're also introduced to Nash's secretary, who yes. is... Uh, an actual, more than just a secretary, this is a, a character. Right. Her name is Rachel, we'll find out. Yeah, we don't know too much about her yet, but she's she's there. One, this is my note about what's the deal with the steel, because I'm pretty sure at the earliest, steel was invented in, like, 400 BCE. So, like, even the earliest, like, <laughs> versions of steel were not invented when this guy did it. And even then, it's not like you make, like, a masterful samurai sword out of this thing. Right. That's point one. Point two, though, <laughs> then we get this weird cut so i guess john polito is blowing up brenda's spot while eating old-timey doritos, doritos. yeah <laughs> Which, good choice john polito that's right but he's like 
Hey, our friend Brenda was hanging out with Nash. <laughs> Brenda. Yeah. You look very pretty, Brenda. And so, again, nothing really comes of this either. Like, this scene is there just to let you know that the police know that Brenda and Mac are doing something. That right. They're meeting up, so then they start following her to keep an eye on On him. I guess that's him, it. But, I like, guess. I don't know. None of this police stuff pays off pays in off this at, movie. Oh, it no. disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now we are at Connor's place, and it's nighttime, and this whole entire scene is cut from the U.S. release. Oh, wow. And that's a problem, because this is really important. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so we see Mac interacting with Rachel. He's, like, getting ready so, for date night, right? Yeah, he's getting ready, and she's, I guess, getting worried, like, well, people are asking about you, like, I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, you should just tell them I'm immortal. And then you get this smash cut, which is pretty great. Like, the, the, the screen essentially explodes, and we are now in World War II. Right. Yeah, and he's wearing... He looks absurd. He's wearing these words, suspender yeah. get-up. It's worth noting, he's not a soldier, seemingly. No. Yeah, he this, looks like a civilian. This is what made me pause, because you mentioned earlier, so he's established in America before World War II, right? Is that... He's definitely, this? like... He's the American property here. Yeah. Yeah. Why is he... <laughs> In Germany, presumably, or wherever, during World War II. Yeah, because he's not a soldier. Yeah, he's not dressed in military garb. Is he a spy? Is he like Inglorious Bastards? I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I, I, you have no reason to assume so. Yeah, but he's on like a battlefield. It looks like he's like he was a civilian somewhere, and like the fighting found him wherever he was, and he's trying to like escape or yeah. something. I don't know. It's it's confusing. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Could... I never thought about it like very hard at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, could be just like Duncan in the show. He bounces around between Seacouver and Paris. He probably sure. has multiple bases of operation, not yeah. just whatever property he owns in New York. So, I mean, I guess it might make sense. Right. But you know there's a war going on. Like, why yeah. wouldn't you... If you didn't want to be involved, you should probably get out. Right. So, uh, before we talk about this scene, this is kind of interesting. So, this scene was in the script, then it was out of the script, then it was back in the script, then it was out of the script. Like, they kept not knowing if they should shoot the scene or not. Uh, so, when they were done the movie... They didn't shoot the scene at all. And after they watched the cut, they were like, uh, I think we really need that scene. So they went back. Of course, they had no more budget. So apparently Russell McKay and Bill Panzer paid to have this scene shot with their own money. Wow. Uh, so Russell took his like music video crew out, and they kind of put this together really quickly. But yeah, it's interesting that like the producer and director felt strong, like very strongly about this scene, that it should be in there. I agree. Like This helps, I think, with that character. I suppose this is the this is like the genuinely good thing we ever see Mac do, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, this might be it. Yeah. Honestly, I can't think of another Heroic truly thing? altruistic thing he does in the movie. Yeah. Well, he like does he... bring Brenda a gift later. <laughs> <laughs> so he finds a girl uh, like hiding in a barn. Yeah. And uh, is she like under rubble or something? She's crying. Or am I missing? I don't think she's under hiding. Rubble. Yeah, I think yeah, she's just she's hiding, hiding in like a okay. stall. Yeah. And so. He finds her, and he's going to help her get out of there. And then a Nazi comes over. It's worth pausing for a second on Connor's overall appearance. He He looks looks like shit. He looks fucking (laughs) terrifying. Uh, Whatever makeup they have on him, I guess his face is supposed to be dirty. He looks like green. He looks like he could be in The Walking Dead. (laughs) Oh, maybe he's a chimney sweep. (laughs) 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 That explains why he says chim-chim-cheree all the time. That's right. (laughs) It's like step in time, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
he like if I was a small child and this disheveled man in suspenders <laughs> opened the door and said like you look hi <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd be freaked out Madison so, Square Garden <laughs> <laughs> so this crazy Nazi shows up and he also just pulls up in a car <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, and for some reason checks out this, like, he... I don't know, he knows they're in there or whatever? Like, I don't know. Uh, but apparently the first Nazi, like, got angry and was not happy about the shoot, and he stormed off the set. So this is the second... Why? I don't know. Uh, but this is the second unit director dressed up as a Nazi. <laughs> uh, Interesting. Doing this also, scene. who's this fucking extra? Who's, like, yeah. <laughs> like, this bit part player who's like, you know what, I'm going to storm off the set. <laughs> yeah. I've got that kind of clout. <laughs> Very strange. But, and this Nazi goes straight for shooting. Like, yeah, there's no like machine gun he or just, something. He just sees a man in suspenders and yeah. shoots him. <laughs> well, he's a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Actually, that is enough for me. Yeah. But. So Connor gets right back up. Again, yep. speaking to this, like, you can't, like, it's like they almost can't be hurt at all. Like, it knocks yeah. him down, and he just gets right back up. He tells, uh, like, the girl's curious, like, how this I happened. Have... He says, it's a kind of magic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he gets back up, and he, like, fights with the Nazi. Yeah. And then, I guess, do it. I think we have the clip of this if we yeah. want to play this. Yeah, let's play this. This, this is, is a great line. I'm alone. Come with me, Rachel. Wow, he does look like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. It's also like miraculously nighttime out. Yeah. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey, it's a kind of magic. Hey. <laughs> oh. Ah. It's too time. Move. Nine. Erst musst du mich erschießen. Whatever you say, Jack. You're the master race. <laughs> Let's go. Whatever you say, Jack. You're the master race. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, it's, it's insane. It is insane. Yeah. Also, what's this? Like, what was this Nazi's plan? I don't know. What once? Mac had the drop on him. And then Mac, like, that's pretty cold-blooded. He just yep. takes him out. I have no sympathy because that's obviously a Nazi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but again, we, we get this picture of Connor as being like, kind of rat. Like, this is, I guess, funny? Like, it's, it comes across to me as really awkward it's and funny. weird. But it's like... It's, I think that is, but again, it's supposed to be like, he's the, he's a little smart mouth. Right. Yeah. Kind of Han solo yeah. character. We don't get to see enough of that. Yeah. But I do think that's who it is. Yeah. But in this scene, we don't have any confusion. The Nazi did shoot first. Yes. Successfully. Right. Yeah. <laughs> shot him first. Uh, and of course, uh, this line, It's a Kind of Magic, inspired the Queen song. It didn't come the other way around. It's not like Queen wrote It's a Kind of Magic, and then they stuck that line. Right. Like, in the in the movie. And just for a second, I just want to talk about the It's a Kind of Magic music video. If you haven't seen it, definitely watch it. It's insane. It's directed by Russell Mulcahy. Uh, it involves Freddie Mercury kind of dressed up like crazy theater-like actor, like the Phantom of the Opera. Like, he's got a big cape and a hat on. Uh, he goes into, like, an abandoned theater. It's full of, like, hobos. Uh, and then I guess he kind of brings the theater to life with music. <laughs> so the band is playing. They shoot a lot of electricity out of their guitars. Then the whole band becomes, like, cartoon characters and dance around it's insane this, this music video is insane watch it it's really great it's a kind of magic yep are there other kinds of magic well yeah this is just one kind yeah <laughs> so there are other kinds uh so then we're, we're back in the present and yeah. i guess rachel is saying goodbye to mcleod and so i guess we're, we're left with a bunch of different questions here like yeah. oh well you know obviously i guess he raised her in some capacity right uh, we're left wondering like i wonder if they ever had a thing or not no i don't think they ever did no that's disgusting 
no, no, that's like some Woody Allen shit. Well, no, I think I, this is my interpretation. Obviously, they give you no information to base this on. I, I get the feeling that maybe like she loved him at some point. I and, got I got that vibe too, and, uh, and also and Connor he, he's, says he doesn't want anything to do with like yeah, a relationship like yeah. that. Well, I also get because he says our relationship has like taken lots of forms over the year. That might right. be in the script. I thought that was a weird. No, I think it's in the movie too. Yeah, comment. Well, that makes well I. I don't know. I would just interpret it as you literally found her as a child, and now by outward appearance, she's older than you. Right. right. Considerably. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. If he's supposed to be, That's true, too. She's yeah. like twice... If she's supposed to be like 45, yeah, yeah. in the context of the movie, she looks twice as old as Russell Nash mm-hmm. if he's supposed to be right. like 20-something. Yeah. So... I don't know. I didn't interpret it that. And insofar as that was ever an ingredient of their relationship, that is kind of disgusting and deplorable. Well, I, I don't think I got did. it. I from, just, I just no, got the. Yeah. I got a vibe had from, feelings to him. To yeah, him. I got yeah. a vibe from her watching it. I did not get a vibe from him. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's more acceptable. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't like, think anything ever happened. But I, I, yeah, I do get that vibe that she yeah. had the feelings for him. I guess feels. it's a little weird that she's a 45-year-old woman who effectively lives with her dad. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. like, yeah, I'm my dad's secretary at yeah. 45. <laughs> so she's trying to give him permission to, like, love again. Like, right. You, you don't have to be alone all the time, blah, blah, blah. Um, also, I think it's interesting, um, I, Ramirez mentions having three loves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, this is mirrored, Connor has three loves. There was Kate, uh, who, of course, turned against him and was an insane person. Yeah. Uh, then there was Heather, and now there's Brenda. So right. they both have three loves. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, Brenda, who's getting ready for date time. Date night. And she has a, a tape recorder hidden and a gun. This is... I don't get any of this. <laughs> well, she thinks he's a murderer. Yeah. Oh, Which, yeah, by so. the way, he is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lest we forget, he literally did cut off this guy's head, and we know nothing about... The, we still know nothing about the person he killed. That's true. I guess now we, we have the, the skin over it that it's part of the game. Right. Right. Which they don't call it the game, do they? I was no. about to say they don't call it the game in this. No. no. Which I like the idea that it's a game because then there's also a prize. Hey, just give me the prize. All right. Uh, oh, something. Speaking of things they they don't call or whatever. I was I was just thinking back on our our previous episodes when we mentioned. Oh, how did the Kurgan know Connor was immortal? before he had turned immortal. Uh, and I was like, oh, we actually uh, accidentally brought our knowledge of the show into this. Like, the movie never sets up that you have to die before you become immortal at all, does it? Nope. No. Absolutely. So, like... Yeah. Uh, which also then makes me question, like, why does Sean Connery look old and Connor look young? Like, you know what I mean? Like, at what point... I just assume there's no rules about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I think it makes a lot of sense in the show for them to set up that rule, and that defines, like, where people are in their lives when that happens or whatever. But, yeah, I I realized that we accidentally brought outside knowledge to this. And that's what you don't do. What you don't do Mm -hmm. is import other fantasy rules into your fantasy movie. (laughs) This whole thing is bonkers. Mm. But I understand. I guess she's trying to record information about where the sword came from. Right. I guess maybe while she's at it, solve a murder. Yeah, Yeah. she doesn't seem to care at all about the murder. It's all about the sword for her. I think the tape recorder is about the murder. Okay. Yeah. See, I, I, I don't know. Mixed purpose, maybe? Yeah. But mm. I get the impression this is like a little bit self interested. Like she's curious about this, but she's apparently got a career as a metallurgist. Yeah. And this is a, this would be like a life defining discovery for her. It would. So this whole thing's a little 
self-interested on her part. Mm-hmm. She has a cool apartment. She has some uh, samurai swords decorated. Swords everywhere. Yeah, and she has like a painting of like a Scottish person. It's like a historic. Right. Like, and when Connor comes in, he kind of looks at it and he's like, oh, look at this. <laughs> so Connor shows up trying to look charming, I guess. Uh, yeah. Without lo- shaving. Yeah, it yeah. looks like he maybe made an attempt to iron his coat. Yeah. Maybe. No. no. Uh, I, when he opened the door, I, I immediately I, thought, I was like, this looks like two children stacked on each other's shoulders <laughs> trying, to, trying to sneak into a building. He's the Muppet Man. Yeah. Yeah. And he has a present. And some flowers. That's right. Yeah, no, he does not look like he's on his way to a date. No. It's like, at best, he took that jacket and, like, put it in a, a room while he was taking a hot shower. <laughs> so, Brenda goes to, like, freshen up or something before their date. I think this scene's really funny. Like, Connor immediately finds the tape recorder and finds the gun. And he immediately just starts snooping. So yeah. let me play this clip because this is his his dialogue sounds like a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, and he looks like one. <laughs> so he's looking f- through her drawers, pulls out the gun. I like your place, Brenda. I think that's really funny. I really like that. That's great. And he's just smiling ear to ear. Yeah. So how does he know? Like, he goes right to this stuff. Again, is this some Sixth Sense thing? Or I don't know what's going on. It's a a little weird, but... It is a little weird. I get the impression that he's suspicious from Jump. Mm, Yeah. She might have a... A backup plan. It is Which, funny. Again, that, why do you want to have dinner with this person? Then? Yeah, it is funny that the first thing he finds. Is the gun. <laughs> also, why does he ask to keep his coat? That's weird. Oh, I yeah. think it's because the sword is in there. That was my impression. Uh, yeah. To bring a sword to a date? So is he, is, is he, he going to eat dinner, <laughs> dinner the whole time <laughs> with a coat with a sword in it? Also, is, she might just notice. <laughs> yeah. Hey, is that the murder weapon? <laughs> what murder weapon? <laughs> Oh, no, not this one. I used another one. I don't know. <laughs> After Connor finds the gun and the tape recorder, uh, he also notices uh, Detective Baldy is outside staking out the place. So oh, the right. cops are onto this this scene, too. Um, so Brenda comes back out with her new earrings, which look insane. They look like they were inspired by like the cover of a Trapper Keeper. Uh, <laughs> it's like a giant pyramid and a, an, an orb. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, but then um, he busts out some brandy. And this is a pretty great scene. Uh, so yeah, let's play this clip of um, Connor uh, drinking some brandy. Shall we have a toast? Yes. <laughs> she just drinks it. She doesn't wait for the toast. She just goes right brandy. in. Brandy. Bottled in 1783. Wow, that's old. 1783 was a very good year. He's so creepy in this. I love the scene. Mozart yeah. wrote his great mess. The Montgolfier brothers went up in their first balloon. <laughs> and England recognized the independence of the United States. Is that right? Yes. I'm a huge fan of that scene. He's like, the whole time he's got his eyes closed, like he's literally reminiscing about it, and he's like kind of giggling to himself practically, yeah. like thinking about 1783. Uh, so this story was um, actually inspired by like a real life instance with Russell McKay. Yeah, they uncorked a wine bottle, and the dude sniffed the air like from the bottle in the cork. And he was like, this is from 19, like we've just smelled air from 1946. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a nice notion. It's a very romantic notion. I like this scene a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very uh, cool. But... At the time of making this toast, he has already busted her, right? He makes this toast. He already know he's already baited her into lying to him. 
Right. He had said, like, what do you do? And she's like, I'm in acquisitions for the Met. For the Met, right. Right. Also, quick question. Why does she work for the police department? Like, she seems so overqualified. Like, yeah, I, it's insane. Like, also, why doesn't she just work for the Met? Or? Why does the police department need a metallurgist? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> so, Connor brings her a present. And it's her book. A metallurgical history of sword making? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's a ridiculous name. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that one was flying off the shelf. Yeah. Putting it in high demand for universities all over the world. Um, so he figures her out. Uh, so then she gets all pissed off at him. Yeah. And then he storms out. He's like, I'm leaving. Yeah. And, and I was like, again, why did you come? Like, what is the point of this? Like, yeah. Were you going to shoot me with... What was, it, what was your plan, Brenda? Yeah. Were you going to shoot me with a forty-five, or wait for your friends to arrest me or some <laughs> ish? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, because he's like, are you guys trying to set me up? And right. it's like, well, why'd you go there if you thought that was a possibility? Like, I just don't get... Unless he just likes her so much. For no reason. For no reason. reason. Like, right. So he, he really gets pretty hostile with her. Maybe I'm just not familiar enough with Japanese swords. But was it common to refer to the sword as the samurai? I just want to see the samurai. She says it like six times. Yeah. Oh, that's in the script. Ooh. They only refer to that sword as the samurai. I don't know why. Hmm. Yeah, I was not familiar with that as a yeah. way of describing that that's, weapon. Yeah, the script... Like, any time they talk about his sword, they reference it as the samurai. So Interesting. It's, it's weird. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so he really lays into her. He's like, what you want? Don't you ever think about anything but what you want? <laughs> yeah. Like, Whoa. Yeah. Like, yeah. This is a stranger who you knew was, like, had a job that was adverse to you. And you're now screaming at her? Like, this whole thing is odd. Connor goes outside, and there's a little voiceover. I guess he's hearing kind of Ramirez in his head saying, You must leave her, brother. Yeah. And so then we get another flashback to uh, the Scottish Highlands in the aftermath of the Kurgan attack. And this is another montage uh, where they play the song, Who Wants to Live Forever? Um, I thought I'd play a clip of Brian May, uh, the guitar player of Queen, talking about this song. He wrote it, so let's hear from him. Yeah, yeah. What actually moved me was the sort of subplot. The main plot is this kind of violent tale of immortals fighting each other to the death up to the, from 15th century Scotland up to 20th century New York. That's the main plot. There's a kind of subplot which is a tragic love story. And it comes about because the hero cannot die, but nevertheless he falls in love with people who can die. So he falls in love with this girl in the Highlands, and she gradually grows old and dies in his arms, and he has to say goodbye to her, and he has to go on. It's just a, a strange kind of tragedy. And that really came across to me very strongly, and, and I related it to, to my own life, I suppose, and everybody's life. I thought, you know, love always does come to an end at some time, you know. So I had this song immediately in my head, which is called Who Wants to Live Forever. It is pretty cool. And this, I think the song is played to great effect here. We kind of just get a montage of her aging. Right. It's a little bit funny just because the makeup, the makeup work on her uh, is, <laughs> is rough. Well, this is crazy. So if you think the makeup looks shitty on her now, apparently this was like the second time they tried to shoot the scene. The makeup was so bad before they shut down production and were like, no, we can't do that. So I can't even imagine how bad the makeup looked before. Because wow. it doesn't turn out looking very yeah. good. <laughs> but I guess it was acceptable. Yeah. And it had to be hard because she's so young looking. Yeah. And yeah. Like, she's very pretty. So like they really had to put in some work to like age her. Right. Why don't uh, they just... I never understand when they do this in movies. Why don't they just get an old woman to play that 
part. Yeah, I, I would have made that that leap. That yeah. would, I would have been fine with that, especially yeah. the like the very last shots of her. Yeah, and she's like, when she's old. really old. Yeah, I, I don't like. What's wrong with that? I, uh, uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's even worse because the way it's primed. Like he's looking for her, and he like kind of goes up on a hill, and he's like. Heather, yeah. <laughs> and she comes Heather. out like holding a lamb or something. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I'm already kind of laughing at the way Christopher Lambert is calling to her, and then you yeah. see her face, and you just go, "Whoa!" <laughs> <laughs> but they have like a sweet moment in bed as she's, you know, leaving the mortal coil. Right, and she makes him promise to light a candle every year on her birthday. But his little speech to her as she's passing away about like where they are is, is pretty great. It's like good good writing. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah it's a good scene. I, I buy into all this sort of stuff. Like yeah. this does feel really tragic. The music mm-hmm. helps a whole lot. Like this is also a collaboration between Queen and Michael Kamen. Oh. Which is really I mean like the, Michael Kamen did all the orchestrations for yeah this queen song uh and he was actually pretty brilliant at doing rock stuff uh yeah. he, d- he does a lot of like rock collaborations uh in his career so yeah and he i mean connor takes this hard because not after he buries her he leaves his sword with like the mcleod logo like the kind of claymore kind of weapon he'd been using the whole time and burns their house the fuck <laughs> down yeah. like it's scorched earth he is never coming back like yep. right he seems pretty broken by this, and they don't necessarily for they they don't necessarily communicate it through Christopher Lambert himself, but his conduct afterwards made me buy into his pain a bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hey, rewatches. This is Keith. Make sure to like and follow us on Facebook and iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. That's right. Each and every week we come up with brand new Highlander rewatch content for your listening pleasure. So make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any major podcasting app. So, after the scene, we are back in the present, and we're in Central Park on mm-hmm. the big bridge over the uh, the pond in Central Park, and we meet a new immortal, Castagir, mm-hmm. who is played by Hugh Quarshier, who's in Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace. Yeah. He plays Captain Panaka. <laughs> yeah, he's, wow. he's like he's like the uh, the the Royal Guard guy, yeah. right? Oh, I didn't but, know that. Yeah, yeah the guy. I kind of liked his performance in that movie too. It was like kind of a I don't know. The character was not very much, but like you buy into it. He yeah. seems like heroic. And then they didn't put him in the second or third ones because why set up a character and then just drop him? I don't know. <laughs> Thanks, George Lucas. Yeah. <laughs> Fucker. <laughs> uh, when McLeod and Castagir meet on the bridge, nothing happens. There's no weather. There's no anything. Like it's not dramatic at all. They just meet. So that further kind of it's not like it can't be the buzz because. No lightning strikes when they meet. Nothing. But happens. they're not meeting for the Maybe. first time either. That's true. I don't, I don't know what to make I, of that. But I, yeah. I think it's like cohesive, like just like mm-hmm. the mechanics of the movie. It's like, oh, we forgot something or budget yeah. stuff or, you know, those sort of things. That's an interesting point, though. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to say, I think this guy's performance is great. Oh, he's it's outstanding. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. And I think the thing that 
I don't want to say sells it, but that cements it is how little he does and how quickly he makes you buy into their relationship. Yeah. Like yeah. it's coming from him because even in this scene, Christopher Lambert is still like this kind of muted noir kind of character, even dealing with his friend. Like this other guy is so warm and friendly to him yeah. that he is really what makes you buy into the relationship. And he's, like, excited about the gathering being in New York. I think that's really great. Like, he pounds his fist on the, the, the bridge. He's like, ah, it's right here. Like, it's all happening. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's a, this is a really good scene. Unfortunately, I really think this might be the one of the biggest missed opportunities in this movie. Like, I feel like this scene needed to happen sooner. Hmm. Like, the exposition needs to be expedited. Like, we need to know what the get the setup to this movie a bit quicker right and then establish this friendship so you care a bit more about this character Ooh, well there's something <laughs> yes there's a scene cut out of this that's in the script of castigier and mcleod like going nuts at a bar just like getting drunk 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 with, with what's his name with bedso the detective <laughs> right. who's watching his name's bedso in the script the detective i guess maybe that's john polito yeah john polito yeah them like getting hammered in a bar with john polito <laughs> like <laughs> like Why polito? john polito well i think he's like tailing them right and they're like all right this guy's following me let's go fuck with them so he's <laughs> like go start drinking with them and he's like well maybe i'll find out some information because they're drunk <laughs> and then they just all three of them get drunk together and it's like a really funny scene yeah. the script and i'm wondering if they even shot it they did so they shot it and there's a couple scenes in this movie that were shot cut and then were lost in a fire oh. sadly we will never get them but there's some production stills um we'll try to put them on our facebook page because awesome. uh, yes um detective bed so there's great like pictures of him with like his tie tied around his head like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it looks like a really crazy scene and it's like i think it's really apparent that the scene is cut too because the last line castigier said was like he's like oh it's like what do you think we should do he's like i think we should throw a giant party yeah and then it just cuts to something else and it's like right. oh okay like i thought this was going to be a fun party uh so yeah we don't really kind of care about castigier as much as we should when he uh spoiler bites the big one yeah yeah well i liked uh if you've listened to our earlier interview with david abramowitz who was the creative director on the highlander tv show who's apparently written a highlander musical which will depict these events he did note specifically that castigier would be a much larger character in his kind of vision for this thing right i think that's spot on yeah because totally. like other than this guy's like huge smile when he sees mcleod yeah like, we don't get nearly enough of nope of this guy he's got the boom boom the boom he's boom. got the boom yeah. boom. Yeah. i he's love got the a boom, boom. boom yeah <laughs> surely a big strong man like you can handle a little boom <laughs> uh so we get a flashback now after they talk on the bridge to 1783 supposedly the last time him and castigier had a party um and i think there was another scene cut here i don't think they ever filmed it though um i think we're supposed to see castigier and mcleod at a bar during the american revolution right in boston and i think they even meet like george Watt or jefferson or something like there was a there was supposed to be some weird historical they're tie-in. supposed to be looking for george washington's wooden teeth which he allegedly oh like drops in the snow <laughs> what which if anybody has seen the hateful eight it's like a scene where samuel jackson character loses his letter from abraham lincoln in the snow <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so 
I'm gonna go on record saying this is the worst scene in the movie. Yes, really. This is. I think the, this is insane and not funny and weird. And, and oh, coupled with, I love this scene. Oh, oh yeah. so, you are, you are, you are incorrect. I, I know this, this scene, scene doesn't do anything. Bullshit. Uh, this no. is terrible, and especially it adds know, nothing to the plot. Adds nothing to the plot. Well, where's Castagir? He's supposed to be here. <laughs> They're talking. We're sold on this transition. Like, oh, remember the last time we did this? And yeah. he's nowhere to be seen. I know. Nope. And also, <laughs> I like, know. coupled with the wasted potential of the entire Castagir character, yeah. this like shines a spotlight on that. This- Get rid of this scene and put the drinking scene in. <laughs> Alright, maybe that's true. I think the scene is really funny. I, I love that he just gets, keep, keeps getting stabbed. Again, we've been it's, waiting for... It's for, also not that funny. I thought it was funny. <laughs> I like, didn't think it was funny. <laughs> I didn't think it was funny. The one sentence <laughs> description of it is kind of funny. Yeah. Drunken Connor in a duel, mortal can't kill him. Yeah. That's like a funny, like, one line. But it ah. goes on for so long, they keep stabbing him. Also, he completely blows his cover, and for some reason that's okay. Yeah. And then there's like this weird. It's end, wacky. And there's this weird end scene on it, which just that. Where he shoots the. He shoots the. Should we set the scene here? Yeah, we should set the scene. I'm getting ahead of myself because I hate it so much. Wow! I yeah I just have right, my you guys notes. shit all over it and then I'll say why I like it. Okay, so we we're in a we're at a, we're at a duel. Connor is drunk off his ass, and there's this you know really snooty other dude. I guess he's a gentleman. I don't know what he is, um, but they're they're dueling with swords. And Connor's got a messed up wig on. He yeah. kind of looks like he's in ye olde underwear. Yeah, based on like because he's wearing like white pantaloons. Yeah. Um, so, so far, this starts out kind of funny. The, all of the dialogue is, like, the sound quality is weird. Like, all of Christopher Lambert's lines seem 80-yard to me. Yeah. I don't know if they are. They probably are. This is the very, I want to say this is the very first thing they shot in the whole movie. Great. I think, I don't remember. Oh, they're on Boston Common. That's yeah. where they are. Anyway. And there's this kind of absurd harpsichord music yeah. going, playing throughout the entire scene. And... He just gets stabbed multiple times by this guy, and like you see the sword come yeah. out the other to- other side. Like, why are these guys not? Fr- this seems like mildly annoying to them, and they're <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. "Whoa, this man has been stabbed like six times." Yeah, yeah. Like, and he's like, "Oh, you missed, sir. Yeah, try it again." <laughs> <laughs> but then we find out that it's because Connor called his wife. What is it? A horse's a bloated ass? Warthog. A bloated- <laughs> I'm sorry, I called your wife. A <laughs> but so then uh, after he can't die, he apologizes and like walks walks off and the the dude shoots his assistant it's like his little assistant's like shoot him sir shoot him <laughs> and then instead this guy decides he's gonna shoot his assistant i don't know why he shoots him it's just yeah. like he's pissed off and yeah. that's that's also cut from the u.s version oh like it, it just when um, mcleod just walks away and it's over good because uh, yeah. that seems really kind of absurd and i don't know for all the kind of gay undertones we've been talking about in this movie this has like a kind of i don't think this scene would necessarily fly today 
because you've got this very like effeminate, like maybe gay assistant who basically you're supposed to hate him because he's effeminate, and then he gets shot by his boss for being effeminate, and you're supposed to think it's funny. I didn't. I didn't feel that at all. I didn't feel like you're supposed to hate him because he's a effeminate or something. Well, you're supposed to think like I think. I you're think supposed you're supposed to, to just think he's a doofus, but I don't know. That was my takeaway <laughs> when I saw this. I was like, this is a little <laughs> problematic. Like I just thought this scene was weird. I didn't know why it was in it. All right. So in my notes, I actually have, I'm like I like this flashback. But ultimately, it doesn't further anything. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I completely agree. It's just in there. It doesn't do anything. Casting gear is not part of it. But like this reminds me of like those flashbacks we like a lot in the series, like where it's like you see Duncan in a brothel, like just like, sure. cutting loose. And I'm like, oh, like. I just think it's kind of funny. You see a different side of the character. I love when he says, I'm sorry, I called your wife that, a bloated word. Like, that's the most yeah. ridiculous thing. Like, what led up to all of this? Uh, <laughs> I didn't think it was that funny. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it's good. Again, and we get this rascally, rascally sort of... Uh, rascally wabbit. Um, which, I don't know. It builds up to that a little bit. But yes, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little silly. It's, it's absurd. And in the scene you just described, which was from the episode Eye of the Beholder... That scene is used to set up his relationship with another character Correct. and, like, demonstrate their closeness and, you know, there's an ongoing theme of young Duncan versus old Duncan. True. It does a lot of work in the context and the scene in which it exists. Right. This is just silliness for no, <laughs> for no real reason. All right, all right. And I really don't get why they couldn't have just had Castigier there. Like, right. I mean, probably because they didn't shoot on a day where he was on set or something. But I'm like, yeah. why isn't he there? But yeah, <laughs> like, the whole point of this scene is just to show, like, a crazy drunken Connor. Yeah. Then, like, I, I, yeah, I wish it was, it could have just been in a bar yeah. with Connor and Castigier just being, like, shit-faced and, you right. know, just talking about whatever, making jokes, falling off their stools. Sure. And that would have been something. But, yeah, there's, he, he learns no lesson here. There's nothing that comes back later. It's just a silly scene. But I'm okay with it, so I don't hate it like you guys do. I'm surprised. <laughs> I really think this is funny. I don't know. I, I think there's literally not a thing that's funny about it. <laughs> well, I have no sense of humor, so. Yeah. We Keith, Keith is very stoic. Yeah. <laughs> Very serious all the time. Keith. Don't ever speak to me. It's <laughs> the line that's about to come up. So now we're back in the present, having learned no lessons, and <laughs> the Kurgan is leaving his hotel room, and Herpes Ed Norton, yeah. like the, the guy, is like, hey, Candy said you were sending to some kinky shit, man. And the Kurgan is just like, what? <laughs> he stops in his tracks. And says, don't ever speak to me <laughs> uh i thought the also the edit coming out of this flashback is really weird too like again showing how out of place that scene is because yeah. it cuts from the assistant getting like shot in the ass to a tv and the, it's like a newscaster being like and that's the mood of new york city at the time and it's like hold on like wait getting like getting butt hurt or yeah. like, like it's like those things are supposed to be connected and clearly right. that line was supposed to match up with I feel like some line in the past that had to do with, like, something going on. Because then they'd be connected. But it's right. not, and it's nope. really weird, and it's like, eh. Yeah. But they're, they're talking about the beheadings. After the Kurgan chews out Ed Norton, Ed Norton says, I hope you get your head chopped off, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so at this point, I just want to mention another scene that gets cut from this movie. Uh, and it's, a, it's an interesting kind of big one. There's another immortal that's supposed right. to be in this. Um, and his name is Yang Dao Kim. Hmm. And I guess he's an ancient Chinese 
immortal? Um, or Korean, maybe? Maybe Korean? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but he's working as a security guard. Yeah. And Auspicious. The, yeah, uh, yeah. The Kurgan busts in, and they have a duel, and this guy fights with, like, two swords. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to say at the end, does, I think he ultimately gives up. Yeah, he does. And lets the Kurgan kill him, which yep. is an interesting element to this, like, which they haven't explored much, that, like, some people don't want to live forever. Right. Uh, and this guy would just rather it be over than mm-hmm. continue the fight. Um, so anyway, sadly, this was another one of the scenes that got cut and then got lost in a fire. So there are some Bummer. stills of it, but we'll never get it back. That would have been cool to see another Kurgan fight. Yeah, Kurgan gets a fair amount of fights. He does a lot of fighting in this. That's true. Like, I don't know that they needed this scene, but I, it probably would have been interesting. Yeah, this is a weird, uh, another weird scene that I don't know why is in the movie, this altercation with the concierge. Yeah, we could have just skipped this, I yeah. suppose, and gone right to... The, the next scene is Castigear fighting the Kurgan. Right. Meanwhile, but, Hammer to Fall is being played while this weird militia man is, like, rolling yeah. around with SMGs. Right. I get the impression this dude with the, all the guns is, like, a guardian angel sort of guy, like, clean up the streets dude. Yeah, but he's also, like, a war veteran right. gun nut type guy (laughs) but he's just driving around looking for trouble i guess and he spots a sword fight going on in an alley and it's castagir and the kurgan having it out and it's a i think it's a pretty decent fight yeah Uh, that's the lighting's awesome yeah Yeah. they're in some weird like cul-de-sac or something or like dead end alleyway they're in an alleyway yeah Yeah. and i read this was actually shot in london not in new york and they felt bad because a lot of the windows on all these buildings were like really old glass yeah and things like that so they were kind of like destroying them when they eventually blew them up for the quickening <laughs> right but apparently the buildings were like scheduled to be demolished anyway right. so they they went ahead with blowing up the glass yeah. yeah and kyle you mentioned that hammer to fall is playing which is a great song another one of the like kind of more heavy queen songs mm-hmm. uh but the whole premise of that song is like waiting for death and it's gonna get everybody uh so it's a pretty kind of dark song it's got like a real cold war or cold war overtones and speaking of cold war i think the guy's shirt has some like it's like a weird anti-communism yeah Yeah. (laughs) uh so he sees kurgan chop off castigir's head and then takes out a machine gun and just unloads into the kurgan who like goes flying backwards but then the kurgan pops up and stabs him through the belly and like lifts him up over his head <laughs> this is I'm into this. crazy <laughs> i don't know what's going on here cuz then he also flicks him off of it right, and yeah. somehow doesn't cut him in half it's worth noting right. this is well, maybe not the same sword, but we've previously seen the Kurgan use a sword to blow up a castle. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow this guy lives. Right. And there's, like, a crowd forming around all this Right. Mostly, like, hookers also. and stuff. Yeah. He, he tosses the Marine off him, and then he has, like, a big quickening. Like yeah. A delayed reaction quickening? Yeah. Right. Because uh, <laughs> he, he gets shot, kills this guy. Or stabs this guy and then has the quickening. Yeah. Right. So, so the quickening's like, all right, we're going to wait a minute. Wait till he's ready. <laughs> so this quickening's kind of like the uh, the one in the, the parking garage. Like, Cassier's yeah. body gets lifted off the floor. Mm-hmm. There's, like, green electricity or whatever coming out of his body. And then everything explodes and the curtain gets all the, the shakies. <laughs> <laughs> So, Castagir was introduced maybe five minutes ago? Yeah. He's in the movie for all of five minutes. It's a bummer. Yeah. Which, cementing again, 
the problem problematic nature of that scene because that was interstitial time that was tangentially related to this character that right. never comes back. Mm. So then the Kurgan is trying to hightail it out of there, and some of the people that came to watch this fight are an old couple in a convertible. <laughs> yeah, that's just so weird. Yeah. And the Kurgan rips the top of the convertible (laughs) off and throws the man out of the car and jumps in and says, Hi, Mom. (laughs) Then he starts driving off, and the old woman is, like, shrieking in the car, Help me, Daddy! Daddy." (laughs) I couldn't figure that out at all. There's, like, this weird... It's like, he calls her Mom, then she cries for Daddy? Yeah, it's bizarre. (laughs) Uh, So he drives off, and there's more Queen music playing. Um, and I noticed again, like they, I mentioned before in some of the podcasts, uh, they use that chromatic riff again from Princess Zena. Yeah. And in this one, it's like really quick. It's like, Mm -hmm. so again, the musical thread is being tied together. Good job, queen. So the police then visit this survivalist guy, which... I hope you've come to know and love the police because this is the last time you're going <laughs> to <Yeah>. see them. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we see um, Polito and Moron <laughs> talking to the guy, and he's describing the sword and all this. Oh, and he confirms for them that Connor is not the man that stabbed him. It's this Kurgan fellow. Right, so. and, 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 and Frank really is really pressing. pushing him. He's like, are you yeah. sure it's dark in that alley? Like, yeah. It probably was him, right? And he's like, no, I know what I saw. Yeah. The way this scene is shot is so weird. After the stabbing, I guess yeah. he's going to describe the quickening. Right. right. He's like, there's something else that happens. And then the camera pulls outside of the room, and there's yeah. just silence. Well, it's just him, like, describing it. Right. But I guess, I don't know. I don't mind that. Yeah. Because he's describing some, like, fantastical thing. And then we just get to see the reaction of, like, that, whatever that is, that's crazy. Like, we don't need to hear about, like, lightning storms and yeah. whatever. I don't know. I don't mind the way this is, it's, this is done. It's so puzzling. And it doesn't match pretty much anything else in terms of the way it's shot. And also, didn't dozens of people witness the exact same thing? Uh, I think they call that out. They're like, no one talks to the cops. Yeah, they have, like, a throwaway line about Yeah, well, they're like, we went down there like, and uh, yeah. he's like, there were a dozen people, but nobody saw anything. Yeah. 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 Also, uh, the, the Marine has a giant bowl of green apples on his bed like on his lap yeah Yeah. (laughs) as you do yeah it's the laziest hospital ever yeah here's lunch or whatever right is this is the scene after this we're at the hot dog stand i thought this was funny and the guy's like hey uh, what does uh incompetent mean we can play let's play this clip of the uh the hot dog vendor hey moran have you read what it says in here you didn't tony you know cops can't read what does incompetent mean? That mayor, he calls me at 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, I don't even answer the phone anymore. Hey, what does baffles mean? <laughs> I love that this man is giving the cops so much shit. I don't know. <laughs> so, my note on this was, is this a bit or just kind of racist? I couldn't figure it out either. I, I think it's a bit. I think it's. I think I ultimately came down on it's a bit, just because this guy is laughing so yeah, hard at like, it. He's, he's poking fun at him. Yeah. He's like, But combined with the voice he's putting on, yeah. I was like, there's a... Just like a fifteen percent chance. Oh sure, sure. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like this is just a gag on a guy who like a uh, foreign guy can't read. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's definitely he's uh, he's he's ribbing him a little bit. Mm. And yeah. is the headline Headhunters Three Cop Zero? Zero, yeah. yes. It's <laughs> <is> pretty good. <laughs> I just only picture some like crappy New York Post headline. Uh, yeah. Like this. <laughs> 
Calling John Polito a bozo. (laughs) Chief Bozo baffled by bungling beheader. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) So at this point, Brenda is intensely interested in in unraveling this mystery of Russell Nash. So Brenda is at like some sort of hall of records sort of place. And I guess she's looking for the birth certificate of Russell Nash. And using that, she finds the doctor who delivered him who somehow remembers this remembers this specific birth well he might remember it because russell nash dies immediately and the mom also dies right so that might be memorable that might be a memorable thing um Uh, also interesting tidbit here this guy had like this whole scene had to be reshot because the guy that played the original doctor was drunk off his ass the entire time so drunk he fell asleep while they were filming this (laughs) (laughs) so they redid it with this guy uh that's pretty amazing and they couldn't use the other footage i guess not like what do i not know about actors that there are so (laughs) many like temperamental unprofessional people who are involved in this movie yeah just like the nazi yeah (laughs) like the nazi who's like a bit player who storms yeah. off the set and has to be replaced like who are these people <laughs> so anyway they have like a a nice little chat and she discovers that the real Russell Nash died immediately right. so obviously her hackles are up about this whole thing Right. So then we cut to this other sort of like library sort of place. I don't know where they are, but yeah. she's meeting up with like nerd number two in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's got some sort of special computer program he's, he's running. hacking on the computer again. <laughs> uh, and he has been putting, like, I guess he's been doing some research and he's yeah. put together this theory he has about it. Mm-hmm. Using some kind of magic software, he then compares the like deeds basically for this piece of property that Russell Nash owns. And basically, someone with an identical signature, right. as proved by this weird computer program, <laughs> has been deeding this thing down through generations since 1796. Right, to generations of, like, stillborn children, essentially. Right. Yeah. So this apparently is Nash's M.O. He finds a child who dies, and then assumes their identity right but what he says to brenda is this guy's been sneaking around (laughs) since the 1700s and he presents this as like a theory that is true yeah he believes like he's supposed to be some sort of scientisty nerdy guy and he seems to like his first conclusion is like this guy's a vampire or something it's like he has no other theory for what's going on here other than immortal like he's not like somebody's been forging this signature for 200 years for some reason or like yeah a series of people have been doing it for a particular yeah he doesn't have some sort of tax scam thing that he thinks might be logical like nope just this guy's immortal (laughs) it's like all right yeah like he jumps to that and brenda's like oh Oh, golly. <laughs> and she's more freaked out than him, but maybe he's like a conspiracy theorist. Can we have a spinoff movie about this guy? <laughs> well, maybe she's just freaked out because this is an extra wrinkle to this guy who she knows has like back alley sword fights with people. Well, this is something that maybe I wish... Maybe he's a watcher. Ooh. But, um... Sh- this is something I wish, like, if you had to rewrite the movie a little bit, like, I wish was changed. Uh, I wish Brenda maybe was a little closer to Connor in this situation because what happened happens in this library it feels like like her reaction to all of this happening is it feels like she she feels betrayed she's like wait who is this guy like 
He's not Russell, Russell Nash. Like, I don't know who this person is. And I feel like if they set up that they had maybe a little bit, like, maybe they started to get, each, get to know each other a little bit more, like, there'd be a betrayal here by finding out that, like, what he said this whole time wasn't true. Like, I don't know this person I thought I knew. I don't know. I feel like this, this whole scene is played for some sort of, like, shock value. Like, he's what? It's like, as the audience, we know he's not what he says he is. So I'm not sure kind of what weight is placed on this scene like it's like oh well i guess brandon knows now but like again like what are the stakes in that like did she did she love him before like you know like what feelings did she have did she, did she feel betrayed by that like she was always skeptical of him like i wish she like maybe believed his shtick about yeah. whatever like maybe the police were after him but she wasn't she was like no i believe you like you're not involved in this like i'm not part of their like manhunt or something but then when she finds out this it like confirms all her suspicions that the police had it's like oh maybe maybe they were right like i don't know i just feels like this could have had some more weight to it but the, the problem is she feels tacked on in a certain way like i feel like they didn't know this whole movie <laughs> yeah. people didn't quite know what her role was in this entire thing because i feel like there's a way they could have gone i feel like what you're describing works if she is nash's girlfriend right like, yeah, mine's the, a very the, different the, scenario the but. movie begins with them being together and then it's this betrayal right there's also this like a version of this where she's just a cop mm-hmm. and like maybe you combine Polito I forget the other guy's name the Moran guy from, Moran from P- Police Squad and her all get combined into one character and she's like the detective right so maybe that's her connection to the whole thing and this is like her she's learned enough now that this is like the something unnatural is going on here yeah. I need to figure it out moment the, they work walk this weird side path where like they seem to have this unearned relationship where like they have this affinity for each other that has no basis in what we've seen yeah the whole scene just feels weird especially just because the way it's played like it feels like this is a very important thing it's like but in the context of this movie she was already suspicious of him so i'm not sure why this is a shock or anything that's why i would rather her you know like i guess she could be in some other version his girlfriend already in this like she uncovers some sort of lie like well this reveal doesn't do anything for us the viewer because we know he's that old already so it's not surprising for us yeah, it's this scene only these scenes only exist to further her knowledge. Right. It's right. <clears throat> it provides nothing interesting really for the viewer except for I guess this little tidbit that as a practical matter stealing the identity of a fetus is good for you. <laughs> so, uh in the next scene, we're at a newsstand and we've got the New York Post. I guess the police, uh, I think it was revealed at some point they're going to release the information to the press. Will they release a photograph That's of it. the Kurgan? So he cuts his hair. The next time we see him, he has, right. like, shaved right. his head. So they've got, like, a police sketch of the Kurgan in the newspaper. Uh, and also, as being from Philly, I noticed that the newspaper says, uh, Rangers fall to flyers, which I thought was pretty funny. So, Ooh. go flyers. Yeah, that's right. Ooh. Suck it, Rangers. Sports. <laughs> we like sports and we don't care who knows. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just a, a little, like, interstitial scene that doesn't really do much other than let us know that the Kurgan's going to change his look, I guess. I don't know what the scene mm-hmm. really does. But next, we're in the church. Yep. Amen, why don't you tell us about the church? Well, Connor is lighting a candle for Heather, and it's her birthday. And so he's fulfilling his promise. And also lighting a candle for Ramirez. Oh, that's That old haggis. Yeah, you old haggis. So then he goes down to pray or whatever. And then in comes Clancy Brown. And now he's got his hair cut, and this is where we actually see him with those safety pins through his throat scar. Yeah, so he's like full-on punk rocker, whatever. 
never like he's like really crazy looking now. Yep. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm a big fan of this. This entire scene is awesome. Yeah. yeah, like Clancy Brown and even Connor. Like these are good performances from both of them in this scene. Oh, it's yeah. great. Uh, so it's interesting. This scene was filmed like late at night. Apparently this this church was like desperate for money. Mm. Uh, so they agreed to let them shoot here. There's a priest we see later on. He's like an Orthodox rabbi apparently playing a priest. Huh. Um, and then Wait. all he's an Orthodox Jewish guy playing a Catholic priest. <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, and then I guess there's a lot of nuns in this scene, which mm-hmm. I believe are real nuns, which is interesting. So they're they're kind of extras, but not quite. Nuns. No sense of humor. Nope. As the Kurgan says in this scene. <laughs> so the Kurgan goes to the, the candle. I don't know what you would call that. He goes up to the candles and starts to pray, but then he just snuffs out all the candles. Yeah, it's, pretty, like it's a, actually a pretty badass move, I think. Playful manner. He like yeah. whacks them all out with his yeah. hand. Yeah. And then he uh, comes up to McLeod and he's like, Castiguer is gone. Only you and I remain. So... <laughs> Yeah. It's awesome. And this is also the big reveal in this scene. This speaks to something you had said earlier, Keith, about kind of the tranquility theme being linked into this. This is kind of the moment that tests that insofar as they wanted to make that a big theme. This is where he reveals like that he sexually assaulted Heather. This finally comes up and that Mac didn't know this entire time. So this would have been like the real thing for like the, the, the real test for him, I guess, in terms of keeping his cool, comes from this revelation. Right. Right. Um, also, I wanted to note, like, as part of the Kurgan's look here, did well, two things. Did anyone notice that, well, he has a tattoo? It's a dragon. It, yeah, he's got the dragon tattoo. So this, on this, his head. On his head. So, one, I guess immortals can get tattoos. Like, you don't immortally regenerate ink out of your head. Yeah, <laughs> so, like, that's something you can permanently get. Again, I don't really care. Whatever. It's a fun visual, so I don't want to look into it too much. Two fun dragon things here. So he's got a dragon tattooed on his head, but he also has, like, one tuft of hair that he left on his head, and that's the mane of the dragon, which I think is kind of funny. Like, Mm. it's the hair on the the dragon's head is his, like, tuft of hair. Do dragons have hair? I don't know, but this one does. Sometimes Uh, they do. And then it also looks like he's gotten, like, weird implants in his face. Like, if you look under his... weird bumps. He has, like, scales implanted under like his eye oh i thought those were like little studs that he had like piercings under his eye i think they're like embedded under his eye but either way i think it looks like scales so like at this point like he's becoming even more of like the dragon character the reptilian uh, and of course as we still we see at the end of the scene he goes happy halloween ladies yeah. <laughs> and he flicks his tongue at them and i was yeah. like oh he's like a drag like full-on dragon now and he, like, licks their hand. Yes, he licks a priest's hand, yeah. which is the creepiest it's thing. Gross. Yeah. He's like, I am a worm. Yeah. <laughs> he licks the guy's hand. It's awesome. Uh, apparently, he apologized to the priest afterwards, uh, after they filmed the scene. He's like, I'm really sorry about that. But that's, like, a brilliant bit of, like, yeah. acting, I think. Was, like, yeah. was that not part of the It script? must not have been if he felt he had to apologize for it. I think it's amazing. Like, yeah. He... Again, as much as Clancy Brown seems to not, like, dig on this character, I think, he really owns it and does really good stuff with, like, the material he's given and the, and the confines he's given. Like, he creates a really sadistic maniac character. So I'm sympathetic to him in that the character itself is not necessarily inherently interesting. It's only interesting by virtue of the fact that he ratchets up to 11. Right. But, like, someone who did this at a 9... This is a forgettable character. Yeah. You know, it's mm-hmm. like he's inseparable from 
why this character is good. Do we want to talk about this plot device of Kurgan having raped Heather? We probably should. Yeah, Kyle, we've mentioned this a lot on the podcast. I know you've been vocal about, like, this sort of rape element. Why don't you talk about this? It's just... This ever-present element, certainly in the first season, is this this looming threat of sexual assault that I feel like is used as a, in the show at least, a shorthand to make you despise a character or to reaffirm that a character is evil. And I feel like this character might be the gen, like the Kurgan might be the genesis of that. Part of the reason you know he's evil is because you know that he sexually assaults Heather, and that he, I don't know, may or may not sexually assault that prostitute Candy when that comes up with Herpes Ed Norton. Right. In some ways, I feel like we're witnessing the beginning of that, and I think it's problematic in a lot of ways. Hmm, like, that's lazy. That's certainly part of it. Yeah. Like the Kurgan when the chips are down short of him like playing the game how many evil things do we see him do we do see him do evil things certainly sure but the sexual assault things are the most evil things in terms of just though killing other immortals like they're locked in this conflict that where wherein decapitating each other is part of the rules right so insofar as they want to make him evil they need to do something more significant than that that's but I true. feel like that's conveyed in Brown's performance, just that he's reveling in this. I think that's enough. Mm-hmm. He's playing the character as, like, a kind of malevolent, like a cat playing with a mouse. And I, I, I feel like that's enough without this rape thing. Mm. I feel like there could be a role for this insofar as this tranquility, oneness with nature element was played up. The, if there was a reason for him to have raped Heather... Or let me phrase that, not a reason for him to have done it, but uh, a function that it served in the plot. So that if maybe he doesn't reveal here that it happened, maybe he reveals it during the final fight, and then Connor has to like control himself. Or maybe if they had established a pattern that the Kurgan gets Connor riled up. Right. And here's another example. Maybe he kills Angus or Dougal during that first fight, and that's why they hate each other. Hmm. That, like, they have this rivalry. Connor's invested in trying to kill him. Then he kills Ramirez. And it's this whole saga ongoing between them. And then, like, the last straw is him revealing that he sexually assaulted his wife. And then the the triumphant moment is when, for the first time, perhaps, he doesn't lose his cool. He remembers what Ramirez taught him. And by remaining cool, he wins. Like, that might have been a way to... Yeah, that would definitely would have tied it all together. I don't know. I agree, though. It has no independent significance. It just makes right. me uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. And this is kind of what sets Connor off on the Kurgan in the church. Right. When he Which is a good moment. Yeah, it is. It is. Like, him getting in there and, like, the Kurgan having to, like, chide him like a yeah. schoolboy. Like, <laughs> remember what Ramirez taught you. Like, yeah. yeah. We don't fight in churches. Right. But then again, I don't know. Maybe just sexual assault should make us com- uncomfortable, and that's the point. Like, yeah. Maybe we should all just feel uncomfortable about evil things that go on in the world. And right. That's a natural response. But yeah. I agree that there's this shorthand to it that we shouldn't just kind of accept. Yeah. Especially because it doesn't do... It's shorthand to just make him evil, not shorthand to get us to some sort of plot. It should tie into Connor some way. Yeah, because we all knew he was evil. Right. So at the end of the scene, the Kurgan is like, I'll see you outside. 
And Connor's like, you bet you will. No, it's... And then... Connor's, <laughs> no, he says, like, we can't fight here. Connor says, I'll see you outside. Right. Yeah. But they don't. But then it just moves on. It's like, yeah. okay, like, I guess that's not happening. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why they included that dialogue, because it, again, does not pay off in any way. Yeah. Uh, then the, uh, the Kurgan just stays in the church, creeps out everybody, yep. and uh, improvises the line, it's better to burn out than to fade away. I got something to say. Yeah. It's better to burn out. Then the fade away. <laughs> Does that work its way into a Queen song too? Yes. A, wasn't that a different song? No. Um, well, there's a there is in a Neil Young song. What is that? Um, you are correct. It like he does say it, and it's about I forget what rock star he's writing about. He's writing about a different rock star in the song, right? But it's you know, better it's, to burn out. It's, <laughs> I don't know how it goes. Uh, yeah, but out of the blue and into the black. Uh, but it definitely isn't a Queen song as well. Like they do use. Uh, uh, I'm sure they got Clancy to come into the studio again and record this <laughs> dialogue. Because yeah, I think it's in another song. So the Neil Young song is called "Hey Hey My My," which is its in parenthetical title is "Into the Black." Mm-hmm. That's what I was just resting. And I'm pretty sure it's "Gimme the Prize" is the Queen song. That includes that line. So, next, we are in the antique shop, and Brenda is back there, and she's seeing Rachel, and she's, I guess, explains to Rachel, she knows, like, the whole scoop. She's like, I know Nash is dead. Like, where is he? I want to talk to him. Right. This all out in the open. Um, and, of course, Connor then walks in, and he invites her upstairs. He's like, why don't you come upstairs with me? What voice is that? Do I? I can't do uh, any voice. I cannot were, do voices. You the Batman, maybe? I, I think so. Sure. Uh, Come upstairs with me. <laughs> Swear to me. <laughs> Our hockey pants. Um, <laughs> wearing hockey pants. So anyway, uh, he invites Brenda upstairs. I don't know why she goes with him because, all right, let's like break this down. It's like, yeah. first off, she's investigating, uh, investigating a murder investigation that he is like suspect number one in. Yep. Two, she, like, follows her around, mm-hmm. like, sneaks up on her in Madison Square Garden and a bar. They have dinner. They don't even get to dinner. I wonder what was for dinner that night. Who knows? But they have <laughs> dinner together. She has I a I think gun- it was Duck LaRange. <laughs> oh. Uh, like, another super awkward meeting with them, like, confirming weird suspicions about him. Uh, and then, like, she now has found out that this guy is a complete liar. Yeah. Like, he's not who he says he is. He is a murder suspect. And he's like, come upstairs, bro. Brenda. And she's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, this is like Randy McFarland in yeah. Deadly Medicine, where yeah. uh, Joey Pants is like, come down why don't you basement. come into my basement? My secret basement lab. Like, yeah. just come on. Like, And she's like, okay. Like, yeah. I'm, not invest- murder basement. Yeah, I'm not investigating you for deaths of your patients, but right. I'll just come right down there. Yeah, though, this whole, this whole segment then begins with this awesome shot that comes down through his octagonal treasure room. The like, silver room. Yeah, the camera basically comes down through a sunroof and rotates around the entire thing and it's awesome it's, it's a great. really cool it's a shot. Good shot so the camera enters into this octagonal room and yeah let's play this clip of connor explaining himself to brenda got this i'm connor mcleod of the clan mcleod full-on scottish i was born in 1518 in the village of glenfinnan on the shores of loch shiel and he looks like shit here <laughs> and i am immortal Did he groan before yes. he got stabbed? Yes. Oh. <laughs> so she stabs him and he like keels over. Right. And here's there's something right now I want to talk about. Aside from this. A nice little musical moment here. Uh it's uh Who Wants to Live Forever? 
and Michael Kamen has just stacked all of the notes of the melody like almost on top of each other. He like compresses time, which is kind of cool. Whatever. <laughs> and now he's playing the theme. So now they're like gazing into each other's eyes. And Connor takes his bloody fucking hand <laughs> and puts it on the side of her face when they kiss. Why are they kissing? Why is yes. anything about this erotic is what I want to know. So, like, he, first off, this is so traumatizing. Yes. He decides that the best way to prove to her that she's immortal is to basically put a knife in her hand and make, make her-, her stab <laughs> him. Yeah. Which is like... So you've just given this person PTSD. <laughs> yeah. You've just ruined this person's life. Yeah, it's really weird. And then her just emotional reaction to this is like, this reminded me of like Twilight. I mean, y'all know how big a Twilight fan I am. Uh, but like <laughs> when she finds out he's a vampire in Twilight, it's like, oh my God, like I liked you before, but I like you even more. Like what is the attraction to this? Like, uh, our well, female- did, you, did you see his face? Did you see how good looking he was in that scene? And the fact that he groans before he stabs himself is amazing. <laughs> he goes, Ugh, and then he stabs himself. <laughs> He's just like, here we go again. <laughs> Ugh, I have to prove to this uh, another woman that I'm immortal. <laughs> so we asked, I guess, in one of our in our previous podcast, do women find Connor McCloud attractive? And we got a couple of responses, which was yes. He is attractive. And I will give him that for being, like, a man of mystery, like, an odd-looking man. Like, he's got character, I guess. Austin Powers? Yeah. (laughs) An international man of mystery? So, follow-up question for all the ladies out there. Is what is going on right now attractive? Like, what about this, like, change in your perception of him makes him more attractive? Like, Oh, you're a mythical being of some kind? It's like, if he revealed himself, if he took off his pants and was a centaur, (laughs) would you have been like, oh! Like, <laughs> I think I'd be more amazed by the defying physics of him being able to put his centaur lower half in his slacks. Well, I mean, I'm sure everyone has seen how would a dog wear pants, so... <laughs> but yeah, I just don't get why she's like, this is the turning point for her. Like, what do you guys they, think? They literally make out while there's a bloody knife still on the ground. It makes no sense. Well, his bloody hand is on her face. <laughs> like, wipe it off first, dude. Also, she still he still doesn't explain to her why he cut the seal's head off, right? Nope. nope. Like, that could have been an unrelated event. Right. Yeah, she you know, like, this does not explain to her <laughs> yes. anything about the murder she's yeah. investigating. Yeah, he's like, I'm a vampire immortal man. Oh, and I just serial kill people for no good reason. Like, <laughs> that also was just an antique deal gone bad. Like, that's yep. exactly what you guys thought it was. Oh, and I was trying to get a blowjob, and I didn't like the price. So... <laughs> so we follow this make-out sesh Jesus with a full-on sex Oh, baby. This is gross. <laughs> humana, humana, this humana, is humana. also, if you think this is gross, this is the second time they had to film it. Ew. They decided the first one wasn't, like, I guess, hot and steamy enough and the chemistry wasn't there. Ugh. So they shot the whole thing again, which means Miss Brenda J. Wyatt had to get all down to her skivvies and mac it with mac again. 
Again. Oh, you're saying the chemistry wasn't there, huh? <laughs> Go figure. So, yeah, and the second one, to establish more chemistry, they decided not to show their faces or barely show their bodies. And they're like, oh, this is definitely hotter. Just be shrouded in shadow, <laughs> but make very clear that there is nipple sucking. <laughs> yeah, I was about A to say, Lambert takes her whole tit in his mouth. <laughs> I'm like, this is disgusting. I hope she got paid a lot of money to be in this movie. Because that's gross. <laughs> Let's not be disparaging here about nipples. But like, no. It's still just like... It's not... I, I have no problem with nipple. I have a problem with letting Christopher Lambert suck my nipple. That's the problem. What's well, like your nipple? <laughs> Uh, just if I was a person, yeah. <laughs> if and only if you're a person, or <laughs> well, if I was an actor, and part of my role required that I get my nipples sucked by Christopher Lambert, the guy with the sword, the guy with the sword, Christopher Lambert. Oh God! <laughs> I'm just saying the prospect of Christopher Lambert sucking my nipple is not one I would relish, especially with his sandpaper face. Yeah, because <laughs> you can't shave in the context. Of this yeah. movie, he is, he is never clean shaven <laughs> once in the future. Also, I just think present. it's weird. Like, is that like was that improvised? Did they agree to that? Like, the nip sucks. The nip sucks. Yes. <laughs> Christopher Lambert said to stretch his actor's legs and be like, you know what? I think my character would suck a nipple. Yeah, I'm yeah. feeling this in the moment. I'm just gonna suck a nipple. Just, ugh. Ugh. <laughs> but she's a consummate professional. She goes. For this. Sure. Oh, boy. Uh, so again, they filmed this scene twice, and as part of the original scene, there's like some afterglow in bed, like where there's some dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- they shot this reshot on the same set they filmed the final climactic battle scene, which is oh. why it's all like kind of backlit. Yeah. Like, there's the big windows in the background, but the original one, afterwards they're in bed. They mm-hmm. talk about Napoleon a little bit, uh, but also we do kinda, as you do as you do. Yeah. Uh, you do get a payoff for what Brenda's been wanting this whole time, which is that he shows her the sword. Uh. Which I guess like does kind of make sense because like, yeah. that's what she's after the whole time. His sword, his sword. He's, oh. She's after his sword. That she is his samurai. <laughs> nice, nice hilt. Uh, <laughs> nice hilt. <laughs> is his whole body the hilt in this? <laughs> <laughs> gross. Sorry. Gross, gross, gross. Uh, but anyway, he shows her the sword, and she's like, ooh, nice sword. Uh, so that's in the original cut. Uh, that footage, I don't know if it's out there at all. I know there are stills of it, but... I hope it's out Rumor is there is some footage out there of it. I don't think that one got destroyed, but I don't know. Interesting. You do. You look very pretty, Brenda. You know what else looks pretty? A five-star review on iTunes. <laughs> it's almost as good as a bag of vintage Doritos, Brenda. Yum, yum, yum. So why don't you go over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. I like this two, two. <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should cut me out. It should just be aiming. No, I wanted both. <laughs> I think that's much funnier. <laughs> So now they're at the zoo. Why? Yeah, Why also, are they at the zoo? And another what crazy cut where it's like, it just cuts from like banging to lions yeah. roaring. And I guess yep. it's like, oh, okay. Like when, when you have cuts like this, you they just got it on. It forces you to like draw comparisons. And it's like, I guess it's like animalistic. Like, I don't know. Again, I just Connor's, threw up in my own Connor's mouth. Like, I just threw up in my mouth. <laughs> also, it's worth pointing out that throughout this entire thing, 
we've been getting these fast and furious cuts back to the past like crazy like we'll visit the present for a minute and go back to the past the very last cut to the past is that stupid boston common scene Oh, yeah. That's the last time we're in the past in this entire movie, and it has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, something about the end of this movie felt odd to me. And I think when I put my finger on it, it's that we, like, this movie makes you accustomed to this fluidity between past and present. But the entire, like, last 30 minutes. It's like minutes, the third act of the movie. The entire third act, act yeah. Yeah, is entirely in the present. And that's not the setup that the rest of the movie has built you for. So it's very odd. Mm, and there's another fatal flaw with that Boston Commons scene, which we <laughs> love so much for no reason. Fatal flaw. <laughs> uh, so it should be noted this entire weird zoo scene uh, is not in the U.S. version oh, at wow. all. Oh, huh. good. <laughs> so in this scene, uh, we get Brenda. This is so. This is this is a scene. As much as you guys hated the Boston Commons scene, I will say I hate. This scene. I oh. also hate this okay, scene. Okay, good. But the other scene cost more money, time, and was built up more. So. And it, well, it had less lions, though. So, I mean, that's the scene's got that That's a flaw with a lot true. of scenes in this movie. Not enough lions. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not blame the lions, people. Um, that so, was the working title when they were filming, Not Enough Lions. Not enough lions. <laughs> so, we're at the zoo, I guess, and Connor tells Brenda that he's like, I can't get involved with you. It's too dangerous, blah, blah, blah. After he's had sex with After, <laughs> like, he gets down to business and of course in the background there's a silhouette of the kurgan like he appears right snooping on them and there's no buzz or anything again like that also leads me to like to confirm that idea that this buzz sort of sound like is something that they did add in post because there's no sort of inkling that he like and he's like 30 feet he's right there well the kurgan like sneaks out to look at them like they're in front of a tunnel and the kurgan's on the other end of this tunnel and he like peeps out, looks at them, and, like, hides away. But then, like, Connor, like, abruptly turns around for a second after the Kurgan's already left. But I'm like, he knows they're the only two immortals left. So if he got any kind of buzz, I think he'd do more than just, like, turn around and then be like, eh, it's probably nothing. (laughs) So... He's just like, eh, I'm probably just hungover. Yeah, yeah I don't know. So this scene has a lot of problems for me because, so w- one good thing this scene does have is Brenda says the line, most people are afraid to die, you're afraid to live. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good line. I think yeah. that works in the context of what this movie could be about, especially like that one song that kind of gets cut slash shafted, which is One Year of Love. Like Connor needs to make this decision that it's better to love somebody than to love nobody. So I think that's an interesting line but it doesn't really get explored uh but the other thing i don't get about this is like connor's like oh, this is like too dangerous i can't get involved with anybody and brenda's just like yeah okay and then she just walks away and connor's left like in front of the lines by himself it's like hold on uh for the past hour and 30 minutes we have been watching you try to unravel the mystery of this man yeah and then you got your rocks off and <laughs> that's it like and you're like eh, sorry whatever like magic's over like it's a kind of magic apparently there was no magic like it doesn't matter to her she's like fine whatever she doesn't like put up an argument like no no like it's not too dangerous like she's just like she just gives in she's like I'm a you're right I'm, I'm dumped like yeah whatever yeah i'm a victim was there any kind of tie-in between these lions and the stag from earlier was that what the point huh like the whole time i was sitting there like trying to interpret the lines here is like he's having some kind of moment with these lions yeah 
And there just isn't. Like, no. I'm not sure there is. I don't think. No, I just think either. this was they just had a location so, to shoot at. Yeah. So at one point, he somebody says like, "You're not listening," but at the same time, I thought she was saying they're not listening. Like these <laughs> lions aren't listening to you. <laughs> I don't know. I might be going way far afield here, but like this weird animalistic connection was so puzzling. Yeah, that I I'm, I was probably grasping at straws here when, for some unknown reason, they had to shoot the scene in front of like the most majestic animals alive. Yeah. Also, if you like break it down, like what happened afterwards, it's like all right. So according to the movie's geography, it seems like Duncan or Duncan. <laughs> It seems like Connor lives in Chelsea, presumably. So it's like, all right, so where are they going to the zoo? Like, Central Park? Maybe the Bronx? Like, I don't know. This actually looked like the Bronx to me. Uh, it's hmm. like, did they just take it, like, get on the subway and hike it all the way across town? And then he was like, eh, I can't date anymore. Like, what kind of breakup is this? Like, also, they have, like, this weird, like, did they hey. have breakfast? They, they, like, had a yeah. whole thing going on. They were like, hey, everything you know about the nature of life and death is wrong. I'm going to take you on a date to the zoo and let you know easy. <laughs> like that was what happened. Yeah, Can this you is pay a weird... for your own ticket. Yeah. This is one of you those might want your own tokens. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of those problems a lot of movies have when the crux it's like the the will they won't they sort of scenario like are they ever going to get together like it's like one guy's like a stoner loser and the other guy uh, and, the, and the girl's like a, a professional working woman like will they won't they like and then the second they get together what's the story like you know what I mean like yeah. it's like how do we write these two characters like once they get together I don't know what to do. I feel like this suffers from like, I, like let's just have them split up again, like yeah, like right away, like oh they got together, uh, they must break up now, like it's like, okay. So you know what? I honestly think just this scene works, but the conclusion should be the opposite. Like he should be like, oh, like that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. My wife is so dangerous. Here's the deal, and she should say like, no, it's worth it, and he should right. buy into it, and then they like. They're normal people, so they have to go do separate things in a given day. Yeah. She's like, I gotta go to work. Bye. Uh, right. And then the Kurgan, who has now been snooping on them, goes and gets her. And it's like, he's actually kidnapping someone who Connor's connected to, not the person he just dumped. Right. right. <laughs> like, I feel like the scene has, like, okay bones, but for some reason right. their instinct was, like, opposite of yeah. what it should have been. So then we get to the next scene, where the Kurgan does kidnap Brenda. And as you yep. said, Kyle, what makes better bait than ex-girlfriends? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like, that's I don't insane. Understand. It's like so. This this is an amazing scene. So I guess the Kurgan follows Brenda home. Yep. But somehow gets there before she does, even though presumably he doesn't know where she lives. He takes the elevator up to the top floor. Oh, okay. I'll I'll buy that and. Because he, he's on the wrong floor, sure. And he's eating a popsicle. He's got like yeah. a strawberry popsicle. It's yeah. like, oh, Kurgan uh, and his strawberries and cream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a nice tie-in to that ancient battlefield scene where he's <laughs> eating a firecracker. Uh, so then we get this like pretty classic like horror movie sort of thing. Like She spots yeah. him. This is a scene scared. from a different movie. <laughs> she yeah. runs into his apart- her apartment, locks the door, and then he like busts through. Yeah. This, I think this is well... F- I liked, like the way this is all yeah, filmed. Like, filmed great. This is very music video-y, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything's like bright red. Yeah. All the lighting. It's a lot of like handheld stuff down hallways. I don't know. It's very fun. Uh, but something that I'd like to be rewritten in this scene. Highlander rewrite is at the end she ends up like it's a callback to the gun in the uh, like the the drawer that she hides when Connor shows up and she grabs it and I guess the Kurgan ends up like grabbing her hand and she ends up shooting like two bullets into the ceiling what I wish happened 
was that when Connor visited her apartment initially, he found the gun, saw it as a threat, like and somehow, took the bullets and he out. took the bullets out because he's like, I don't want any of this trouble. Emptied it out. And then when she goes to get the gun and defend herself, like she actually legitimately has a chance to shoot the Kurgan and maybe escape, it has no bullets. And then like it also creates this like Connor's like a little responsible for her being in this predicament because he took her bullets out. I wish it was kind of paid off in that way because otherwise it's like that gun scene earlier just ends up letting us know she has a gun for this scene like i I don't know you know i don't know the purpose of how this stuff all works and that would give that scene a lot more meaning yeah (laughs) or like if she actually just shot him that would have been the other alternative no and she doesn't do anything and and she shoots him and then he's just like mom (laughs) well does has she been filled in on all this prize business not that we know of yeah which is why she's still should think that he murdered a guy at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> yeah, like, does she know that Kurgan is out there? That's what I'm. I, I wasn't know. sure I'd about. I assume not. Yeah, frankly, mm. because frankly, he, she just found out that you can't die. Let's take this one step at a time. Right. <laughs> but he grabs her and takes her on this crazy joy ride. And this, I think, this sequence is amazing. I like this yeah. too. I. Uh oh. No, hang on. <laughs> I like 50% of this sequence. Which 50? Um, the best 50 or the better 50 of it? So I just wish this sequence was half the length it was. It is a little and long. It's very long. This is an extremely long sequence, and I think if it was like a half to two-thirds of its length, it would be amazing. But by the end of it, I was just like, why are we still driving in this car? <laughs> like, Why is this still happening? I like, I like how, how it's filmed. I think that's really cool, especially the end of it where they're going across the bridge towards yeah. the Silver Cup building. That's like a really nice shot. Totally. Uh, there's a lot of good good filming, and it, it does go on a little long, though, I will. I wonder if that has to do with the music cues, if they wanted to get in more music, like... Yeah. That wouldn't surprise me, because the music's great during this whole thing. And then the Kurgan busts into New York, New York. Yeah. And then Queen busts into New York, New York. Right, and apparently Freddie Mercury did not want to record this, like, because again, like, I think Clancy Brown improvised singing New York, Uh. New York. It was something they came up with on the spot, Mm -hmm. and then they had asked Queen, they're like, hey, like, this would be a great, like, way to incorporate you guys, like, why don't you take over that song? And for some reason, Freddie Mercury was, like, very reluctant to do it and he like they went back and forth for a while and eventually agreed to do it but the movie's uh, better for it it's a great mm-hmm. i think he's great it's like yeah. also brenda is an excellent screamer yeah, she's like she's screaming selling this yes i mean clancy brown is too he's like kind of <laughs> taking an evil joy out of this like look ma no hands and like stuff like that while he's driving around pretty pretty nefarious yeah and this is a, a small bit of like we, we again don't get too much character building from about the kurgan like other than or her just, we get nothing out yeah. of either uh, but like that other than he's just pure evil like we don't right. see maybe the motivation for any of that mm-hmm. and I feel like this scene is maybe the closest we get to like hey like somebody that can't die like they have no risk they have no like he's kind of careless about life like I feel like this adds a little bit to the character that we don't get otherwise because otherwise he's just a cartoon evil character this this to me felt like a it, there, there was the, the building blocks of something more about like someone's like outlook on life mm-hmm. uh, I don't know that it added anything more to the character frankly 
I mean, I agree it showed his indifference to life. It added his flavor of the kind of evil he is, but it's not like he made him sympathetic in any way or more nuanced. So <laughs> they head over the Queensboro Bridge to the Silver Cup Studios, which are now a pretty famous New York landmark. At the time, this was not like the biggest known building in the, the city. Like, actually, the, the, in the script, this was going to be on the Statue of Liberty at one point. Right. And then it got moved to an amusement park, and eventually they settled on the Silver Cup Studios, which used to be an old bakery in New York, uh, and then around this time got converted into a movie studio, or soundstage, I guess, for movies and TV. I don't know, a bajillion things are filmed there now, like The Sopranos, well, not anymore, <laughs> it's canceled, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, like 10 years ago, yeah, The Sopranos. The Sopranos, 30, 30 Rock. Um, I was curious, um, I know, like, in its early days, like, when it wasn't as, like, renowned as, like, the biggest studio in New York, they did a lot of music videos there, hmm. and I was curious if, like, Russell maybe had an affinity for this place or had shot some stuff there before and was like, oh, like, this is a great place to shoot. Yeah. So they went there. Uh, but it's now a pretty iconic location. Uh, if you say, what, what's it, uh, like, Spider-Man 1? It's the, the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's a... They're fighting on the, the, the Queensboro Bridge, and I think the Silver Cup Studios are prominently displayed in the map. Oh, wow. I think. I don't know. I could be misremembering, but you yeah, see it all the time. Remember. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. The Kurgan leaves Connor a voicemail. <laughs> a voicemail. And yeah. you see, like, the, the cassette rolling. Yeah. So, why is Connor there? Like, where is this voicemail at Connor's place? Yeah. Okay. Because Rachel's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> So Connor ditches his ruffled trench coat for a classy leather number and decides that he's going to go face the music. That's right. He says, sweet Rachel, you knew this would happen. Russell Nash dies tonight. So... I guess when I asked earlier if, like, was he at his apartment or, like, this is a voicemail, at first, maybe I'm misremembering this, but I think when I watched it recently, I I didn't think this was taking place at Connor's apartment. I thought Connor was at Brenda's apartment. And I thought, I was like, maybe he's going, like, I was trying to figure out his motivation. I was like, is he there to apologize? Maybe he does want to reconnect. And I was thinking, this isn't a voicemail. This is that voice recorder, again, that has been teased earlier. Uh, he's at his own place. Really? I think this is yeah. a weird editing thing. I'm pretty sure. Because, like, I find, uh, there's some weird editing earlier, too. Like, with the, uh, I, I was confused when Brenda goes to the Hall of Records mm-hmm. to check the, the, the birth certificate. And mm-hmm. then it cuts to, like, the doctor's office. Like, uh. the way that cuts, I was like, is she in? interviewing someone at the Hall of Records here? Right. Like, I was like, I don't know where they are. Uh, I feel like this is a similar thing. I think Connor's at Brenda's apartment, and then we cut to Connor getting ready at his own apartment with Rachel. Maybe. Yeah. And I think I think this is the tape recorder. Like, again, I think that's the reason that scene existed earlier, was to show she had a gun, and to, sh- to get this tape recorder in there, so... None mm. of those things are meaningful enough to be worth spreading breadcrumbs for. Hey, man, I... I'm <laughs> Versus this movie's got a lot of just just versus just <laughs> having an answering machine. This is nineteen. Well, I mean, there were answering machines at this point. Yeah, I know. So he just has an answering machine, and Clancy Brown fucking calls it. I want to look this up. I want to know where he is. <laughs> Everyone on the internet, tell us if this is Brenda's apartment or Connor's apartment. You look pretty, Brenda. <laughs> Uh, these are the unanswered questions that Highlander fans have been clamoring for years to find out. That's right. <laughs> we'll start a poll on our Facebook page. Yep. Brenda's Place or Connor's Answering Machine. <laughs> Connor's Answering Machine. Anyone who thinks differently is an idiot. <laughs> 
Okay. So, either way, <laughs> wherever this scene takes place, Connor ends up talking to Rachel. Sweet right. Rachel. Sweet, sweet Rachel. Sweet and, Rachel. And she says, and this is a weird thing. She's like, the endless years of killing have driven him mad. And I'm like, huh? Like, this feels like it's something left over from an earlier script. Hmm. And I'm gonna, I, I'd am gonna. i like to play a clip right now of Gregory Wyden, the creator of Highlander, talking about the Kurgan. And then we'll talk about maybe the scene a little bit. The fascinating thing about watching Highlander as the guy who dreamed it up is it's amazing how many times the movie steps out of itself. You know, particularly some moments with the Kurgan. And Clancy had a real problem with that. He hated what he was being asked to do. And... Um, he used to come to me complaining about it, and um, and I didn't know what to tell him because I did think it was a little jokey, you know. And uh, um, what is essentially a very serious person with a serious issue, it was kind of tarted up a little bit. The Kurgan was probably, in many ways, the thing that was the most different about my screenplay. He was much more a tortured. Uh, it was. It, the Kurgan in in um, Highlander, as it is, is pretty much like Freddy. You know, he's just a cackling psychopath. I envision him as a guy who, you know, you lose everything over time, and the only thing that he could hold on to to give him a reason to get up in the morning was to finish this thing and finish it with our guy. And it was really about that more than anything, more than possession of this force, more than... It was just a reason to get up in the morning, like, what is the point? You know, you, you nothing is permanent, everything is lost. And so that made him a much more serious, almost, uh, in a weird way, sympathetic bad guy. Um, and the Kurgan in the movie is much less that. You know, he's, he's just a guy who screws with people because he enjoys screwing with people. And... Um, and it's just a different way to do it, you know. But that was probably the biggest difference between the two versions. Hmm. So I was wondering, knowing the context of Gregory Wine's conception of this character, when Rachel says, like, he's been driven mad by years of killing, like, this doesn't seem to be, like, this seems like a line that's, like, left over from an earlier version of the script where, like, th- this version of the Kurgan seems like a psychopath from the beginning. Like, he's a raping, murdering, like, freak. Uh, I, don't, I don't see him dri- being driven mad by anything. Uh, right, and insofar as he was driven mad, it was over 400 years ago Yeah, when he was driven mad uh, by And I think event. this, like, this yeah. line is really interesting. Like, I like this idea of someone that's like ends up being consumed by this thing. Like, maybe they get obsessed with the game, like, right. and they're just like, I have to win, or I just have to like compete, and it's just it, it just becomes a yeah. cycle of death and it's like, murder. Worst case scenario, I die, and that's fine. Right. Uh, yeah, this, this is an odd line to me, just because it doesn't seem to fit at all. Like... He's a crazy person from the beginning. Like, yeah. yeah, this feels like this kind of is part of the kind of Cold War reading of this entire movie. Because if you look at the movies from this period that kind of villains relish in chaos for their own sake, that's really what, what he represents. This period of madness where there are no stakes and like chaos reigns. Maybe that's what's being referred to. Hmm. Like, the madness of the times that nothing is permanent, therefore... Anything goes. Hmm. Eh. Interesting. So, Connor is on his way off to save Brenda and to fight the Kurgan. And Rachel, I guess, uh, says, you're not coming back, are you? And so I was wondering, what do you guys think? Is Why is Connor not coming back? Does he love Brenda? 
is he just tired of I don't want to say tired of Rachel, but like he just needs to move on. Like what what why would Connor not come back? Well, I think one thing is he's he's been kind of blown up enough that I think it's not really safe for him to remain where he is because he's he's a suspect in several murders. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean he probably has to keep moving. He's probably used to this kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, he thinks maybe he's going to die. Well, the other side of it is if he doesn't die, he won the prize. That's true. Right. Right. So his life is going to be fundamentally different regardless. Like whoever comes back is not going to be the same person depending on what, I guess we don't really know what the prize is. And I suppose he doesn't, but you know, that's fundamental. Like the, the status quo can't be maintained anymore. Right. Right. You're either obtaining godlike power apparently, <laughs> or you're getting your head cut off by a psychopath. So yeah. yeah deal with it yeah so he's left uh, i guess rachel some instructions she gets everything i guess he's bequeathing all his antique goodies and fortune to her uh so he departs uh he bids her farewell with the line it's a kind of magic to call back to their childhood not their childhood her childhood, <laughs> her childhood uh, yeah nazi memories <laughs> remember that time i f- saved you from getting machine gun <laughs> down by a nazi <laughs> Uh, but if you say Jack, you're the master race. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on the Silver Cup Studios. Uh, somehow, Connor does does Kurgan tell him where where he is? He's just like, find me. I don't know. Uh, who knows? That's like yeah, that's one of those remember. movie magic things. Yep. But I never like questioned whether or not he yeah. knew. Who knows? Uh, either way, they've they've got some magnetism anyway. So yep. I'm sure Connor could find him. So Brenda's Connor like, tied up. Yeah, this, there's some. I I love the shot when they reveal like it's like you see the back end of the silver cup sign. It's like all in full focus, which means like the depth of field is all the same. Like the stuff in the foreground is in focus, midground and in the background is all the same focus, which is really cool. Uh, CC so Connor like arrive on the rooftop. Uh, it's really dramatic. I think it's cool. Again, this is a very. How do you put together a shot like that where all three? Are in focus. Uh, it depends. Sometimes, uh, depending on the movie, they'll like use models to actually like put the foreground, like something that's supposed to be in the background. They'll just put it closer and use like a model or a painting. Mm-hmm. That way, the camera picks it up as being closer. Uh, but otherwise, they'll use uh, it's called like shift focus um, or tilt shift. Excuse me. And so they end up having like essentially two different lenses uh, when the camera was. They, they like adjust the focus so you can you can see two different things. Sometimes usually there's like a line. Like if you look at like older movies or even modern movies, like maybe there'll be a character in the foreground and one in the background, but there's like a pillar in the middle of the scene, and they use that as like the focus point. And so like the the pillar will be slightly out of focus, and it's because they're using two different lenses to capture the foreground and the background so um, that both are in focus right um but yeah it's, it's a cool effect and uh yeah they do it here so this is a very like operatic climactic fight scene mm-hmm. just like we had in the castle before yeah uh, this is a really cool sequence i mean i noticed that they use freddie mercury's voice in the soundtrack a little bit here i don't know if anyone noticed that like there's like weird whooshing sounds when connor arrives and they've got freddie mercury i think it's it's a kind of magic like the lyrics from that like but they're all distorted and like whooshing around in the background I thought was pretty cool. There's like this kind of almost King Kong kind of reference here because she, Brenda, is kind of chained up to the silver cup sign, like elevated. And when Connor goes to to rescue her, he is ambushed by the Kurgan. Did I say King Kong? I should have said Donkey Kong. Donkey. 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 Sorry. 
<laughs> so then the fight breaks out, and this yeah. is the second unforced error on like a downward chop we see from Connor McLeod. Like just like with Facil, where he accidentally like stabs the pipe and gets like blasted in the face with steam. He once again just like accidentally hits the scaffolding while they're fighting and gets housed as a result. Yeah, and the Kurgan does this weird like spin move at one point where he chops down the whole sign. Yeah, he's like got a lightsaber. Or yeah. <laughs> like he's just hacking away at the sign. And just twirling. He's doing ballet and yeah. hacking this thing to pieces. Like he's like, oh, you started it, so I guess I'll finish it. Right. And he just chops the whole sign down. And then that also makes the water tower fall over. Yeah, there's a water tower on the roof. That collapses and yeah. floods the whole roof. Right. So in the midst of this fight, and I couldn't tell, is this supposed to be a callback? Connor gets like knocked down and disappears underwater. And I was like, oh, like we've seen this happen before because he like disappears for a while. While mm. and it's like, oh, we know Connor can like survive, be like be underwater. Yeah. Although, like the thing that's weird is like the lip on this roof is like a foot tall, so yeah. it's like there's a foot of water, yeah, and like everybody is disappearing. With yeah. their full bodies. Like, the Kurgan does this weird spin <laughs> yeah, underwater. I, I have no idea what it yeah. is, but it's awesome. Yes. He's like, <laughs> like he's going down a toilet. Right. <laughs> like he's getting flushed down the toilet. He is. <laughs> yeah. But then the sign falls and Brenda gets like un roped. She gets dislodged from the sign or right. something. Was this supposed to be some kind of odd callback to the fact that they can breathe underwater? That's is what that I thought it was. Like, because they both end up underwater and it's like, and but it's we don't really, see anything else and it's just like, I guess they can be underwater. It's not really played up. I would have liked to see them either fight underwater or have it be <laughs> Hold like, on. Imagine that playing out. Imagine oh this movie God. where there's an <laughs> underwater sword fight. Not like an underwater sword fight, but like some struggling. Like, and struggling. Even yeah. just a shot of them struggling struggling beneath the waves yes. or like it's <laughs> just something right because it was so striking they made it such a point to reveal that connor could breathe underwater in fact you see him like giggling to himself underwater about <laughs> how he can breathe underwater and then they both are underwater in the climactic fight of the thing yeah. i i will bet you that there was something planned for like i feel like that must have been a, a setup for this hmm. it didn't knows? stick out to me hmm. we'll, that, we'll ask strange. russell yeah Russ Mack. <laughs> Russ Mack. Uh, so, I mean, this is a pretty cool fight. I don't know. I, I, I like it so far. I do, too. Uh, it's it's a crazy, like, combo of, like, I guess they filmed some, some stuff on location. Yeah. Then they had, like, a replica of the Silver Cup Studios in London. Mm-hmm. They apparently, they wanted to do some, like, reshoots on this. Like, they wanted to take some second takes, close-ups, that sort of stuff. But when they tipped over the water tower and, like, flooded the set, I guess they thought it was going to be, like, drain out, and it mm. didn't. So Ugh. they went back to, like, do some more shoots and, like, the entire set, I think, was, like, completely unusable. Um, Yikes. Yeah. There's one part where the S, the Silver Cup S, is falling over, and you can see the, <laughs> the, wires. the wires pulling it down. <laughs> and, you know, I know it's a kind of a low-budget cult movie, but I thought that was funny. Yeah. I remember when I had watched that, I never thought of that as, like, someone pulling the wire down. I just mm. always assumed there were cables on the oh, like, right. on either side of the sign just, like, for stability. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. So I never read too deep into that, that wire. There will yeah. be some other cables we're going to talk there about later. Be. but uh, So after... <laughs> electric suspenders. That's so, right. <laughs> oh, we haven't really mentioned, there is, like, electricity everywhere right now. Everywhere. Everywhere. Like, Which so, is cool, because the Silver Cup building, it's like almost like the signs are generating the electricity as they hit the water and do all right. this. And there's crazy sparks. Like, every hit they take, like, there's electricity in the water coming from the soil. It's really cool. Yeah. 
Uh, so after the water tower explodes, they end up tumbling through like a skylight right. into like just what a is big room, like a big yeah. warehousey sort of room with a big window. And, and I, I really like this as a like a setting for. It's pretty awesome. Uh, like it's like again, like in the script, I guess it was supposed to be on the Statue of Liberty, which is really iconic. But I kind of like this like stark imagery. Like it's just an empty room. It's just the two of them. It's backlit, so it's like mm-hmm. more silhouetted stuff. Like I think this has got a lot of like style to it, which is cool. Yeah. Like, a lot of style. It's kind of funny that they transition from a less, a more complicated set to a less complicated set. Like, there's this trajectory towards simplicity. Mm-hmm. Like, even comparing it to, like, the Kurgan Ramirez fight, that's, like, a complicated fight scene where all the stuff is exploding during the fight and all this stuff's going on. The final confrontation is stark. Yeah. It's just kind of... It's almost like they're fighting in a desert. Right. And actually, good that you mentioned a desert. So it's interesting, like, the, the music kicks in uh, when they start fighting on the roof. And this is... Yeah, it's, it's the Michael Kamen score. Uh, apparently, allegedly, he wrote this final, like, climactic fight scene cue in 24 hours, I think. Which is, like, insane. That's a lot of music to write in yeah. such a short amount of time. Also, I don't really feel like the music fits what's happening I was on the screen. I was going to ask how you feel about the music during this entire climactic scene i don't know how i feel about it i'm not a huge fan of the stuff on the rooftop i like the the cues when they're in the warehousey sort of section that's when i feel the opposite really i thought the entire from like i was at least on board when they're on the roof like i don't i'm not gonna like i don't think it was as good as what's come before it Mm -hmm. but i was at least like in it once they get into the warehouse i just feel like the music is like wrong in some way Mm -hmm. like it's not syncing up with what I'm seeing. It's like it really, doesn't capture the emotions I'm yeah. feeling. Certainly, like it feels like it's the climax of a different movie. Interesting. Well, it's really upbeat and heroic. Like you're supposed to be feeling victorious, but Connor hasn't <laughs> like turned the tables yet. Right. Yeah. Like, like Connor's still getting his ass kicked yeah. a lot of this, but the move, the music is telling me he's already won. Right. Huh. Right. I, I remember. Very I thought that came so. later. Yeah. I thought when he. Got the upper hand at change, but maybe not. But he like he doesn't really and truly get the upper hand in this fight until very close to the end, right? Yeah, which is consistent with like his entire character and yeah. everything like that. But the music is triumphant from yeah. more or less the minute they get into the warehouse. Huh? Yep. Interesting. It's uh, it odd. stuck it out just, to me. It doesn't yeah. feel right. I wonder if like Queen music would have been better suited here. At my sense was a yes. But even, I think it should have been Queen music and then transition. Or it could have been no music. Well, uh, that's what, when you mentioned, like, a desert, I was just going to bring this up. So when they're fighting on the roof, there is the Michael Kamen score. It's this very, like, operatic music, similar to what we saw when he fought Fazil in the, the beginning. Uh, or when the Kurgan and Ramirez fought in the castle. Mm-hmm. But once they fall through the skylight... Uh, they do this great, and a lot of movies do this. Uh, Star Wars does it every once in a while. Like they cut the music out completely. So, like, not only do they go from this complicated set to this very like stark, empty room, but like you are left now with no music. And I think that's a really great effect. Like all you hear is the clashing of their swords, and it's just bleak and stark. It's just the two of them, and then eventually the music kind of kicks back in, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, so, the, yeah, the music is the swords. I guess, yeah. in, this, in this sense, which is neat. So then we have, uh, they're fighting, Connor's kind of losing, mm-hmm. and then Brenda steps in. 
Yeah. Yes, this is interesting. So, like, they both fall, but Connor seems worse for wear. Speeding into this notion that the Kurgan's the strongest. The Kurgan seems to recover quicker. Yeah, he gets and, right up. Whereas Connor's, like, get in the process of getting up, but doesn't seem as ready to jump into the fight. But so, in the third pipe scene of this movie, right. yeah. Brenda comes in and whacks him with the pipe, which also... How'd she get down there? She didn't fall through that glass. No, they show her trying to get through a door at one point. Yeah. And finds them, I guess. Mm -hmm. I guess so. So, yes, there's 75% of the fight scenes in this have a pipe in it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pipe man begins. And then Connor's like... Pipe lander. Yeah, pipe lander. Connor's like, what kept you? (laughs) It's like, it's an awful one-liner, but again, it's like this rascally, Mm -hmm. sort of like jokester sort of guy. Yeah, I don't know how to feel about Connor, like... Ever. Yeah. Uh, again, he should be like, we keep bringing up Han Solo or a more modern reference like, what's it, Star Killer from, uh, is that his name? Guardians of the Galaxy? Star Lord. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> it is not. Well, all right. Uh, yeah, same Star Vader. What's the guy's Chris name? Chris Pratt. How would Chris Pratt be as the new Highlander? Ooh. Too baby faced. A little bit. He is a bit baby faced, but. We should talk about that more, but like again, like the the version of Connor McLeod this movie paints is so all over the map. I think like you could you could do somebody like him. Like I remember a number of years ago, Ryan Reynolds was attached to this project, and I remember a lot of people were like, "Ugh, like no way, no how." And I remember I was one of those people. I was like, "Oh, that's no good." But then watching this movie again and seeing how like rascally and funny Connor seems to be, I was like, "Oh, like actually, when you have any glimpse of what his character is, right?" But it's like, oh, I can see like if whoever was doing the casting was like in touch with that portion of the character mm-hmm. it's like oh i can see where ryan reynolds like made it through this process to be like oh yeah like that's that's a version like the funny smart ass character here yeah uh but it could also be many other like the dark weird for like, yeah, yeah exactly so anyway and at this point in the fight the kurgan his eyes become really round and dark. It's very awesome. weird. I love it. Yeah. They give him like black contacts. And this is, yeah. I guess, where like the music kicks back in. Yeah. It becomes like heroic. And Connor starts getting an upper hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess he cuts the Kurgan in the belly. And the Kurgan's eyes turn black, which is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Though just to back up for a second, to talk about this Pipe Man Begins moment. <laughs> she hits him with a pipe. In right. the back. Right. In the back. He, speaking to this tranquility, keeping your cool moment. Rather than finishing what he came here to do, he, like, turns his att- all of his attention to her and, like, loses his cool. Somehow, Connor manages to get up, right. run, like, we, at some point, like, his sword gets thrown away. Oh, he gets kicked across the room. <laughs> he runs, like, 40 feet. Well, I think he teleports, because Ramirez taught him how to do it. Oh, yeah, right. he has his teleporting he powers. across yeah. the room, grabs the sword, teleports all the way back, and then he's doing, like, this massive overhand swing on her. And he just sticks his katana out, and like it's a lightsaber, just stops it. Like somehow, it's like you know what, your sword is there, and then his sword keeps going and cuts her in twain. Yep. <laughs> just saying, yeah, Brenda's dead. Yeah. <laughs> so we get uh, D- I guess kind D- of the D- dead. <laughs> um, again, I think the sh- the shooting in this scene is really neat. Uh, yeah, this is a cool fight. This is a technique that Russell. I think he pioneered this technique, like the camera's zipping all over the place, and it was like some sort of like dolly system. Like they would put the camera on a track, but like without a stand, like it was on the ground almost. And I think they had it like on a cord, like a zip zip cord, and they would zip it across the floor. So the camera's like whipping back and forth on this track, and I think it li- gives this like really grandiose view of the fight. I don't know. I think it's a it's a cool 
music video technique they use. So Connor wins. Yes. He chops off the Kurgan's head. So he slits his neck, and you're not sure what's going on at first, and oh, then right. suddenly... I guess the Kurgan's head, like, slides off. Yeah. And then they cut to, like, light exploding from his neck and, yep. like, a chicken with his head cut off. Yeah. The Kurgan is, like, reaching over yeah. his head. He's like, oh, what happened? What, what happened? What happened? Yeah. Doesn't he do, like, one last motion with his sword or yeah. something? Yeah. It's and, strange. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And then that's it for Kurgi. Kurgi's gone. So then we get... What's the Kurgan's real name? Kurg... Kurgis, Kurgiburgis, because he signs as Victor Kruger. I Victor don't assume Kruger. that's his real name. Mm-hmm. His real name is Kurt Gin. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> good. Uh, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, should we play the clip of Connor getting the quickening? Yes, I guess so. All right, we're gonna need like a visual clip of this too. Yeah, we're, we'll yes. definitely post this on Facebook. Uh, but we're gonna put it's this a visual assault, <laughs> right? Yes. So, what is going on here? There's all these crazy... I actually like this animation. Uh-huh. Uh, these crazy drawings of weird demons and dragons <laughs> grabbing his head and, like, sniffing him and doing all sorts of crazy <laughs> shit. I don't know what's going on here. It's all this hand-drawn, uh-huh. kooky animation. Connor, well, he says the famous line, there can, can be, be only, only one. one. And that sets off this whole thing. Like, the yeah. windows all explode. It, like, zooms in on him. Yeah. And then, boom, boom, boom. And then he flies up in the air. You can see the wires. <laughs> uh, and there's a story that I guess, like in in a, an original version of this, Russell McKay envisioned him fighting like a dragon. He would fight a dragon. Like yeah. this is like the like not the final boss battle. Like right. there's the super boss battle at the end. And then they visualized it this way. And I've heard things that they put in this animation to hide the wires. Oh, but. It didn't really work. It did, it did the it, opposite. It, yeah, exactly. it, it, like, it made it look like he has electric suspenders. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's very silly, frankly. So one of the things that happens in this quickening, like this is like all, all the quickenings is over the top as they have been that we've seen so far. This one is that like on crack. Like yeah. this is so crazy. And, and it's like top. zooming in on his eye, like it's, over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. Like, so it's even crack. It's like crocodile or something. <laughs> crocodile. Or, something, or like some sci-fi drug we've never heard of. <laughs> crocodile on crack. Yeah. yeah. So one thing we're gonna have to put a picture of on Facebook is it keeps it like zooms in on his eye over yeah. and over again. And I guess it's like I don't know what the point of this is. Like I don't know if it's going through like all the souls that he's like ingested. Yeah. Like I don't know how to put this. He's eating them. He's eating them, right? Like, but at some point his head explodes, and it yeah. happens for one frame on film, and you have to go through and pause it to see it. But they have like a like a head. Like it looks like it's made of play doh. Like, looks like it, he looks like a Ken doll head. Yes. <laughs> like they have sculpted a Christopher Lambert head out of play doh, and then blown it to smithereens. Yep. Uh, it's amazing. I think I don't know. Everyone should pause it. It's insane. Yep. Also, like seeing the. I agree that this is kind of like a cool bit of animation, but seeing it, it seems like a negative thing. Seeing this happen seems like an awful oh, thing yeah. is being inflicted on yeah, another like, human being. Like, this is. 
terrible. It's well, all, like, all scary monsters, yeah. like yeah, <laughs> engulfing him. He's being yeah. inhabited by a million skulls and a dragon. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it doesn't seem like these things are like fleeing either. Like no. they're getting him. Like yeah, yeah I don't know what this is over him yeah. in some way. It's very strange. Uh, thinking about it in the context of what you had mentioned of how do you interpret the phrase "there can be only one." is interesting it's like this unity it's that like the all the immortals are like actually vying to be combined into a single person in some way right that there's like they're trying to be combined into like one perfect creature perfect christopher lambert Mm -hmm. when i think perfection i think christopher lambert You know, the guy with the swords. Yeah. I might be misremembering because it's been a while since we've read this, but Eamon, you you had found an article in... What was the... Ma- it was an old sci-fi... Starlog. Starlog. Yeah. And I remember there was an interview with some of the people involved in Highlander from 1986, and clearly this interview was done like while they were still in post-production, and one of their special effects, like the, the coordinators or the head of special effects or whatever, was talking about this scene and about yeah. how crazy this was going to be. It's going to be awesome. And he was talking about... Like they, 20 immortal heads. Right. So he had built these like masks that were like of ice, he said. Like that was yeah. the plan. And, and, like, there were different faces. And it was supposed to be all the people that had gone before Connor. And I guess they were going to blast them with heat. And so you would see, like, each of these faces emerge out of ice. Yeah. And it sounded like this crazy, like, yep. very, uh, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ambitious mm-hmm. sort of special effect. Uh, obviously, that's not in the movie at all. Uh, no. So that didn't work. I mean, they got they were... one head. And then they, got, they got one head made yeah. out of Play-Doh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So you missed the ice wall of faces. <laughs> Can we just talk about for a minute the things he's saying? Yes, let's. (laughs) Please. I think this scene would be a thousand times more effective if he just kept his fucking mouth shut. Because he's (laughs) saying some stupid shit. So what's he say? The quickening, it absorbs me, or what is it? It overpowers, it overpowers, overpowers me. Overpowers that, me. Was the, that also feeds into the notion that this is like bad. Like right, he's right. Using you get something. overpowered by something not good. He's like, not himself right. anymore. He's yeah. being overpowered by this thing. Mm-hmm. And then, I know everything. <laughs> I, I am everything. everything. <laughs> Maybe it's just his delivery of these lines, but <laughs> no. I laughed when I heard these. I don't know that there's a way to deliver that to yeah. make it seem plausible. But it is this like weird kind of unity Buddhist kind of thing. And again, mm. we don't know what's going on. Right. Like again, like and and either does he, I guess, right? Like right. they, they from no the beginning of this movie, they have not set up what this is. So as the audience, we're just like, huh, like, okay, like it's a little bit more of the same, but we're not it seems to be bigger or something something's different. It looks kind of the same to what was before. Except yeah. the cartoons stuff. Yeah. It's like yeah. like cartoons from Fantasia flying around him mm-hmm. or whatever, but so the dragon. Should we talk about that for a second? Because the Kurgan's the dragon. What's the deal with this thing? I guess, I mean, it feels like if Russell had envisioned there being, like, a final boss fight at the end, <laughs> I guess this all Con- makes Connor's sense. Connor's already like, learned the ability to double jump, so yeah. now he can defeat the boss. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I guess this all makes sense. And also, I give them a lot of props for, like, setting up that dragon imagery, like, throughout. Like, this isn't something that was just tacked on to the end. It's like, oh, and then he becomes a dragon and they fight. It's like, huh, like, what? Like, right. if you look back through the movie, it's like, no, there's, like, he's in snakeskin armor. Like, he's got the tattoo. Like, there's a lot of dragon stuff. So I give them props for that. But I'm not exactly sure what the deal is with that. Like, yeah. what it means. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, especially like what did dragons mean like mythologically? Like the imagery they use for the Kurgan's dragon, like the tattoo on the side of his head is like a East Asian dragon. And right. aren't aren't Asian dragons like benevolent and like those are those are not destructive creatures. Like there's two kinds of dragons in mytho- mythology. Like there's dragons from Asia and those are good. Like they're signs of luck or prosperity or wealth or something. And then there's the like Anglo European version of a dragon. And they're the ones always guarding the treasure in a cave and taking sacrifices. And then they, they always seem to represent like your inner desires. That's why like you've always got to like, the hero's journey is always like to the cave. Like it's about facing yourself. Like that's why Luke goes into a cave and you know, Return, Return of the Jedi? Return of the Jedi. Empire Strikes. Empire Strikes. Ah, sorry, guys. Sorry, God. <laughs> sorry, nerds. I blew it. <laughs> At one point, I, it took me being sent that image of, like, the Play-Doh head <laughs> to to realize what it was. Because in my notes, I was like, is that, like, a bust of Julius Caesar? <laughs> was what I'd written. It looked like a marble, like, Roman bust to me the first time I saw this. But then Connor goes on to explain the prize, and that's very odd. So, all right. So after the scene, Connor collapses on the ground, the ground, and Brenda comforts him. And we should note the windows do shatter. Yeah, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That part of this whole thing is cool as hell. They're like yeah. big, big explosions. Like in the shadow. Too, hey, I was like just gonna say, like, if, you, if yeah. you like, if hey, if you like the last five minutes of this movie, check out the last five minutes of the shadow because it's identical. Yeah, it uh, is. <laughs> he's like in a mirror room <laughs> and everything explodes. Yeah, it's awesome. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it is. Um, so then we cut to presumably the Scottish Highlands, mm-hmm. and there's another scene that I feel like is set up oddly. And Kyle, you, I, I didn't take note of the flashbacks here. Like you mentioned that the last flashback we have was the Boston Common thing, which was a while ago. And also, it's not in the Highlands. Like, this scene, I feel like they're trying to do a fake-out here. And this would work better if we were always kind of flashing back to Scotland in a way. Like, we're getting... We're just accustomed to flashing back to Scotland in a certain time period. Flashing back means 1500 Scotland. Exactly. That is the meaning of flashbacks. Maybe. Uh, Because, like, we're set up, and it's like, you you clearly know just from the imagery the movie's set up, it's like, we're in Scotland. And it's like, this must be, like, presumably this must be a flashback. But then, like, a fighter jet flies overhead. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, fake out. It's like, this isn't then, it's now. Right. Uh, Which I think is a a great, like, setup. Like, like, Back to the Future does this. It's like, oh, what year are we in? Like, we're not sure. Like, Marty looks around, and then, like, suddenly a flying car goes overhead. It's like, Ah, like we know when we are now. Um, We're last year. (laughs) (laughs) That's still depressing me. Well, sorry, Back to the Future 2. You're now back to the past, too. (laughs) Uh, So then Connor and Brenda are like in the hillside. And also, it should be noted, this is also reshot. So they did not. They, I, I, I am really curious what the first version of the scene was, but yeah. it was apparently drastically different. Huh. Um, I'm not sure if all this voiceover stuff was present. Yeah. Um, like the, I know all the costuming is different because Christopher Lambert is wearing Bill Panzer's shirt in that <laughs> scene, um, and what? I guess they didn't feel like the ending was working, so they went back and they actually. I think they actually had to fly everybody back to Scotland to shoot this. Like that's how big of a change that's they I needed thought to make. Brenda looked different in this scene and kind of weird. Mm, that could be know. why. It's probably yeah. maybe a couple like uh, maybe even a couple months later yeah. like uh, when yeah. they cut the movie together so i'm super curious if anyone knows what this ending was supposed to be like i'd be curious but connor explains what's going on kind of kind of so we can like read p 
people's minds? Yeah, she's like, well, I want, uh, like, what's going on? And, like, he's like, well, you're wondering if you can love me or not. And he's like, you can. Like, yeah. <laughs> So, like, it almost seems, so there's two sides to this prize that are weird and seem like two separate, seem like they're developing two separate themes. So we've got this whole naturalistic element where he can read, like, tap into the powers of animals and become one with nature. And it seems like the prize, in one sense, is the ability to do that with humans. Right. So this kind of existing ability that immortals have is enlarged, and that's the prize. And that seems, like, phenomenally powerful. But then there's this separate notion that the prize is the ability to grow old and die and live as an live as a mortal right which is like and have children which is like thematically a separate unique prize it's like the prize is something that regular people already have like they are fighting to become like everyone else right is the fundamental like cherry at the end of this thing like the kiss at the end of the rainbow is this is this thing that's completely ordinary um and that's kind of those are two interesting but I think divergent themes. Like I don't feel like the prize should be both of those things. I don't know, maybe I'm thinking too much about it. Do we want to uh listen to the end here? Yeah, yeah. So, this is where it all began. Can you tell me about the prize? It's like a whirlwind in my head. But if I concentrate I know what people are thinking all over the world. This feels like ADR now. Yeah, because it is. Yeah. Scientists. I mean, there's nobody I on screen them speaking to each other. It's just a voiceover. Is this also recorded in the bathroom? <laughs> You're thinking whether or not you can love me. You can. We're not. Just like you. Redundant. I can love and have children. Live and grow old. You never prepared me for that, you Spanish peacock. Like, is he talking to her? Is he talking Patience, to her? Patience, Highlander. You have done well. So is this like Obi-Wan Kenobi? Are they actually having a conversation? Good question. No. I, maybe. I don't yes. know. He, it's possible in this in the, the context of this movie that, like, I mean, he does absorb people's souls. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. well, that's the other thing. Like, Kurgan absorbed Ramirez. He absorbed Kurgan. So I guess distributive property so, now absorbed so Ramirez. So Connor kissed Ramirez? Yes. <laughs> Ew! Uh, it's Sorry. beautiful, Keith. All right. uh, well, I wonder if the Kurgan can, like, pop in, pop in at any time he wants and talk to Connor. Every once in a while, he just hears, Mom! <laughs> He's got the two little things on his shoulders, a little cartoon, Devil and Angel. Imagine how disappointed the Kurgan would be if he won the prize. Right. I, I just would... had to hear Christopher Lambert go, hey, 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 yeah. for all eternity. And then, like, hey, I'm mortal now. I can't harass people anymore with impunity. <laughs> this is an odd... I... All right. I really like the bait and switch of what the prize is. Like, I like that conceptually. It's like, this prize is, like, everyone's after this, and everyone maybe has their conception of what the prize is. Like, it's maybe understood as, like, being ultimate power, control, who knows what. And it ends up being, like, a simplistic sort of, like, inner peace sort of thing. And again, I think this plays into this, like, there can be only one. Like, it's about, like, unity, uh, finding your, like, spirit something. Like, you know what I mean? A bunch of gobbledy spiritual gook. I like that bait and switch. And again, like, I agree, Eamon. Like, well, yeah, what would the Kurgan have done with this? Or is the prize unique to the person? That's what I was going to say. Would he, Is this what the Kurgan would have received if he had won the prize? Hmm. Right. Or would well, he have gotten something different? 
like an even bigger sword <laughs> with more moving parts. That's right. <laughs> he would have actually become a dragon. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I suppose the Kurgan could use this knowledge to his benefit. Sure. Right. And let's not pretend that re- the ability to read minds isn't phenomenally, phenomenally powerful. <laughs> right. Sure. But, but this is definitely like sort of like a anticlimax. Like it's like it's this guy isn't like crowned king of the world at the end of this like uh, no one knows who he's he not is prince of the universe yeah like i mean like yeah no one's aware of his existence like he kind of still operates like a, the quiet hero yeah I don't know. I, I like that twist a lot. No. And I think they could make more out of it if they tried to define the prize through the characters more and then had it not be what those characters defined it as. Like, if the, if the Kurgan was out for a goal, like, if he was like, I want to rule the world, like, I this is what I want. And then at the end, we get to see, hey, that's not what this prize was. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the, the, we've, we're not given the opposite of whatever this thing is to, like, help define it. Like, we're just always given, like, who knows what the prize is? And then it ends up being this. And you're like, as a viewer, you're like, I guess it's this. Like, yeah. but if you had like maybe Connor espouse like what he thought the pro- like no the prize is going to be this, and if the Kurgan said no the prize is this, like I want to you know rule over mankind, and maybe Castigier had a view of it, or Ramirez had a view. Like either way, it honestly could even still just have been the Kurgan's viewpoint of what the prize is. I think it would made this switch this like this little trick at the end a little more powerful. But I am everything. <laughs> <laughs> So then we this movie ends on like a really awkward kiss. I just don't feel like these actors have chemistry really. Nope. Yeah. And this like really seals it. Like they concealed it in like their love scene by having it all be like in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you just get, like, a silhouetted nipple kiss. Well, we know Connor <laughs> loves his nips. Yeah. But now it's, like, in the light of day. This just doesn't feel like it works. Nope. nope. I know you feel like you're wondering, can you love me? The answer is, eh. If I feel like it, if I'm worth it, eh. <laughs> Am I worth it? I still have all the same doubts. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we, uh, let's take a little bit of a break. And we're going to come back and kind of give our final thoughts on the movie and and, and uh, just do kind of a big wrap-up, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Are you telling us to talk to listeners? I was not sure, so I was just saying it with conviction and <laughs> confidence. <laughs> Rewatches. This is Keith. Make sure to like and follow us on Facebook and iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. That's right. Each and every week we come up with brand new Highlander Rewatch content for your listening pleasure. So make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any major podcasting app. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So we have finished watching Highlander, the motion picture. This has been quite the ride. Yeah. Way more episodes out of this than I think even we thought possible. Yes. This is now our seventh episode. We, I I know I expected three max, maybe max, max. We found a lot to talk about. There's a lot in this movie. It's pretty dense. Yeah. I don't know. It had been a little while since I've seen this movie, actually, because I feel like I watched the sequels more uh, because I always kept going back to try to give them another chance. Be like, oh, let me see this again. Like, maybe it's not as bad as I thought it was. So I kind of was not watching the original Highlander for a long time. Because in my mind, it was like, oh, no, I like that one. Like, I don't need to see it again. But it was nice to go back and see it. And I I appreciated it more than maybe I ever have before. Yeah. And especially a lot of the technical aspects of this movie, which we went over in detail. You really need to be paying kind of close attention to see some of the, the subtler touches in the way this movie is shot. Which is pretty brilliant, actually. I think I, like, I enjoy the kind of 
grounded, realistic elements of this movie, whereas a lot of the sequel material is more science fictiony. Mm-hmm. I don't really, I don't know if that helps Highlander overall. I mean, I think that's part of the appeal of the TV show. It's just more fantasy than science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think the noir element really kind of helps it. And it's pretty grounded yeah. throughout. Like, the only thing this movie really asks you to accept is that they're, like, immortal and, like, can take a beating. Right. That's really all you need to suspend disbelief on to, to kind of take this ride with them. Some of the weirder stuff, like, is unessential. Like, you don't need to know that he can meld, mind meld with a stag to, <laughs> yeah. to make it through this movie. Whereas the later movies, like, you have to accept a lot or to, br- to get into it. Yeah, or breathe underwater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty extraneous, though. Yeah. Also, yeah, this this movie actually almost is a little better for not explaining too much. Like, it just presents stuff, and you're like, oh, okay. As you get deeper into the mythology, they try to explain stuff, and then it starts creating contradictions, and it's like, wait, how does this work? But it just kind of shows you stuff, and it's like, oh, I guess that's what it is, so. And that's like an Achilles heel to a lot of fantasy. Like, it's like Star Wars syndrome, where, like, they had to explain where the Force comes from. It's like, oh, it's like midi-chlorians. It's not really magic. It's cells within cells. It's my favorite cells. part of the, uh, <laughs> the series, Kyle. Yeah, the, the midi-chlorians. <laughs> Are you serious or kidding? Absolutely. That's the best part of the, the prequels. What? No. <laughs> no. No, Jar Jar Binks is the best part. Agreed. Mm. Misa, agree. What? <laughs> Misa, agreesa. There we go. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Where's the other thing? That's Lambert's favorite part of the character, which confuses me, is that he's like a grounded, real hero with emotions, and he's not a superhero, which... You know, as far as I can tell from the sequels, what he likes about the character isn't extended as much. Yeah, that's a good point. Which is, I find weird, because he was a driving force behind a lot of those sequels, as far as I'm aware. But I'm not an expert at this point on those sequels, so, Mm. you know. We'll see how it pans out. Yeah, tune in 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 eight months months and Eamon will be an expert on those sequels. (laughs) That's right. Uh, So here's here's a good question. Would you guys... This is a two-parter, and I don't know if the the first part is a fair question. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Is this a good movie? Yes. Okay. Eamon, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I will agree. I think this is a pretty good movie. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's a... It's... It's got some odd bits. Like, it's far from a perfect movie. But it is a good movie. Yeah. And it's very well made. I think so, too. And you know what's interesting? So, as preparation for kind of us watching this, I was I was reading a lot of um, movie reviews from the time. And we'll, maybe we'll put some links to these on Facebook. But it's surprising how negative this movie was received. And I think a lot of that is the fault of the, the U.S. distributor. And they, they made all these weird cuts that, like, it's definitely an inferior movie with a lot of those scenes missing. Um, Especially, like, things like the betrayal when yeah. he gets driven from his village. Like, you need to see... They need to set up relationships in order to knock them down. Otherwise, there's no sting. And the whole opening scene, which yeah, sets up, like, the... No interstitials? Yeah, that's, that's insane. No um, to but, refresh our readers memories of this during the opening wrestling scene there are these interstitial cuts back to an ancient battlefield and that's like the first hint that you get that mcleod's immortal in the american release they cut that out no bueno yeah 
yeah, it's also interesting. Like if you read a lot of the uh, the old reviews, like I know Gene Siskel had a lot of problems with this. The the reviewer for the like Philadelphia Inquirer, I want to say the London Times, they all had this problem that the movie was hyper violent. Did you guys think this movie is like hyper violent? Hyper? No. I mean, I don't have much context for it. I can't really remember what was out at the same time. I mean, let's be fair. There's a scene where you know the Kurgan's throat gets cut and like blood spills <laughs> out. Right. Like there are people's torsos getting cut and blood spilling out. It's a lot more violent than the TV show, obviously, right. but I wouldn't say it's hyper violent. But yeah. you know, I also watch like anime and you know <laughs> horror movies, so my perception might be a little yeah gene siskel said he was like his stomach turned and he wanted to like leave the theater that i don't was, that i don't get which seems crazy yeah. also this movie was made in 86 filmed in 85 like movies like terminator yeah terminator is the one i was compar- thinking uh, comparing like, this like as a hard r movie yeah uh, well, like, he, texas he chainsaw massacre yeah. like i don't know and again i i haven't read gene siskel's reviews of those movies i mean maybe he just has a you know a dislike for violence in film Right. Uh, so he might have not liked those. I mean, there's a part where somebody gets picked up off the ground on the tip of a right. sword and thrown. And right before that, a guy gets shot with a machine gun and flies across an alleyway. So, yeah. And then right before that, somebody's <laughs> head got cut off. So, I mean, objectively, this is a violent movie. Yeah, but... it, is, it is violent. And I think part of it's also, it's fairly gritty violence. It's not very glamorous it's not part of like fast cuts and like super action even though we did discuss that there are a lot of cuts in these fight scenes but it's not like glanced over you kind of dwell on the violence in this movie for for a solid bit beat like you have moments to kind of appreciate how kind of intense some of the stuff that happens is Mm -hmm. so i guess it's but it's like artfully shot i guess it's not gratuitous i guess i don't know like there aren't guts falling out right like yeah, it's weird. No, I think it's not been... like a slasher movie. Yeah. But... yeah. And movies today are so crazy violent. Like, yeah. know, even TV is pretty crazy violent. Like, this, this through our lens, I feel like, is, is not violent. I mean, it is, but, like, it's like, oh, whatever. Like, yeah, I've I, seen far worse than this. Yeah, I think this movie could air, like, in primetime now yeah. without being yeah. edited. Yeah. Like, Well, there are samurai movies from the 70s that are, like, regarded as classic films that are more violent than this movie. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Part two of my question that I was going to ask is, would you recommend this movie to other people to see? Especially if they had no idea about Highlander or anything like that. Yes, but not without qualification. What are those qualifications? Well, like I'd have to know... I'd recommend it to people who I knew their taste in movies a little bit. I'd recommend this to anyone who's a fantasy fan, anyone who likes metal or like rock in any way. And I'd recommend it to anyone who's into kind of like noir pieces. I'd be very comfortable recommending that to anyone who fits into those categories. That being said, I don't think this movie is for everyone. Mm-hmm. You also have to be willing to stomach a bit of confusion, right. as we've learned going through this. Uh, if you have not, don't have like a Highlander backdrop as you see this movie. There are bits that are, I think, just objectively kind of confusing to a first-time viewer. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of follow that. Uh, I mean, I think any like genre movie fan would probably like this, especially action. Um, I feel like movies these days, it's it's kind of compartmentalized, and this definitely feels like kind of a niche movie or something it's not like the avengers or something where everybody goes to see them you know what i mean yeah and like if you like the hobbit you're not necessarily gonna like this movie right like even though they're both in quotes fantasy people like the hobbit (laughs) 
<laughs> the first one was okay. It's okay. The second and third ones were... <laughs> I'm going to go on record saying the third Hobbit movie is one of my least favorite movies that I've ever spent that much time seeing. Wow. I detested that movie. <laughs> Did you guys see the video of Benedict Cumberbatch doing motion capture to play Smog the Dragon? No. They actually had him do it. They what? had him do Everybody listening to this, go on YouTube, <laughs> search Benedict Cumberbatch Smog motion capture or whatever. You guys have to see this video. He's like on his hands and knees <laughs> going like roar and stuff like that. And I'm like, there are these people called animators who can actually animate this fucking dragon <laughs> because humans guess what they're not shaped like dragons <laughs> wait hang on rewind we're not shaped like dragons <laughs> no uh, shit <laughs> unfortunately i wish we were but anyway that was an aside yeah i mean uh right. it's it's good i i feel like i'd say this is a good like cult movie totally what about you Oh, I'm on board. I would definitely. I'm. I'm with you, Kyle. That like, this is a movie not for everybody. But if you're into like action, if you're into action movies, period, I think you'll probably dig this. Uh, yeah. Especially like movies from the '80s. Um, if you dig that kind of this vibe, it's got Sean Connery in it. I yeah. mean, people like him, or they used to anyway. Also, if anyone it's got like, balance. Is, yeah. yeah. If anyone's familiar <laughs> with like Highlander references, which I think are most people, like, yeah, there can be only one is something you it's, hear a lot. It's in the lexicon. Yeah, like um, I feel like that's something that may have become popular enough that it's almost unmoored from this movie. Yeah, it's transcended Definitely. like its roots. Uh, but yeah, I think if you're familiar with that phrase, it'd be like, oh, go check out like the the source material. It's worth it. Like, and then you might be like, holy shit, this is what that's from. Right. Yeah. Oi. Like when I saw Casablanca for the first time when I was a kid, and I was like, oh, this is what all those Looney Tunes were talking about. Right. <laughs> uh, so do you guys have any, like, favorite moments, and then maybe worse mo- like the like, your least favorite moments of this movie? Or elements? Yeah. I think this is fairly easy for me, at least. Number one is definitely the entire opening sequence, basically from the first notes of Queen into the transition into Scotland. Awesome. That entire opening to this movie is gripping, shot really well, great action beat, an amazing transition into the Highlands. Thumbs up all around. Amy, what's your uh, favorite part or element of this movie? I mean, I'd have to piggyback off of that. The beginning of this movie's amazing. And also the whole sequence with Ramirez training. That's a great training montage. Totally. Uh, McLeod, yeah. That's really strictly good. Strictly the montage, or are we talking about that entire... <laughs> the, fi- the fish falling out his kill? The, yeah. Not the fish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only in it for the fish, guys. <laughs> but picking it up after that. After fish threw... <laughs> Him throwing Ramirez's sword off of the top of a mountain, <laughs> and then they have to go down and find it. <laughs> you just like to imagine the search. Yeah. yeah. I. They should make a whole spinoff movie just about that. Or, like, spinoff novels. There's a spinoff novel. <laughs> about the search for the about sword. About I'm looking for that sword. <laughs> um, I think my favorite scene in this movie, uh, I think, is the, the wine... Or, the, excuse me, not the wine scene. The brandy scene. Oh, that's uh, a great little monologue. Yeah. yeah, it's a great monologue. I think that captures a lot of what I personally like about kind of the Highlander mythology. Like, it's... It feels... I don't know. There's a, a little heartbreak in it. It's got a romanticism imagining the past. Uh, I don't know. I feel like it's got a lot kind of going on. 
in that scene. Like it sums up a lot about what the movie's about. Besides, like hyper, like it's got all this action sort of stuff yeah. in it too. But like, I feel like the core of the movie could could maybe be summarized in that little scene. It's I a- think that might be my favorite scene in the movie. If there wasn't some like kind of jury rigged problem with the center of that scene of just why is he there? Yeah, because I even like the beats of him being like, "Nice place, Brenda," when he finds the gun. And, yeah, that's like, really funny. that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. But then like he knows John Polito is there, and like Bates are into lying to him it was all kind of preordained right. him storming out and then he does it anyway <laughs> this is like something about that scene it's on shifting sands that scene it's a good bit of writing it works for us because we know he's immortal if you were on a date with this guy and he uncorks the drink and gives that speech <laughs> i'd be like all right all right shut the fuck up let's drink this stuff all right like i think it was weird but it is like a nice bit of writing and it's a cool idea totally. so it, it works for us the viewer and that's the magic of cinema it is. <laughs> so we've said our favorite parts what are our least favorite parts of this movie keith i know you can guess mine uh, I guess it's Boston Commons. Ding, 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 ding. There it is. <laughs> I, I feel like I've said my You've piece. You've said a I've lot about s- I've said my piece on Boston Commons. I'll leave it at that. I'm uh, kind of in that same boat. I really don't like that flashback. Also, the underutilization of Castiger. I that's I don't like that about this. That's movie. a bummer. Yeah, yeah. My I think my least favorite part is probably. Brenda slash the police uh, through no fault of Roxanne Hart's performance or anything. I think she's yeah. fine in the movie, but for her to be such a big part of the storyline, I feel like there's a lot of missed opportunities and it just kind of doesn't really go anywhere. We're given kind of a female that you would think has a lot of agency, but kind of by the end is maybe a damsel in distress. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, it's, it doesn't really go anywhere. And I think, the relationship could be more interesting, and it's not. They just don't sell the relationship. Yeah. But like, there's no chemistry. There, there is no chemistry, I think, between the two of those people. No. Yeah. There isn't. There's like, some... You'd think they would have done a chemistry test, right? Yeah. Who else did they turn down for this part, and they were like, yeah, the two of you really have the best vibes of this list of people? Well, you know what's crazy about that, too? It's like, yeah, like you'd think they'd, they'd get two people in front of the camera to see how it kind of like played out. They said they didn't realize Christopher Lambert didn't speak English till like he arrived on set. So, like, <laughs> they hired him, like, sight unseen, like, just knowing that he was in a big movie, Greystoke, uh, and was, like, kind of a big star at the time. And they're like, yeah. oh, we'll, we'll go with him, like... Because he agreed. So, like, I at least get that maybe they committed to him early, but why not do some more? And they definitely committed to her work. late. Because uh, she, I think, she was maybe their second choice or third choice. Like, she came on kind of late in production. Like, they, they were already kind of ready to go. She was, like, the last person cast. Why not switch her and B.D. Edney? They had chemistry. They definitely did. Also, there's rumors that they maybe had a little... <laughs> a little fling-a-ding. Maybe a little fling on the side. Well, Lambert had like kind of a reputation for being a bit of a womanizer. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that the like apparently he has like all this success with women in real life when in the movie the whole time we're just like really him yeah him but like he see like i have no problem believing that in real life he like is a lady killer (laughs) but somehow in the movie we're just like really yeah (laughs) another highlight is clancy brown's performance yeah i think he comes across as like one of the top movie villains ever really i I, i'd say so good i mean mean, like if darth vader's number one arguably he, he's i don't know maybe even top 10 like his performance as a villain is like crazy over the top like i don't know it's great it is pretty amazing the thing that he really deserves like an extra nod for and i don't know i think this was alluded to in that gregory wyden interview that we had 
played a clip from. The character itself is like fairly one dimensional. Mm-hmm. There's really not much going on here. Like it's literally all on Clancy Brown's back to make it compelling and and worthwhile. And I mean, he obviously had some displeasure with the role, but he made it work, baby. <laughs> I mean, he really did. Like, he, no reservation there. Yep. So, what's everyone's best theory on why Amon Fasil is doing backflips in that garage? My theory is it looks cool. <laughs> I think it's an intimidation technique. <laughs> and and he's, he's showing McLeod how badass he is. He's like, check it, bro. And he just starts flipping. <laughs> Yo, how many backflips can you do? Yeah. Answer, none. I don't think McLeod could do any backflips. So, uh, a, a fan, a listener on Facebook had a, a theory uh, mm-hmm. And he made it sound like this is like accepted canon in the extended universe that Amon Fazil is flipping to look under the cars to see where McLeod is hiding. How do, what do we think about that? Uh, I think, A, there are much easier ways <laughs> to look under a car. Like, I don't know, just stepping back far enough and leaning down. <laughs> that's, my, that's my first theory. <laughs> or like he could put his sword under the car and look in the reflection Ooh. of the blade. Mm. Or his sunglasses that he dropped. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty crazy. We have just watched Highlander for about a bajillion times. And so we thought we'd do a little uh, trivia game here. So Kyle and Eamon, you're going to go head-to-head and some... Oh. Highland down. Yeah, so get ready. All right. It's Eamon. it's Anne like Danky Kang. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Eamon, what year did Highlander come out? Uh nineteen eighty six. All right, that is correct. Oh, ding, let me uh, ding, 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 ding. let me get a, a scorecard here. Eamon, you have one point. Yes. All right, Kyle. What section of Madison Square Garden is Connor seated in? <laughs> 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 Uh, E23. Sorry, it is 214. Oh. No points. Shit. Oh. Eamon. Yes. What is Connor McLeod's current alias in the film? Hmm. Uh, Russell Nash. That is correct. Oh, yes. Two points for you. Very good. Kyle, on what date does Kurgan kill Castagir? Ooh. Uh, let's go with November 6th, 1985. I'm sorry, it is <laughs> April 1st, 1985. You can see that on the newspaper, dated the next day, April 2nd, 1985. No Ooh, points for you. How, how did I miss that? <laughs> I don't even know. Eamon. Yes. In the film, the Kurgan hires a lady of the evening. What is her name? I believe it is Candy. That is correct. You were up to three points. Just oh, to, my uh, God. Just to take a second here. Let's do a little recap. We have Eamon <laughs> with three points. Uh, and, Kyle, you uh, you still have zero points at this time. Oh, damn it. I, uh, you know, I want to protest that last question. I thought her name was Gomper Stomper. <laughs> <laughs> is that a kind of candy? Yeah, by Willy Wonka. Ooh. Kyle, when Connor moves into his New York City apartment, what is the third alias he uses? Well, I don't know if he had a New York City apartment when he used his third alias, but I'm going to go with... We're speaking of his current address. Oh, okay. I'm going to go with Conrad McGillicuddy II. <laughs> I'm sorry. It is Alfred Nicholson. No <laughs> points for you. How did I miss that? And let's do one more question here. Is it related to Jack Nicholson? He is now. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> the question to you is, what kind of scotch does Connor order in the bar? 
Oh, I think that's a double Glenmore Ange. That is correct. And you get two points for identifying the name of the scotch and the order. Very good. You have five points. Kyle, I'm sorry. You still have zero points. (laughs) All right. Last question. This could tie up the game. Maybe this one's worth a couple more points. Don't worry. You haven't decided yet. I'm sorry. (laughs) Listen, I feel bad. Eamon clearly is doing better. He has five points. You have zero. So for this one, I'm going to give you a multiple choice question. That way it's a little easier. Perfect. When Detective Frank Moran visits the hot dog vendor, the hot dog vendor carries the following variety of of sodas. (laughs) A, Hawaiian Punch, Pepsi, and Sprite. B, Sprite, Hawaiian Punch, Diet Coke. And C, Sprite, Diet Pepsi, and Hawaiian Punch. A, B, or C? Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. I'm going with B. B is correct! Boom! Suck it! No! <laughs> that one was worth a whopping two points. So, to tally these scores, Eamon, you have one, two, three, four, five points, and Kyle has one, two points. Now, I find it a little disappointing. I was hoping the scores would be a little bit more fairly balanced. Uh, I but it pay is, attention to Hawaiian punch. It is so. clear uh, one of you really likes Highlander, and the other one is a little eh on the subject. Uh, so I'd like to thank you so much for participating and for paying attention so closely in the movie Eamon. Kyle, maybe in Highlander 2, you'll actually try. <laughs> <laughs> so Keith, uh, does this movie pass the Bechdel test? Well, Good question, Eamon. So on this podcast, we often talk about the roles of women in the Highlander universe, and typically it comes up a little short, uh, which is a bummer. But um, the Bechtel test, if people are unaware, is kind of a shorthand way to see if a movie kind of has strong female characters. Um, So it's got three rules, and let's... uh, Maybe go over these three and see if this movie passes. And this was created actually by um, an American cartoonist, Alison Bechtel. Uh, so the first rule, this movie has to have at least two named female characters in it. It does. Just, it does. It does. We've got, uh, who do we got? We've got Heather and we've got Brenda. Are there any other ones besides those two? I think that's it. Oh, and Candy. Yeah. Kate and Candy. <laughs> that's four, baby. That's four. Wow. Very good. Oh, and Rachel. Right. Oh, Rachel. That's right. Yeah. I was said, who's Rachel? Rachel! <laughs> that's Batman. <laughs> Rachel does. Oh, that's right. Uh, question two. Who talk to each other? Uh, no. Yes. Yeah. Brenda and Rachel talk to oh, one another. Oh, Brenda and Rachel do talk oh, to each gosh, other. Oh, my gosh. They do. I forgot yeah. all about that. Yeah, baby. I had really no, they don't. <laughs> I actually forgot Rachel was a character. <laughs> sweet Rachel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sweet, sweet Rachel. And then number three, do they talk about something other than a man? What? No, they don't talk about anything else other than Mac Daddy himself. The so Daddy this Mac. movie does not pass the test. It does come close for actually having a number of female characters. Yeah. Um, they don't do much. <laughs> this is true but they there so hopefully one day when they reboot highlander we'll get to see a strong female protagonist this movie we can of course see as just an action adventure fantasy movie uh but during the course of this we did talk a lot about other ways you could view this movie uh so there were three main ones and i just we'll just maybe talk about them a little bit um i had mentioned that this movie can have possibly some gay undertones uh what do you guys think about looking at this movie through that lens there's a lot of there's definitely a lot of gay imagery in it i mean just even just the the rough sketch of this movie at this point all male 
group secret society meets in the dark of night to stab each other with swords. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the imagery is, is kind of baked into it. There are a lot of images that are, that don't need to be there that they add in. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean the, the, the quickening itself is so sexual. We've talked about that. Definitely. And, uh, yeah. And they make it extra sexual in this, like yeah. even compared to where the way it is in the, the TV show. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a real strong case for viewing it with these elements in mind, but yeah. I don't think there's necessarily a good through line. Uh, like, I don't think this is entirely like an, a gay allegory or anything, but no. I think the inclusion of Russell McKay as the director, yeah. we know has like experience with this imagery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it definitely, and, and knowing like what the original script was and what was kind of added, like, I think it becomes very apparent the things that are added into this movie to like that you could view as homosexual, which yeah. I think is really interesting. Yeah. And I think um, you just said something that I think is applicable to any reading of this, which is, just in terms of like not having a clear through line necessarily. Um, just that a lot, I feel like a lot of the images in this movie is imagery for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Like maybe it's connected or that there's a theme to the imagery, but a lot of it is highly stylized right. and not necessarily plot driven or yeah. plot connected. I mean, you could say there's not a good through line with the narrative itself. Like, I mean, we've talked about like, well, what is the prize? Like there's these elements of oneness and peace and, you know, balance uh all these sort of things uh, balance <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. um but like i i never find that there's a, a good through line of that like it's all there and it maybe existed stronger in a previous version but i'm not really sure so uh even with the the main narrative and story itself there's not a strong through line of everything so uh there's a lot of different ways you can kind of look at this yeah so kyle you had mentioned a lot of cold war kind of imagery and you know this movie is definitely a product of its time so you want to talk a little about that yeah those are kind of two i think related concepts that are kind of woven throughout this thing because there's a lot of you know the movie i kept thinking of when seeing this was the warriors right because you Mm -hmm. get this guy who basically causes this massive gang war in New York, this is the Warriors I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. In case you you missed the plot of Highlander, <laughs> <laughs> and when like asked to confront it, when they confront this villain at the end, he just does it for like kicks. It's just about chaos for its own sake, and it's like this weird madness of the era, especially in New York, because that's another gritty New York movie. I think we see that here. Like that's what the Kurgan really represents. He's just this malevolent force of like destruction and death that just kind of rages through this period, but with no end game. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's purpose. And there's one very specific cold war, like image on the, uh, like the, the quote unquote gun nuts shirt. He's got yeah. like missiles and it's like, I don't know. It's like, I forget what it exactly says. It's something like take this Moscow or yeah. Like, yeah. It's like an yeah. anti-communist. It's like an shirt. anti-communist shirt. So, uh, that's put front and center at some point. Uh, yeah. And like just the fact that the Kurgan's like from this, like Russian steps, basically yeah. he's you represent, this like hyper masculine hyper violent perception of what at the time would have been like our enemy in the east you know that could just be a, a factor of something you had mentioned earlier which is just in a given time your villains tend to mirror your your, your country's real life enemies mm-hmm. and it leads to a lot of like caricatures of people in movies but i think that there's at least something to it when when we talk about balance like as you said the kurgan kind of represents this malevolence and this you know evil for evil's sake whereas mac kind of represents you know sitting and moping around. <laughs> so there's not really like 
McLeod doesn't represent anything in this movie. He, I, I think that's a weak part of this movie, too. Like, yeah. he, sh- he should really be the opposite of and he's Clancy kinda, Brown's character. Yeah. But he, and he's also kind of set up as like this hand solo esque character in some scenes, just where he's like, you know, doing one liners and his little rascally, like we talked about. But then it's just like at other times he's just sitting there like mopey. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think the, the interview with Wyden. I think the portrayal of Mac in general is probably pretty consistent from what Wyden's original vision was. Because you know how he talks about Kurt, the Kurgan just has like this darkness. He just wants to finish this thing with our guy. And there's just this notion of being sick of life. And that's kind of how I felt about Mac the entire time. Yeah. Because yeah. Mac is just this guy who's just this poor mope who's like still alive and just can't get on with it. But just like wants to be left in peace. Like mm-hmm. he's just tired of this like come on, just leave me alone. Right. Totally. And I feel like that is thematically linked to this older version of the script, which is why maybe he doesn't represent much. Like Could be, yeah. At least in this wider good versus evil struggle. Because yeah. as I said like on episode one, not really a hero. Right. Yeah. yeah, hopefully at some point we'll get to talk to some of the writers and kind of break, like figure, figure if we can break down how this script kind of got to the finished product, I think would be kind of cool. Yeah. Because um, I feel like, yeah, there's there's a lot of drafts here, and it, it all became this kind of collage of different elements from different people. I'm um, just still thinking about that balance line. Yeah. The entire Cold War was about balance of powers and Ooh. maintaining a, del- a delicate balance in a nuclear-fueled world. <laughs> in any case... <laughs> More just kind of images. Yeah. That are, uh, that and the last uh, kind of set of images is we talked about uh, a Christian interpretation of this movie. And to me, that one actually comes through the strongest for me. I'd agree with that. Uh, like, that one has almost a whole through line. Um, yeah. That also so. is maybe a little bit more woven into the narrative. Like, I feel like the homosexual stuff is not quite as woven in. There's a lot of imagery. I think the closest we get to it actually being woven into the, the mythology is maybe the you can't get married, you can't have kids, those sort of things kind of are part of the story but otherwise it's mostly imagery uh but i think the christian themes come through pretty strong there's lots of crosses um we get connor referenced as like god like you fight with god on your side and there's connor Um, there's there's the bit where like when he wins the prize he's literally suspended in the air with his arms out like he's kind of having Uh, this crucifixion moment yeah the um the kurgan is represented by a dragon uh and there's a lot of dragon or a serpent, exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of dragon imagery in the Bible, um, especially in relation to, like, Revelation, like, the end of days, which the Kurgan, Ramirez says, like, if the Kurgan wins, like, there will be an eternity of darkness, uh, which sounds like the end of days to me from the Bible, and yeah. that's that's represented by a dragon. Um, hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe we'll try to throw up maybe a list or two on the, on Facebook of kind of all this evidence, we could quote-unquote say, of what we've found in these movies for these interpretations if people think that's interesting but uh yeah yeah, there's a lot of kind of cool cool ways to look at highlander and Mm -hmm. again if you haven't thought about it in maybe a deeper way i think it's kind of fun to see that this surface level maybe action adventure gritty movie has kind of stuff going on underneath uh which is intentional and thoughtful i think so which is pretty cool if you haven't watched the movie recently look for some of these things you know, pop your DVD in and look out for it because I think it's interesting. I think it adds something to it. So, any final thoughts that you guys want to share with our listeners? Uh, sure. Um, watching this again, uh, it's been a while. It reminded me of how much I love this movie. It's really great. It was fun to revisit it. But it also reminded me how much I really enjoyed the TV show. Um, I'm really excited to get back into season two of the series. Uh, for me personally, as much as I like the movie and like the concept, I find that this concept in general works like lives better 
as a television series because this movie introduces us to so many like interesting facets of this mythology and doesn't really get to explore them as much as like the TV show can because of the format. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eamon? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad I, you know, rewatched this movie. I, I used to hey, kind of have... Titular, you're glad you Highlander rewatched? <laughs> Wait, what, what are we... What? That's the name of our show. Oh, you're right. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I am glad I Highlander rewatched this movie <laughs> because uh, I... I kind of used to have not a great opinion of this movie i'll be honest i like the tv show more and i thought this movie was kind of hokey and i am very happy to see that i've been proven wrong also kind of weird thing that i just thought about it reminded me how much i like sean connery definitely yeah like, he's super charming in this. he's amazing in this movie and i'm a big james bond fan he's kind of playing a different character he's not really james bondy in this he's a lot more likable and like mm-hmm. fatherly whereas james bond's kind of cutthroat so uh, I was just like, oh, yeah, Sean Connery's actually really an awesome actor, despite some of his personal viewpoints, which we won't talk about here. Um, but, yeah, uh, very glad to watch this again. Yeah, rewatching this was awesome. I also developed a, a much larger appreciation for this movie, seeing it again. One thing that's kind of one thing that really struck me about this that had never quite sunk in before is the difference in the way Duncan and also Connor are portrayed in the TV show versus the way our in quotes hero is portrayed here. When they show Connor in the gathering, he like hunts evil immortals. Like he is a superhero. That is his shtick. And they kind of present Duncan the same way. Like Duncan's like a little bit retired, but like his thing is going around hunting, literally hunting down bad guys. Whereas here, he's just like this noir protagonist on like kind of at the end of his rope. And I think that actually could be a really compelling character in a TV show. Again, this does fit better in a TV show because you just need more time to flesh this stuff out. Like it's too dense. Like there's too many moving parts to like knock this out in a hundred minute movie. But I think I could follow when Connor is at his most rascally, but he's still this kind of somewhat self-interested little curmudgeon noir kind of hero. Like I feel like you could follow that guy for a lot of episodes and get a lot of good content out of it. Big takeaway. There's a noir, like a hard noir Highlander out there that could be really cool. As a uh, part of our rewatching of this, we've done a lot of kind of, you know, in between takes talked about what a reboot might be like of this movie. And so we're just going to tease this a little bit. Now we're going to have a, a contest um, next season for season two of the series uh, to pitch us your Highlander reboot. And we're going to take part in this as well. We're going to uh, come up with what would amount to be like a one-page treatment of what we think a Highlander reboot would look like. Um, so make sure to tune in next season, and we're going to give more details about what that contest is going to look like. But I'm really excited to hear everybody's uh, thoughts on what a new Highlander could be. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we three won't be eligible for the prize. The prize, <laughs> of course. Um, so thank you, everybody. Guys. Give me the price. <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody out there, for sticking with us through this whole thing. Uh, again, yeah. this is longer than we ever dreamed it would be. Uh, we had about, I don't know, I think you've stuck through about seven hours of Highlander talk. It's longer than the movie itself. Yep. Um, by, like, 
by three times. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, I think you'll definitely enjoy our series two when we talk about the series. Uh, make sure to tune in and subscribe on Facebook, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can tune in to season two, which is going to start up pretty soon. We're really excited for that. So, once again, thanks a lot for listening. We're going to be taking a week off, but you can join us the week after that for the season premiere of season two of the TV show, The Watchers. You can guess who's in introduced in that episode <laughs> uatu the marvel comics character <laughs> yes that's, that's it, it. That's it <laughs> you precisely. uh thanks again for watching i've been one of your rewatchers i'm keith this is kyle this is Eamon. bye thanks for taking this ride with us bye bye interesting <laughs> What was that? <laughs> <laughs> uh.